What do you like listening to? Um. <laughs> Chart music. <laughs> Chart music. Youngsters, and welcome to the latest episode of Chart Music, the podcast which snuffles around the crotch of a random episode of Top of the Pops. I'm your host, Al Needham, and I've got back up in the form of Sarah B. Hello. And Neil Kulkarne. Hello, all. Oh, welcome back, me dears. How are we? Anything popping interesting happening in your lives? Hmm. Well, J- January's a kind of, uh, and, and February, they're, they're kind of stay-in months for me. Um, been a bit grim, but I have been doing some interviews. I felt vaguely connected with pop music in that Ooh. I interviewed yeah, I interviewed Little Sims, who's a fantastic rapper uh, for a feature. Yeah. And I also got to speak to Asha Senator, who together with Smiley yeah. Culture um, was just a great reggae guy from the 80s. Yes. Um, responsible for some fantastic records. And I forgot to ask him the one question. That I wanted to ask him, and I just forgot. You know when Boops, you know Sly and Robbie Boops? Yes. When that got on top of the pops, uh, the rapper on that, Shinehead, couldn't make it. And it yeah. was long rumoured that Asher Senator had turned up and just mimed in his place. Ooh. Forgot to bloody ask him. I'll get another oh, chance, mate. hopefully. If you're out there, Asher Senator, was it you? <laughs> or if anyone out there who did pretend to be Shinehead happens to be <laughs> listening to this, get in touch. And I'll link you up with Neil. It wasn't me. <laughs> I wasn't bold at that time. <laughs> Sarah, what have you been up to, Doc? Uh, not an awful lot. Um, hibernating in in similar yes. similar fashion, like 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 you do. Um, I've actually um, I have made a start on my own uh, on my own Patreon, which you know watch oh, have you? watch this space and that. So yeah, I'll be Ooh. actively vying with you for um, the 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 kind of the throne scraps. Of uh, of the internet's pocket change, so uh... <laughs> yeah. fire away, Doug. I will let you know. It's not, it's not a buy... podcast, is it? A podcast? Uh, I'll probably I'll probably write things and then read them out in that kind Ooh, of a way. Lovely, yeah, Good. but no uh, Good skills. Um, probably not any not any pictures because it's just my stupid face, you know. But uh, who knows? Oh. We'll see what the demand is like. Good <laughs> By the way, Al, I I might be lured away. Um, oh, really? By another podcast. I mean, not in <gasps> the way, but no, I've been, um, I, I recently read my crisps piece again on my blog, and mm. I noticed in the comments... <laughs> yeah, which everyone, which everyone should read. <laughs> Perhaps, but I mean, I noticed in the comments, there's some guy who runs this snack-based podcast. Yes. And he wants me in as a, a special guest. I mean, it... it It'd be a strange thing doing another podcast after doing so many chart musics. I'll, I'll have a listen to see what they sound like. Um, yeah. My guess is they're not going to be that funny, so I will have to be deadly, deadly serious because it's an important business, Chris. Yeah, it is. It, you can't, you can't joke about Chris, man. No, no, no. Oh no. no, no. You should absolutely do that. Special guest as you know, as a high high priest of of snacks. <laughs> Yeah. yeah, Coventry's Mr. Crisp. That's, that, 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 that's the offer, special guest. But it's kind of obviously the most important question is, what are you going to fucking pay me? Ooh, and yes. oh yeah, that is the most important. Question. The second one is, are you gonna? What crisp is best to eat out loud on a podcast? Oh yeah, for the for that full ASMR 
deal. I mean, the thing is that I've got that thing, misophonia, which is like the opposite of it, which means that I'm, I'm, you know, roused to like intense rage by certain eating sounds. It's not consistent yeah. whatsoever. Yeah. But some crisps can be one of them. If you know, chomping mm. lustily on on a on a on a bit of um, on a, a, a McCoy's is is liable mm. to uh, get you a, a bop around the head. But, you know, I won't be, it, it's, you know, I won't be able to reach you. So, you know, you can just let rip, really. and then it, um... Well, well, quite. But, I mean, uh, I can actually answer that question. The crisp that would make the best AS, AS, ASMR experience will probably be uh, Bobby's Cheese Curls. Because they, because <laughs> I like they provide, Yeah, they provide a variety in the way that you can eat them. You can either just chop them and crunch them, mm. or you can suck them in a really unpleasant way, mm. which would uh, create... <laughs> Probably quite revolting noises on a podcast, but yeah, food for thought anyway. You have to do a series of podcasts of you just eating a packet of crisps this and is talking my... about it afterwards. I, I absolutely so it'd be, could. It'd be like 30 seconds of introduction, and they're like two minutes of crunching, and then you talking about it afterwards. I'd, I'd listen to that. I'd subscribe to that. A weekly, I think crisp innovation is obviously an ongoing thing. Yeah. I think a weekly vlogging type thing where I simply review the newest releases in the crisps market would would be an invaluable resource that'd be great it'd be like the it'd be like the pengus munch you know but um <laughs> yeah in fact you could have him on as as your as your special guy oh this is great this is like an entire you, you don't need anyone just neil saying here i am this week's packet of <laughs> Un- unpacketing this. it would be un- in- yes, un- yes, yes, it'd be yes. unpacketing yeah, yeah. yeah unbagging <laughs> And then you describe the packet and then you just eat the crisps. So we get a good two minutes of you just chuffing away. Mm, And then you mm. talk about the crisps. Ten minutes. That's it. You're done. Yeah. With a sort of thoughtful... I've just given away a brilliant podcast idea. Thoughtful, far away look. You know. Yeah. 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 Neil, you need to do this before someone else nicks this idea. No, you're absolutely right. I I do have way more to say about crisps than the music at the moment. So, yeah, yeah, I should do that. I, I, I do work. have actually. I do have another. I do have another sneaky idea for a podcast, which I probably won't do, but I might do, which is a Game of Thrones podcast. Which, mm. um, uh, but it's it's about how much we we uh, we used to love it and now we loathe it. It's the last series of it ever, and so right. we might do uh, a podcast called The Night's Hate Watch about uh, mm. how much we you know. So we the idea is that we watch the last series of Game of Thrones so that you don't have to. <laughs> Good idea. This is like that moment when, when you know, when Kiss split up and all four members made solo albums. Yes. This, this, this is what's going to happen. So yeah. yeah, yeah, yeah. God, which one? Which one are you then? <laughs> um, no idea. My daughter loves Kiss, but I keep telling her they're shit in American. <laughs> <laughs> okay, let's get back on track then, because before we take one step further towards the episode that we're going to dissect this episode. I need to tell you all about the latest development on the Patreon front. Because we've had pop-crazed youngsters, you know, they've decided that $3 is not enough for the entertainment that we give them. And they've started ramming as much as $5 down our G-strings without us even asking. So I thought, well, this ain't right, you know. Um, So I I created a new tier the other day, set at $5. Uh, It's called Simon Bates' High Flying Cats after the uh, Halloween episode. (laughs) And it gets you every single episode of chart music a full day before anyone else. Yeah, it does. Platinum edition. 
So, so those people now are, are, are listening to this and, and, and just telling everyone, oh, don't bother listening to this episode of Chubbies. <laughs> they just bang on about fucking crisps and kiss and, and rubbish. But those people piled on this week, so I'm going to break it down right now. Gareth Hart, Dan Turner, Jason Brooks, Jason Quinn, Ross Patrick, Emma Murray, Darren Hubbard, Aaron Wright, Dan Also Brook, Bruce Bowe, James Watson, Joseph Goss, Paul Todd, Rob Crabwalk, Graham Clark, Mark Cooper, Darren Williams, Fletcher Wilkinson, Golden E. Pump, Sylvain, Andy Barrett, Stephen Mahappy Banks, Bobby Treetops, Satchmo Distel, Keith Howey, Matthew Davis, Peter Hedden, John McCarthy, Daniel Noble, Steve Parsons, Dr. Volume, Mike Melia, Mark Wood, Stephen Dowell, Andrew Smart, Tim Kayser, Evion Bedford, Mark Savage, Justina Heslop, Old Uncle Tom Cobbley and all. <laughs> They've all taken a crisp £5 note. They've rammed it down the G-string. We've got paper cuts around areas. We don't want paper cuts, but we don't care. Thank you, babies. Oh, good Thank people. You. Good, kind people. Those people are now looking yeah. very pleased with themselves in the playground and quite possibly breathing on their fingernails and buffing them up against the lapel of their blazers <laughs> because they are the first to know what is going on in chart music land. They're like Simon Price, aren't they? In the early 80s, on his bike, pedaling away from the chip shop, back into the playground, knowing what's entered the top 40 this week before anyone else. Yeah. But let's not forget the pop craze youngsters who dropped in £3 this week, and they include Gavin Hogg, Mark Brennan, Norvan Manke, Nathan Radcliffe, Stuart Dade, John Cooper, Neil Clough, Jonathan Roberts, Annick Mackin, Logan Mount Stewart, Mark Perkins, and Guy Millard. Thank you so much, you beautiful, beautiful, pop-crazed youngsters. We love you very, very much in all very, ways. And just one more thing. Uh, I know that early access usually means everybody else gets it a day later, but I just want you to know I have just this very morning invested in some new editing software that doesn't crash and fuck everything up when I'm Ooh. 95% through an edit like I have been before. Swanky pants. Not <laughs> fucking about in 2019, pop craze youngsters. <laughs> oh, yeah, and, and a memo to my future self who's now editing this. Uh, stop fucking about on YouTube. Get some fucking work done. You yeah, bond Al. cunt. What do you think you're doing? <laughs> yeah. And don't forget, if you're down with Patreon, another beautiful benefit is the fact that you're allowed to tinker with the chart return books on the latest chart music top 10. Oh, are we ready for this? Yes. Down six places to number 10 for Taylor Parks' 20 romantic moments. <laughs> New entry this week at number 9, it's Gammony Sludge. Get in. <laughs> A drop of five places for this week's number 8 sound by the Alligators with Tits. <laughs> Last week's number one dropped six places to number seven, Your Dark Mates. Also going down from number two to number six, it's a four-place drop for Fred Westlife. (laughs) Up two places from number seven to number five, here comes Jism. Climbing from number eight all the way up to number four, 
Bomber Dog into the top three, and it's a new entry at number three for Clitz Richards. Jesus Christ. New entry straight into number two, Bergerac meets Rockers Uptown, which means... Britain's number one. Straight in out of nowhere, the new chart music number one, the Doolies with Ghoulies. Oh, so much change in the chart this week. Absolutely. Yes. Here comes Jism and um, Bummer Dog still maintaining their hold, though. I'm impressed yes, by that. Yes, man. Surging yeah. back, actually, aren't yeah. they? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, the Pop Craze youngsters just can't let them go. <laughs> and, I, and I can't blame them. So, uh, new entries. Gamini Sludge. I think we, we can guess what they sound like. Um, Clit Richard. No. <laughs> what's, what's she sounding like? Jesus Christ. No. Just, no. <laughs> Not... Even at all. No, that's just white noise to me. Sorry, I'm, I'm mm. you know, it's, I don't know. That's probably some sort of experimental drone noise kind of deal. It's a great name for a female. No, band, no, isn't it? it really isn't. No, it really not. is, though, Sarah. Come on. <laughs> you can't just say, you got, oh, come on, just change your mind about things. No. <laughs> so if you want to fiddle with the charts, pop crazy youngsters, you know what to do. Patreon.com slash chart music. Money down the G-string. Mm. Mm. This episode, Pop Craze Youngsters, takes us all the way back to August the 11th, 2000. Yes, you heard right. A top of the pops from this actual century that we're in now. Fucking hell. <laughs> and it's been it's amazing, isn't it? It's, it, it's it, 2000 seems like, you know... A couple of years ago, doesn't it? Yeah, it does to me, and I suspect that's probably down to my age. But but mm. a repeated thing that I find thinking of that era, I think that's now. Do you know what I mean? Yeah, I don't think that that's like years ago or decades ago. Mm. A lot of the things we'll see could be now. Um, mm. There isn't that sense of oh, that's weird, that's dated. It, yeah. it could be now, really. This mm. episode has been brought to us by one of the pop craze youngsters, a chap called Paul Putner, because this has been dug out of his very own video collection. Meaning that he's one of the very few people who actually bothered to tape an episode of Top of the Pops <laughs> in its final decade. And let me warn you now, pop craze youngsters, this is not a podcast. It's a therapy session. <laughs> yeah. Before we get into all of that, first question. When you were a kid growing up, what did you think the music of 2000 was going to be like? Oh, wow. I probably thought it was all going to be, uh, you know, it would be 100% electronic, you know, 70% made by robots, you know. Mm. <laughs> it was, um, yeah, I mean, or, or it was all going to be, uh, I don't know, like when when uh, when we were going to party like it was 1999. What, is, what was that party like? Like uh. you couldn't quite, it was kind of beyond my ken really. It was like, yeah. you know, that's going to be some kind of music that I can't even imagine right now. And it turned out to be Westlife. <laughs> yeah. that, but, but that's the thing. By two, I mean, if you'd have asked me in the mid-80s what I thought 2000 music would be like, everything that had that 2000 thing next to it sounded yeah. impossibly in the future. Um, yes. you know, we've been just brilliant. Co yeah, coated in Baco foil and just, just really, yeah. really futuristic. As it yeah. turned out, um, it, some of it was... Um, but an awful lot of it was in, incredibly retrograde. So, so I, I, I remember sort of '87. You, you just sort of felt '87, '88. You just sort of felt that not that guitar rock was going to go away, but I don't mm. know. The technology of music was changing, and surely in about ten years it'd be completely and utterly different. It was in yeah. some places, but a lot, a lot of yeah. 
people were looking the other way, unfortunately. Yeah, I always thought, because, and I'm sure I'm not the only person, but ever since I was a kid, I knew exactly how old I was going to be on the 1st of January 2000. <laughs> 32 years, seven months exactly. Mm. And I, I, I thought that the music of 2000 would have been like one of my favourite uh, Judge Dredd episodes, uh, Who Killed Pug Ugly? There was a band called uh, Pug Ugly and the Buglies, and they had sort of robot attachments strapped to them that played the instruments while they just kind of like stood about and threw poses. And they had a drummer who just just lie there on a bit of a settee kind of thing while the drum kit was just operating itself. And it was going to be skill. <laughs> I, I knew Top of the Pops would still be going because it was fucking Top of the Pops. But, mm. you know, I, I, I think I probably thought, well, you, you could take a pill and uh, for an episode of Top of the Pops. <laughs> And probably 3D telly as well. They'd actually come out and cavort in front of you. I, I sort of didn't think that musical instruments that I was used to would exist by then. I thought mm. bands would come out, if there were bands at all, and would just have a sleek, slimline device with, with, with not even buttons on it, that they'd just yeah. caress slightly and sounds would come out. You know, yeah. kind of like that, that instrument that um, oh, Dion Dublin invented. <laughs> oh yes you know but but it wasn't to be it wasn't to be yeah you see prince so, could have done that prince yeah. could have invented and built and played that instrument yeah <laughs> but he chose to have loads of sex instead <laughs> cool. good lad such a fucking disappointment and of course you know the whole year started off massively disappointing because society didn't crumble Due to the uh, Millennium bug. Mm, mm. And the whole Millennium was a fucking huge letdown. It was it just was. a bonfire night that thought it was summer. What, what, did, you, what did you do then, oh, Al, fucking that hell. night? Right, I got invited to go all around the world and, you know, go to different... Invites from all different countries and all that kind of stuff. And I went, no, I'm going to keep it real. I want to be with my family. Oh. Unfortunately, that meant I spent New Year's Eve around my mum's mate's house on the opposite estate... And with 10 seconds to go towards the new century, it was just me sat in an armchair <laughs> watching my mum dancing to do, 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 come on and do the conga, <laughs> shouting at me, come on, you cunt, don't be so miserable, it's the fucking millennium, while my dad was having an argument with someone else about Elvis. And it's just like, oh, well, this is <laughs> this is a fucking appalling letdown. Mm. The perfect start to the decade, to be honest with you. I mean... Yeah. I don't know about you guys, but my memories of the noise, they're not good. I don't remember it as a great decade um, mm. in all kinds of ways. Not, I mean, as ever, the caveat, there's always good shit going on. Yeah. But, but, but um, yeah, I just remember the noise as being a real sort of desperate time. Not, for me, working as a journalist, it was a, it was a kind of desperate time. Work was flying out the window. But yeah. um, beyond that, I've never felt less like I belong than in the noughties. It was a grim time, but I, I suppose it was my 30s. So my 20s mm. were coming to an end by 2000. I was sort of 28 that year. Um, yeah. So it kind of fitted, I guess. Grim 30s, better 40s slightly. Ace 20s, you know. Yeah, it's it's just another... The entire time is um, another universe ago to me. It's I, I do feel that thing of like, oh, it could have been yesterday, but also... Um, that thing of like I was an entirely different version mm. of myself. It's several versions ago, mm. and a lot of it is kind of a blur. Not for like not for good hedonistic reasons. I kind no. of did. I kind of got into that later when I'd got you know. Um, but just for 
It was, yeah. And, and kind of culturally and musically and stuff, I feel like there was, it was very, you know, erratic. But mm. I mean, I, I, you could say that about, about any period, but I do feel, you know, I, I still struggle now to sort of define what, what happened what it was you know it's it's quite yeah. it's quite hard there isn't you know um it, it doesn't have a, a a sound maybe maybe when we get further away from it we'll be able to nail that down i don't know mm. or not well let's find out Radio One so in the news this week jack straw is about to release reggie cray from broadmoor so he can die from cancer at home the riots on the Paul's Grove estate in Portsmouth sparked by the news of the world's naming of paedophiles finally calmed down after a week. Eight people have been killed by a terrorist explosion in a Moscow subway. The Lebanese army finally take control of South Lebanon three months after Israel pulled out. Leeds United beat TSV Munich 2-1 in the first leg of the third qualifying round of the Champions League. Robin Day and Alec Guinness have died. A woman in Tilly Scotland, sees the image of Elvis in some rocks and bracken. But the big news this week is that the country is getting properly ragged up about Nasty Nick in Big Brother. Oh, the, 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 the decade begins here, chaps. Wow, me. Do you ever watch the first series of Big Brother? I think I watched bits, and I didn't realise at the time how epochal, in a way, that... that, that thing was and and mm. and the way that it would actually go on to influence not just television but all kinds of other aspects of culture as we'll see later in this episode i think there is some that it's the start of that blurring between reality tv stardom and you know uh, and music as well and we'll see mm. that later it was more important than i realized at the time yeah, yeah. i saw I've, i'm the same i saw bits of it didn't really have any kind of handle on how big it was going to be but it was like sort of it was like a weird sort of panto, you know, there was that mm. sense of, of unreality about it and, and, you know, kind of uh, camp and weirdness. But also it, it I was sort of bewildered as to like, why would you watch people just being horrible to each other in a house? Mm. I don't really understand mm. it. So I was never into it, but um, yeah, and, and had no idea of what a, a scourge it would be on the culture. What I could never get into was the amount of dedication needed to watch it. Because mm. I was used to things that I watched every week, perhaps. With Big Brother, you did kind of have to watch it constantly. And I knew that if yeah. I got sucked in, yeah. it, it's always fascinating watching people. There's no denying it. So even yeah, up yeah. till now, Big Brother and Celebrity Big Brother in particular are fascinating if you get engrossed. Um, and I never allowed that to happen because I simply couldn't put the hours in, you know. Um, you yeah. had to pretty much watch it every night. And, and that was a new thing that I, I never got used to, really. I had to watch a, a full 24 hours of it for work. Yeah. One of my freelance gigs. I was massively into it, but it was like, oh, yeah, this is this is interesting. This is not realising that it was going to be the fucking end of televisual <laughs> civilization as we know it. <laughs> I'm always interested in fly on the wall documentaries. And to see one in real time. Uh, it, it was it was really interesting, and then of course you know by the by the second series, you know the the, the people taking part, you could you, you could see that all oh, right. If I do this and that like this, I'm going to get some kind of uh, career out of it. Mm. Yeah, yeah. I mean, I remember. I think it was the second series. I was doing. Uh, I did an article for Minx where I went out on a date 
with hmm. one of the contestants who was the first one to come out. Hmm. She had it in her head that, that this was going to be a whole new life and a whole new career. Hmm. And I'm sitting there listening to her going, Doug, this time next week, you, you've forgotten about. As soon <laughs> yeah. as the next person yeah. comes out, you're done. Yeah. <laughs> We're watching television eat itself. Yeah. And established programs like Top of the Pops, they have to deal with that and they have to make changes. And and, and, and in this episode of Top of the Pops, we are going to see a, a, a long-standing television show trying to claw back what it used to be uh, while also exploring new avenues yeah. and with... with, with um, with various results, I'd say. Mm. Mm. It, yeah. Big Brother was kind of the first tickling of that kind of national urge for voyeurism um, mm. that we ever had. And it, and it was our first indulgence of it. Whether it exerted a good influence is is debatable, but it was the first, yeah, it was the first time that we were given that. And, and I think so many shows since then have adhered to that, to that kind of thing of giving us that, being able to watch yeah. people in that way yeah it's um the the disturbing thing for me about it obviously was um you know that it's like people plotting against each other in this you know and and trying to use all they have is is themselves or their construction of themselves to try to uh you know to beat each other it's this really creepy gladiatorial thing and uh, yeah, it kind of it, it bothered me a bit. But um, like my mate, once they uh, I don't know, it wasn't the first series, but when uh, when they would do like the the live stream thing that you could watch whenever you want, and my mate yeah. would just go, "I just like to watch them sleep." Yes, and it, it, <laughs> it's just like it's the, this lovely relaxing thing, and all these kind of raging, uh, you know, um, psychological disaster areas, all just slumbering, like yeah. uh, you know, like mm. uh, like lions in in the uh, in the in the wherever like what's the thing you know the lion thing um yeah so yeah that yeah but what was valued in that show in big brother was a kind of pushy egoism a a, a kind of pushiness that you you'd also start seeing yeah a pushy egoism without and sort of without anything to back it up apart from that egotistical nature Mm. and and you'll see that affecting pop stars of this era as we'll see later in this episode that it's enough to just be pushy and ambitious that's enough Mm. you don't actually have to have anything about you just the pushiness the pushiness and the drive and the ruthlessness is enough and that should be applauded also being a cunt helps as well Yeah, being callous being callous Yeah. yeah But it does, and that frees and that frees people up to be like that themselves, and to think that that is good. And okay, the other, yeah. and the other problem yeah, yeah. is that you know, um, because you uh, the 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 voting thing as well is that that gives you that sense of being able to uh, uh, reshape the world as you see fit, and uh, you know, make yeah. kings rise and fall, etc. And yeah, no, uh, I think it's probably it's probably got a lot to answer for. Yeah, mm. because I mean, look, we're post Diana, we're post Blair. We're not post-Blair just yet, though, Neil. No, not post-Blair. Sorry, post-Blair being voted in. I mean, we've got a Labour yeah. government now. I'm not saying that means meant everything was wonderful, but no. things were, in general, a bit cuddlier in that direction. So we needed the odd hate figure, the odd bit of nasty, mm. naked um, ruthlessness on telly to cheer yeah. or applaud. Um, I, I'm yeah. glad I kind of avoided it, to be honest with you. Well, it's the end of history, isn't it, Neil? To- Nothing wrong can happen now. <laughs> <laughs> But I am a victim of that slightly. I'm a victim of that mindset to a certain extent in that, as we've said, from 2000 onwards, I can't say, oh, yeah, 2003, who can forget? You know what I mean? Whereas before then, individual years have loads of different serpentine memories for me. After 2000, it, it does all become a mulch. 
um, yes. through yes. till Something now. Something really major us to happen, like you know, a plane has to go into a this couple of buildings it. and Absolutely. stuff like that. Absolutely, yeah. yeah. So on the cover of the enemy this week, Richard Ashcroft. <sighs> on the cover of Smash It's A One. The number one LP in the UK is In Blue by The Cause. And over in America, the number one single is It's Gonna Be Me by InSync. And the number one LP is Now That's What I Call Music 4. Oops, I Did It Again by Britney Spears is number two. So me dears. Deep breath. What were we doing in August of 2000? <laughs> I don't know if I'm ready for this. Um, well, yeah. I wanted you to go first, Sarah. I'll go first. <laughs> I was um, I was working at a little paper called Melody Maker. Oh. Um, I was living in uh, was I still living in Euston at that point? My first sort of place that I crashed in in London was in Euston. I think I might have um, extricated myself by then, so I was probably in Camden um, because uh, you know after, after Camden, Camden had already was already like uncool by then. But I I quite enjoyed that. It's like. Once a place isn't cool anymore, it just kind of kicks back and doesn't have anything to prove. So, you know, mm. and it was before Camden turned into what it is now, which is not really Camden anymore. So, yeah. No. Um, so I was freelancing at Melody Maker. I was also probably freelancing at The Fly. I sort of used to do editing for them. Mm. Um, and I had very little idea of what I was doing, except by this point, I had cottoned on to the fact that the paper that I was working for, that I had wanted to work for for, for some time, uh, that, you know, it blew my mind that I was doing it, and it was dying on its arse. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Before before you come in, Neil, we, we've not we've not done this with you yet, Sarah. Explain how you how you got into the game. Well, uh, <clears throat> all right, let me try and do the short version. Um, so I was studying uh, in Wales, in the middle of nowhere, and I was doing I was uh, wrapping up my English degree. And um, as a method of procrastination, I used to read The Maker and, you know, uh, and think, well, this is a thing that I would like to do and that I probably could do. And how does one go about that? And I cannot remember how it came about that I started. I just wrote to, you know, with actual pen and paper and stuff like like Mm -hmm. people used to do in those days. Um, Mm -hmm. I wrote to Ben, Ben Myers, about something or other. And he wrote back and we had a correspondence for about a year. It was lovely. Like, you know, in the way that I don't think I've got any of these letters anymore. Otherwise, I I would have dug them out. But um, yeah, so so we were we were sort of pals. And then eventually, after several months, um, I was like, so how would I go about doing this? He said, well, you know, do a sample review, send it to the reviews editor, who at the time was Neil Mason. So that's Mm. what I did. I reviewed um, Boku Fish by Underworld, which was... um, uh, an album I loved very much and, and still do, yeah. which had been out for for a little while. Uh, I probably, oh, I, I, because my writing's terrible, it's worse now, but it was pretty bad then. So I think I, I typed it up all nice on my word processor and uh, sent it to, um, and sent it in. And that was on a Thursday. And then this was uh, 99. And you took it for a drink um, on Friday. <laughs> 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 Uh, no, seriously, right? So, um, so I, yeah, I sent, I sent in that review and a, a burbling letter of froth and nonsense mm. uh, to to Neil. And then on the Monday, I was um, racing to finish my final essay for my degree on on said trusty word processor. And the phone yeah. went out in the hall. It's like I don't know mid morning. And I went and picked it up, and um, there's a, a deep voice said, "Hello, it's it's Neil, it's Neil at Melody Maker." 
And of course, that's one of your mo- that's one of your moments in your life where you go, yeah, oh, yeah. yeah, yeah, fuck, amazing. And so I was like, hello, <laughs> that slightly <laughs> suspicious way, like, yes. And uh, and he said, do you want some work? Wow. And I'll never, I'll, I'll never forget that lovely sort of splutter, this sort of incredulous splutter, because he read my thing and he was really impressed. So, um, so yeah, we had a chat for, um, you know, this this obviously blew my mind, but I managed to keep it together long enough to have a chat about how we do this. And he's like, well, I'll send you a CD and you can review it. And yeah, and then and there was no one else around. This was like a shared house. There was no one else in, so I just put the phone down and stood there with with my bad self yeah. <laughs> uh, in the hallway, just going holy shit and you know that that is still that's always going to be one of those one of those great moments in my life and then i Mm. had to go back and try to apply myself to this essay which was a bit of a struggle but you know oh you must Uh, yeah you must have been floating on air because i'm yeah yeah those moments those are the moments life changes and yeah no that that rings so many bells sarah because because you you remember everything about those moments you remember the room you remember that everything yeah i'm i'm right back there now it's quite weird um so yeah and then um, I I finished my degree. I didn't even uh, I didn't uh, wait to graduate. I uh, went home to my folks in West Yorks and kind of packed a bag of you know dropped dropped off all my boxes of terrible stuff and and put some stuff in a in a hanky on a stick and and set off <laughs> for London. So were you uh, were you freelancer or on staff? I was freelance, yeah. So right. it was completely mental of me to uh, to to make that kind of leap without knowing, you know, on on the promise mm. of about thirty quid's worth of work a week. But I mm. did it. I managed, you know, because you you can do that when you're young and stupid, and you could do it in nineteen ninety nine yes. as well. Yeah. You can get yeah, away yes. with it. More, more importantly, yeah, yeah, yeah. So uh, that is not something that you know I would advise anybody does now. Um, but yeah, so that was uh, that was how that went, and. Um, do I remember? Yeah. So I just, it was, it was quite a weird, there's a slightly anticlimactic thing about going into the maker office for the first time. This is in King's Reach Tower on, um, yeah. uh, um, oh, hang on, St- Stanford, Stanford Street, isn't it? Yeah. yeah. Mm. Which is now, it's now luxury flats, just like everything else. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, but yeah, it was kind of a shabby, quite a shabby, grotty, beigey sort of office. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And, you know, and there was always music on and stuff and it's quite, there was a kind of, Nice clutter of of uh, stuff and like towers of CDs and stuff everywhere, and it was all right. It was quieter than I expected, though. I kind of thought it would be a mm. bit more, you know. By um, then it but... was. By then it was quiet. I'd never been to King's Reach Tower, but there was a fuck ton of magazines there, weren't there? There were. Yeah. There were like. Yeah. Did you ever see Thog? Thog. <laughs> yeah. Because Thog? King's Reach Tower, as all 2000 AD fans know, is actually a disguised spaceship. <laughs> Oh. Can't yeah. say I did, but yeah, the 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 other magazines there. So a, a green bloke with motorbike gloves and a big kind of like rose of Sirius on his forehead doesn't ring a bell. But the other magazines were an endless subject. I remember getting the lifts with Taylor once, and uh, we came out on the wrong floor, and yeah. we we found ourselves in the offices of What Horse magazine. Um, <laughs> it was a totally different world, but there was a box of What Horse t-shirts, and we wanted to knit one. Um, <laughs> we wanted to knit one to get Brett Anderson from Suede, who had quite an extensive heroin habit at the time, to wear one for the next feature, but we never managed it. <laughs> so you were both freelancers? At this point, I was freelancing again because I'd been um, I'd been sacked as gossip editor, which should have happened several years before, to be honest with you. But there was a few too many faxes from lawyers and stuff like that, and um, yeah, 
So I, I was back on freelance, so you might not have seen me much that year in the office. Uh, Sarah, how much time did you actually spend in the Melody Maker office? Um, oh, uh, for you know, on the on the average week. I don't know. I've been there like a couple of times a week, sort of thing. And mm. sometimes I'd be there. You know, if there was some sort of you know, if there were festivals and things, we'd end up in there, sort of. Um, you know, late at night sometimes, which was great. Uh, there was one time, because it was the 26th floor, and there was uh, one time I was there writing up some stuff, and there were fireworks going off, but I could see them from above. They were wow. all going off underneath, so that was, that was really cool. Yeah. I just want to pull up something from the website, everything2.com. Uh, a piece about Melody Maker uh, at, the, at the end point, mm. uh, written by someone called Tom Dissonance. <laughs> right. Might be one of... Team chart music, who knows? Mm-hmm. Uh, about the end, and it's as good a viewpoint as anyone's. So, Melody Maker's problems towards the end were several. They mostly stemmed from its ridiculously overzealous campaign to destroy all pop music and replace it with 80 shades of grey indie wank, i.e. promoting worthy guitar bollocks like Top Loader and Embrace over genuinely thrilling pop music. The problem was compounded by an inflammatory cover based on a parody of a Craig David album sleeve, which featured a lookalike sitting on a toilet with a constipated facial expression next to the words, UK Garage, my arse. The cover was rightfully attacked for its borderline racism and probably helped alienate a sizeable proportion of its readership. Thirdly, Melody Maker editor Mark Sutherland's sinister reinvention as a kind of indie fascist proved to be the final (laughs) straw for many. With his policing of the letters page every week by putting down all dissenters, praising those who slated chart pop and generally saying suspect things about our music and the struggle, continuing as if his readership was some kind of Hitler youth he was trying to motivate. Towards the end, it only appealed to people whose idea of alternative music was a Jamie Oliver compilation. (laughs) It was good for so long, but just before the end, it really deserved to die. Spot on. Spot on. Yeah. I I don't know if this matches up with Sarah's experiences, but it was was cheerless and joyless and kind of grim being in the office. It felt like you were being watched. Um, Mm. The smoking room was really where the truth got told. (laughs) <laughs> um, the the actual office itself was a it was cubicles of kind of tapping drone slaves really. <laughs> Not that, I'm making it sound worse than it was, but by then I was seriously disenchanted with working there, and a few things had started tipping me the wink that things were going tits up a few years before actually. Melody Maker closed mm. in 2000, but to be honest with you, as soon as Everett True was passed over for editor, and um, Mark Sutherland was made editor. Um, things just started on a downward spiral from that point. Um, editorial meetings that had previously been quite a laugh because um, I was intimidated by the office. You know, these were my heroes that I was meeting and working with. But by 97, Price had gone, Taylor had gone. They were my closest mates at the paper. And editorial meetings became, they, it was like being at school. It was like being told what was sensible. Yeah, and that your, yeah. your ideas were no good because they weren't sensible. I'll never forget a really emblematic moment for me. It was in 98, I think. And me and Carl Loban, who's a dear old mate and who's now my editor at DJ Magazine, um, we were kind of in an editorial meeting. Ronnie Size had just bought a really brilliant album out and we suggested him as front cover star. And previously, you know, that would have been discussed musically or discussed with what the angle might be. This time, we just got a blank thing from Sutherland. Um, 
black faces on the cover don't sell. And, and that was that, you know, that was that. And then I started noticing that kind of underestimation of the readership. Um, I started noticing it in the copy. Um, most importantly to me, in my bloody copy. <laughs> it was, I've, I've mentioned in the past um, the changing of things so that references that were pre-1982 had to be explained. You'd also yeah. find these really ugly explanatory clauses being inserted in all your writing. I mean, it's, it, mm. it's testament to the fact what precious little fucks we can be as writers. But I still am aggrieved over a Janet Jackson review I wrote in 98, where I think one of the lines ended, we're not in Kansas anymore. And when I read it, when it came out, it said, um, blah, 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 blah. And like Dorothy in the classic film, The Wizard of Oz, we're not in Kansas anymore. And it was just like, fuck off. Don't put my name at the bottom of that. I would not say that. I'm not talking to you like you're an idiot. Do you know what I mean? I'm talking to you directly across the table in my writing. Don't make me one of you, you cunt. And and I mean Sutherland there. I talk across. What started happening was that editorially, the writing, either talked down to the readership, and I heard some horrible scorn directed towards punters and fans from people like Sutherland when we were backstage at festivals and stuff. Uh, they either talked down to the, to the readers, or more likely, kind of talked kind of needily and pleadingly upwards to our readership. Like they were mm. gods of good taste that we were happy to serve, and we weren't going to threaten their kind of ideas about what was good music. So you yeah. uh, you remember t- you remember Al you read out that letter from uh, you know that that racist guy basically your doc mates, mates. Yes. in Sutherland's era we started kowtowing completely to that kind of attitude that Oasis dominated lad rock bullshit because we were all terrified mm. of the commercial fact of Oasis that had happened to a certain extent without without our permission um, and in general we just started generally thrashing around desperately trying to appeal to an ever dwindling re- readership flailing around you know stickers sex issues you know um djs on the cover celebrities on the cover new metal bands always always white blokes if it was musical and it felt like our paper melody maker was now in the hands of non-melody maker people and i can't really put it any any different than that it was so grim working there and when you were sent out the office because i was staffed up till about 98 99 when i was sent out the office it was to interview like i don't kill a priest fine but at the mm. London Dungeon, or Cold oh, Chamber, God. I had to take them to Hamleys at Christmas, or, what? or or Ultrasound, I had to go to fucking Legoland, you know, and and, and <laughs> it, it, it was all this colossal, real lack of trust. I've said it before; it's lack of trust between staff and editor. So mm. I'll never forget a few things with Sutherland, um, and and and. Whenever I've mentioned Sutherland, Mark Sutherland, who was the editor who killed the Melody Maker online, inevitably people come up saying, actually, he's a really nice bloke. I think you're out of order. No, fuck that. Mm. We've got enough nice blokes. I judge people on what they've done. You know what I mean? I don't care if they're polite now. I judge people on what they've done and how they were. And I remember him. The lack of trust was unbelievable. Alan Jones, our former editor, I'll never forget going to festivals, say Reading or Glastonbury. Um, as Sarah mentioned, you know, you'd come back at like... 11, uh, two, three in the morning, have to get the copy ready by seven or it'd be three grand print across every hour and stuff like that. And yeah. Jonesy trusted us. We got to the site Thursday. He went to the bar and stayed there for three days mm-hmm. and he, he trusted us to get the paper together. When Sutherland came, we'd go to festivals and he would spend the entire like three days just stomping around the site looking for us, <laughs> making sure that we were doing our job. 
cheeky if, little if he went at all if he went at if, all and, and i'll never forget being in in one of the backstage signing tents i was having a joint with taylor and um taylor wasn't actually a make arrival at the time i think you know, I, I, we just we just had some weed so we were smoking it in this and sutherland stomps up what the fuck are you doing you know <laughs> go and do this go and do that just fuck off man and that was the year, actually, that Melody Maker writers, we had to um, compare, as it were, the second stage at Reading, which was a big stage, um, yeah. meaning we had to announce the bands. Now, I was doing well, it on the Saturday. So I went up on the Friday to the second stage just to see what the other person was doing. And it, it was yeah. one of Sutherland's fucking weebles that he bought up from fucking NME to kill the paper. And um, I, I expected, you know... A vague, you know, just saying who the bands are, but no, this guy was. Are we all having a good time? Are we having a? Yeah, it was just. I couldn't do that. I I couldn't whip the crowd into a frenzy. Like, red coat, about, yeah, about fucking embrace or something. I'm not going to do that. <laughs> um, so the next morning, when it's my turn to do the stint, I remember waking up in the Marriott Hotel in Reading, drunk oh, still. Man. At about five <laughs> to eleven in the morning, I'm just thinking, shit, I'm meant to be on the second stage at eleven, you know, oh, and that's no. the first band. So a drunken stumble through Reading to get to the festival site, get backstage, all the bands are fucking hopping mad at me because because they can't start without me saying so. <laughs> and and uh, obviously for the rest of the day, my comparing skills weren't great. Um, <laughs> I remember trying to do things just off stage, you know, just having the mic, just this voice yeah. from nowhere, but I wasn't allowed to do that. Um, the only time I got a cheer was when I read the football results out because it was a Saturday afternoon. But uh. um, but it it just was a different different thing. And I I I think that year it was either ninety eight or ninety nine. That was the year I went to Glastonbury, and I say to this day I got spiked because I think I did. Um, <gasps> but um, I, Maker's Mark the whiskey had given us a crate of free bottles because of the promotional tie-in, I guess, with our name. Yeah. So we were all necking bottles of that. I was completely out of it. And um, I, I was told, anyway, that I stood near the backstage tent in Glastonbury and refused to let bands in that I didn't like. Um, <laughs> I sort of stood the, by the, the actual cultural gatekeeper there. That's it. I was stood there. Apparently, <laughs> I, said, I said to Supergrass, you're not fucking coming in. Your last album was fucking terrible. <laughs> And stuff like this, and, and then, oh. then it was, then it, my hero. Well, then it got, got, then it all got massively messy. I kind of remember getting back mm. to the hotel, um, and then all I remember is the next morning being woken up. I was in my bathtub covered in mud, and oh, um, Sutherland was fucking stood over me because I was meant to be gossip editor, you know. Um, <laughs> Sutherland was stood over me. It looked like a murder scene in that bathtub, and he was like Neil. Did you take your boots off last night? I was like, I still had them on, I think. Because apparently I'd caused £3,000 worth of damage to the carpet in this hotel by treading mud all over them. Um, and then it was like, get to the site. We need a gossip column. You know, and, and that was the year he twigged, I think. Because he, he, I remember a week after we had a meeting and he said, Neil, that entire gossip column at Glastonbury was just bullshit. You made the whole thing up. And I was like, yes, it's a gossip column. And, and pretty soon after that, I stopped being a gossip editor. Sarah oh, Ka- Sarah Kaywood got my job. Um, right. Um, and was much better at it than me. Um, oh, man. You were indie Smeeter Smitten, weren't you, for a while? <laughs> oh, yeah, I, 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 oh, it was insane. Oh, look, it's Art Brute. <laughs> but it was insane that I had that job. I was a kid from Coventry. I wasn't going to parties in London that much. But, no. but it was insane I had that job in the first place. But Sutherland... 
was just a cunt. I'm sorry, there's no other way of putting it. He was a prick in the way he dealt with people. He he mm. he just created bad bad vibes. So so the office in 2000, I could already tell the magazine was on its way out. You could yeah. tell you could tell when it transferred to a kind of smaller size, got glossy. It was just a terrible terrible magazine. I, I'd had sort yeah. of premonitions of that from 97, but 2000 was just fucking shit for shit for <sighs> the paper, but especially shit if like me you'd grown up and this was your bible you know this was your touchstone this was your wednesday lift this was your this was everything and to see it just shat on and stained and and its memory its 70 odd year memory just defiled in the way that happened so rapidly um was just really really upsetting i've got a copy of melody maker from this month Mm. and uh when it came through the lightbox i was shocked and appalled (laughs) it's a Fucking indie lads smash it. Mm. But it's not even that. It's it's an indie lads record mirror or number one. Well, an indie lads smash it is spot on. That's what they were trying to be. Yeah, but you can't. Yeah, but it didn't have it. It it, it didn't have smash hits. Had such great anarchic wit. Yeah, and mm. such a it had its own thing. Like I won't. Uh, you know, smash hits is always used as this kind of shorthand for sort of. Uh, you know, trashy content, and it really wasn't. It had real intelligence in it, and so the the maker had had none of that by this point. And you know, I felt incredibly conflicted and and kind of messed up about it because obviously this was what I really what I wanted to do. And when I yeah. got there, it's like, oh fuck, I don't belong here after all. Like there was that kind of weird car crash of of, of stuff in my head of like, well, I can actually do this, and yet mm. I kind of now I don't want to, and I feel like I have to go around. You know, we would go around like apologising for it. There was yeah, a great camaraderie yeah. that arose out of, you know, it was a kind of trenches thing of, mm. of we all kind of, or most of us. I mean, there were people, there were there were people who were kind of on board with the, you know, the, the Sutherland um, regime. And, you know, they, uh, there was kind of a divide, I think, between people who were and people who weren't. And we all got on okay, but it was a bit weird. Mm. Yeah. Neil, what you were saying about about trust and like the breakdown of it, that happened across various different axes, I think, um, where there was this kind of yeah, the breakdown of trust between um between the, the, the publication and its audience. Partly because that audience didn't actually they were going for an audience that didn't actually exist. They yeah. kind of focus yeah. grouped it to fuck until and to, into the point of meaninglessness. Where it's like, well, we want to go for a younger audience to differentiate because it was supposed to I don't know if people know this, but it was uh, IPC also published NME. Um, mm. They decided um, at this point not to. I mean, I'm sure that there were discussions about shutting the maker down for years before mm-hmm. before it mm-hmm. happened. But what they decided to do is is give it one more go, basically run it into the ground. Was yeah. what they did. Yeah, yeah. Um, but it was mm-hmm. like, well, let's try to split the. It's too similar to the audience of NME. Uh, let's kind of uh, you know pe- peel it off. But it's like we're going for a sort of this nebulous. It's younger audience. And it's an audience that doesn't know this, this, and this. And it's blah, blah. Mm. And they, these people didn't really exist. And what you have to do if you are a publication is um, you have to lead. You you suggest, you go, how about this then? And then people yeah. buy into it or they don't. But there's that you have to have that confident voice of going, trust me, this is good. You'll like it. Or if you don't, we can have a Barney about it. Yeah. And that got lost because you were, you know, it was kind of like you said, there was that thing of like both talking down and, mm. and wheedling and so that's nobody likes that. Even the thing is that what I what I learned from this is that even <laughs> even idiots don't like to be patronised. You know, <laughs> no, it's absolutely. like if you're going for people who are really into fucking limp biscuit or whatever, um, they still don't they still don't want to be talked down to. And yeah, so that's right. a rare skill to do that. But also like within the the within the publication itself, 
um, yeah, that people were very wary of of um, of Sutherland. I mean, he was my first boss, basically, and I I didn't know what to make of him. Really, I didn't. He wasn't. He wasn't very friendly. He wasn't very encouraging. I mean, I had you know the the sort of encourage. You know, everybody was was uh, was was cool, but I was basically on on my own. I didn't feel like it was a very. Uh, it wasn't like a, a. It's like oh, I'll I'll learn. I'll I'll learn on the job and I'll you know and I kind of did but I sort of scrabbled to do it the whole time. Mm. It wasn't a very encouraging environment. I did actually go for a staff job that I didn't really want. I just thought it was something I should do. I went for the news assistant job, which would have meant the the great thing about that would have been uh working with with uh, the great Carol Clerk who was, oh, you know, uh, what, 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 ma- what an amazing woman. Yeah, um, what fantastic cantankerous but the thing, um, is with, the thing is with Carol, Sarah, I remember one really late festival where she had to drive the bus. And I remember coming, <laughs> I remember coming into the office sort of a few days later and the look on her face as, as to what had gone on and just how appalled she was at what was going on. She was an absolute touchstone for me. The, uh, one of the few yeah. people in the office who just understood how, how bad things were getting. And, and it's because, Sarah, the, re- the reason you didn't get on with Sutherland, the reason none of us got on with Sutherland, was because he hated fucking writers. His yeah. main relationship editorially with Melody Maker was with publishers and with marketeers, these pusillanimous fucking pie-chart-wielding cunts who, mm-hmm. who, who ran us into the fucking ground. And, and I wasn't there the day that Melody Maker closed. And the day that all the chairs were put up on the tables and the computers were taken and this venerable oh, institution man. of music publishing was just destroyed. I, yeah, came I was back, there. I'll get into it later. Uh, oh, Sorry. I ca- well, I, I mean, I came back to a haunted office. And to be honest, I was glad to see the paper put out of its misery because it was yeah, yeah. it was just so grim there. But what was, you know, I, I know how long ago this was, 20 odd years ago now. But It's but, nearly 20 years ago. Nearly 20 years ago, sorry. But... Um, I, and I should probably not still bear a grudge, but fuck me, I really do still bear a grudge. Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. I'm not no. going to forget, and I'm not going to forgive, because what was really galling was that these fuckers, all these marks that came up from the enemy to save us, um, when we once they'd done their work, i.e. fuck us over, these agents from downstairs, and I still think they were agents from downstairs, sent up to destroy <laughs> us, they, they all slipped back downstairs. You know, they were fine. Yeah. Yeah. Um, th- uh, but we're fucked. And I think it was a, a, a cultural crime. And that might seem like an overstatement. I'm certainly not saying the maker could have carried on indefinitely with the very low sales figures that we had towards the end. But I think it was a deliberate corporate move to let the enemy, the brand leader, win through and mm. dominate. And I just yeah. wish we hadn't gone out like that. Um, yeah, the, the, yeah, the, yeah. That, that pathetic withered stain on our memory. In my stupider moments, I do wish I'd been made editor because I would have taken that mag down in flames. I, I would have, I would have, <laughs> you know, and, and I would have absolutely reversed that editorial stance of being so scared of black pop and, and I would have reversed it and I would have perhaps, yeah, yeah. It, it to me, what's heartbreaking watching this episode, for instance, is that we never got a cracker so solid crew. We never got a crack at, you know, what was about to happen that we could have put front and centre. Better that than the kind of needy whimper that we went out on. And like Sarah says, we started kowtowing to the stupidest elements of our readership. And even they didn't like being patronised. We started kowtowing to the kind of idiots that when they open a magazine and a survey falls out, they fill it in. (laughs) We we started kowtowing to those fucking people. So... 
you know, it, it, I, I, I can't stop, help but get fucking furious about it. Not because of what was destroyed necessarily, but the future possibility that was just just destroyed in the process. We could have been so good and we were undermined um, from within. Um, all the writing staff of that paper were undermined from within and destroyed. Um, I will never fucking forget, forgive Mark Sutherland. And, and I don't care if these people are people's mates. Mark Beaumont, there's several others who... who and they were enemy people and they should have fucking stayed there. It, yeah, it's, yeah, the, um, yeah. Sorry, I, I'm, sorry, I'm, sorry, Sarah. <laughs> I'm still here, by the it's way. All right, sorry, yeah. everyone. <laughs> it's all right, mate. I'm with, I'm completely with you. Um, yeah, it's, yeah, it's too. the, look, I mean, I'm quite an amiable sort. I generally, we, you know, with, 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 uh, <laughs> in general, but yeah, I, I did not, I, I felt pretty hard done by that this was my uh, this was my deal this was my maker when I finally got there and this is what I found is that it was you know I mean I've always d- compared it to like you show up at the party and it seems like it's it seems like it's still kicking and then you realize after half an hour um, you know everyone is absolutely fucked someone's been sick in the bath the cops are at the door it's you know yeah. it, it's over it's over man um, but yeah the, those editorial meetings were definitely they were like death and I had kind yeah. of hoped for something more you know if i'd thought about it at all i mean i had no idea how these things worked before i got there but it was like oh is this is this it is this it and also is this how um what people might not understand is that you know when uh, you know you you write and you and then it's printed and it seems very definitive but there are a lot of different versions of there are possible different versions of each piece and possible different versions of you as a writer Mm. that have to be shaped and nurtured by yeah. Yeah, yeah. by the environment of a publication, and it's great what you can you can form of you know there's house style is a thing, but it can be such a wonderful mysterious thing where there's a, a plethora of different voices, but everyone kind of is of a mind in a yeah. particular way, mm. in the sense that you you know you you all have a kind of shared sensibility. You're all yeah. there for basically the same reasons. I mean, there is a division between um, uh, music fans who can write. And writers who are into music, and I was definitely the latter. Hmm. Um, so I I knew that I was going to be la- lagging slightly on the music on the music knowledge front, but I would you know you can always research that you can you know you can pick it up, and hmm. at the same and then you kind of you hang around with with music fans, and so that it rubs off on you, and you rub off on them, and everybody influences each other, and that's a that's a healthy kind of editorial ecosystem, and that was breaking down, and I felt like I couldn't. I had this sense of like you know, you need to develop as a writer and it's like, I'm not going to be able to do it here and I'm going yeah. to end up um, writing things that even I don't really believe and I don't yeah. really agree yeah, yeah. with because it's like, well, you have mm. to get enthusiastic about stuff. And I yeah. can, I, you know, I, I was still forming my uh, my taste really, even though I, you, you have it, you have your, your taste as a kid, but then that was, you know, I was a pop kid and then you kind of go, okay, mm. well now, I, now I'm, this is, uh, I have to be into this now in a particular way and you couldn't just slag everything off and some of it so you know you kind of go with the flow but you end up going ah i do i really think this do i really like this as much as i'm saying i like it or am i just supposed to and that's not healthy because you start you start that's disingenuous you know we were led by bad writers sutherland was a shit writer he couldn't communicate the excitement of pop 
he he mistook exclamation marks and stuff like that as being down with the kids. Oh, and, and, God, and, yeah, and, I know. And he, I know. I know people like that. Yeah, he he, he was a terrible, terrible writer. I mean, I know I, I I didn't have precognitive powers or anything, but I remember a feature that I did, and it's actually it's actually the feature that to this day I sort of remain most proud of in a sense. It was an interview with Marilyn Manson that I did in I think '97. And uh, Marilyn Manson was one of the smartest pop people I've ever met. And I got a really good interview out of him, asked him serious questions and wrote the piece up accordingly. And um, almost immediately um, pulled into the office, Mark Sutherland, Neil, can you just knock this stuff out, this this philosophy stuff and this stuff? And, uh, to, to, you know, I, I was a cocky, arrogant cunt back then. I possibly still am, but, but I just... I, <laughs> I, 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 I made minimum changes. I didn't knock anything out and I knocked it back to him and it just got through because it was close to deadline day. But it, it was just tipping me the wink. No, we don't want intelligence. We want to pretend to be as dumb as we think our readership are. And it was just wrong-headed yeah. on all counts. Yeah. yeah. Do you shag loads of girls? <laughs> yeah. 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 Do you do drugs? It's just... Drugs are great, aren't and they? And it made us look needy. It made us look like we were we were these needy, nerdy sort of sideline watchers of pop that we weren't mm. part of it, and and that we weren't that our opinions weren't valid, and all we could fucking do is cheerlead. And as we'll see when yeah. we look at bits from Melody Maker, if we do over the course of this episode, the the tone is one that is just not Melody Maker. It, it's it's not funny. It's not funny. Well, while you were going through all that shit, I was, oh, I, I, I was, I think I was possibly at the peak of my career. I'd been poached from AOL a few months earlier by Paul Raymond himself. And at this time, I was the manager of the Paul Raymond internet service provider. Ooh. For £20 or so a month, you could get um, dial-up connection, uh, some extremely tame photos of tits from the mags, and... Most importantly, a razzle.co.uk email address. Ooh. Yeah. <laughs> Always wanted to work in Soho. Every time I came down to London in the 80s, I'd go to Carnaby Street and I'd walk around Soho and go, yeah, one day I'm going to be mm-hmm. here. Yeah, this, is, yeah, yeah. this is the centre of the fucking universe. Yeah. And there I was. And it was, it was brilliant. It was the best commute in the world because I was living in West Dulwich at the time uh, with my, my mate Ricky Clean. And uh, I'd I'd just get on the bus outside my house and read a book for about 50 minutes and right outside my office. Just the fucking dream commute for London. Mm. I had my own office. I had a secretary. But it it just wasn't for me, man. I, 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 I... I wasn't. I couldn't be a suit behind a desk, man. My my place was on the streets of porn, and all my mates. You know, I had mates who were working there, uh, but they were like two floors up, and you know, I, I couldn't go and fuck about with them half as much as I wanted to. And uh, I, I knew it, it just wasn't going to last. Mm. Everyone just assumed that the, the internet was going to shit out money all over their faces. And it, it clearly wasn't just yet. <laughs> Only saw Paul Raymond once. He'd basically, he'd basically become a recluse mm. ever since the early 80s when his daughter died. And uh, he came in once and he was like Tom Baker's great granddad. <laughs> Had this really long scarf. Got the feeling he didn't really know what was going on anymore, but it was like, oh my god, you're fucking Paul Raymond. You own, mm. you own all this. Well, I mean, didn't have a clue what was going on anymore. That a lot of people in publishing didn't know what the fuck was going on anymore. No, that, that, that no. panic uh, post internet mm. uh, was just palpable yes. everywhere. 
And uh, yeah. a panic about, I mean, that obviously percolated through to the papers that we work for as well. Um, just didn't know what to do about it. Have you got an internet? You know. <laughs> and... Do you, do you remember Neil? Do you remember the uh, the Melody Maker website? Oh God, I remember there was one, but um, I don't remember what it would look like. It was melodymaker.co.uk, and mostly what it had uh, um, was just because enemy.com was was well up and running and was a was a thing at the time, um, not what it has what it has become, which is hilarious. But um, yeah, it was um, yeah it was it was just this shabby, dreary little kind of nineties forum kind of thing that was mainly that was like the as far as i recall the front page was just a forum oh. and it was just full of people slagging off melody make yeah yeah, yeah. <laughs> and that was all it was of people complaining about it and you know and this is actually how i got to learn a lot of the stuff about the inner workings of it is that i ended up uh, i responded to somebody who had written this very eloquent unusually eloquent uh you know here is why it's going wrong mm. this is what they're doing blah 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 and i was like bloody hell and i was kind of like I know we know we're doing our best. You know we don't like it either, and we ended up getting into a chat. It turned out to be um, uh, the writer Eamon Ford, who um, was at the time doing um, a PhD on the decline of uh, music journalism in this country. Oh, and I ended up, and he t- he taught me a lot of things that I didn't necessarily want to know. And mm. um, he, but you know, it was all useful information. And uh, he ended up quoting me in it actually because I was kind of a useful mm. source, you know. Um, yeah. So uh, yeah, I've I've got my name in the British Library, I think, because it's in that PhD. Um, so yeah, that was a that was in unexpected. A, in, um, in a previous thing. more un- enlightened age, you would have hired him if he was articulate on our forum. We would have hired him on yeah. the spot. But it was just yeah. it was just panic on, at that point. It was just total panic about the internet, but yeah. also about what magazines were being successful. Things like Heat. Yeah absolutely shut everyone up uh, because yes. they were covering music yeah they were covering film as well they were covering tv and they were covering celebrity in a way that we yeah. weren't and that was obviously being massively popular we tried to do the same and we always got it really really wrong yeah i mean it was a dark time for the specialist magazine wasn't mm. it yeah it was it was but if you actually hauled in your fucking sales and hung on there and continued to that's the thing is there was no willingness to dig in people would just fucking fold you know that's what we did is we just went ah um but you know people like uh you know yeah. the specialist mags are the ones that that survived you know because yeah. they they hung on in there Kerrang survived yeah because they had a yeah. you know it's that that's you've got yeah. a faithful you don't have like this kind kind of like you need to hang on to that faithful crowd and it's like you have to trust that they're there and that's not what we did yeah yeah you can't have faith in what you're good at and we we just didn't no so we just flailed about Mm. But at the same time, I was also um, freelancing like a bastard for for loads of proper magazines that didn't have so many fannies in it. Mm. I was writing for Maxim and Minx, and I just started doing bits and bobs for Sky. And uh, and actually, this was the only time that I'd ever done anything resembling music journalism because Maxim would send me round to talk to uh, to the pop songstresses mm. of the time. I'd done a, an interview with Kalise when she did Caught Out There. Mm. And it was my first interview with anybody from the from the music scene, and it was just too good. Mm-hmm. It was too good to be fucking true, because mm. Maxim, you know, it's like they only want about 50 words. So, you know, that's that's 10 minutes. But yeah. I got a whole hour with her in this massive room in, um, oh, God, Notting Hill, where Virgin still had their offices. Yeah. 
And so, you know, I could have just got up and walked out. But we ended up having a proper chit-chat about hip-hop. Mm. And she was fucking mint. Yeah, yeah. And at one point, she had the, the most massive pop star cup of tea I've ever seen in my life. <laughs> you could have drowned someone in it quite easily. And uh, at one point, she knocked the tea over my uh, my shoes. I went down to wipe it off. And she said, no, 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 don't you dare. <laughs> and she got down on her hands and knees and pulled out a handkerchief. <gasps> And she's carrying on the interview while she's, oh, uh, uh, you know, wiping the tea off my shoes and everything. It's like, oh, this is odd. Wow. What? <laughs> this is it. This <laughs> well, is brilliant. She it, was fucking brilliant. What, what's, what's heartbreaking for me is that the people, I mean, obviously, once Melody Maker closed, from 2000 onwards, I had to specialise myself, in yes. a sense. I had to start writing for metal mags and hip-hop yeah. mags. So I was interviewing people like Missy and Timberland and people mm. like that, and I would have just loved to have made them front cover stars of The Maker, but The Maker no longer existed. I was still tangentially aware of, of chart pop, and I loved it, but I was really unable to write about it, you know, yeah. in the pages of Terrorizer magazines or, so, or something. thing is about Khalees and other people I interviewed, you got the feeling that you were getting a, a bit of a better level of access than I would have done if I was at Melody Maker, even. Yeah. Simply because yeah. The, yeah. the sales figures were bigger. We would have taken Khalees to fucking Flamingo Land. <laughs> oh, oh, oh. Yeah, because well, yeah, it's like I, I thought about because I loved that album. That first album was so was so wild and amazing. Kaleidoscope, and, um, yeah. Yeah, and it's like there was no room to even raise that kind of idea. I think it's, I mean, credit to Enemy for p- putting no. Khalees on. They, they did put Khalees on the cover, didn't they? Um, but, I mean, it was mm. like how... It was so. It seemed so far away from anything that you could even suggest. It's just like there was this kind mm. of oppressive atmosphere about what was okay and what wasn't okay, and it was just she, she was just yeah. kind of in mm-hmm. in a different realm, in like a better realm. That and yeah. we were, you know, we just. It's not that you even would have got laughed out of an editorial meeting for suggesting it, and it's not. It, I, I, I'm not saying that I was even, you know, I was in that position. I was quite timid, you know, but. Um, yeah, it mm. just wouldn't have just wouldn't have washed, really, would it? I mean, none of this. Yeah. It's like women. It was hard to. It was all. Uh, it was hard to get women. It was hard. It was even harder to get black people. And so, yeah, just wasn't room. But also, on the other hand, I did start to realise that we, it, it wasn't as glamorous as I thought it was going to be with other artists. I mean, <laughs> you know, you'd go and see someone like Mystique. Mm. You'd turn up at a hotel and you'd sit in a lobby for an hour or so with someone from every other magazine in London at the time. Mm. Yeah. And you were yeah, essentially yeah, yeah. waiting for your 10 minutes to, to, mm. to be given the opportunity to ask the same fucking questions that uh, everyone else had asked that day already. Oh, it's death. Yeah. I hate that. Uh, I mean, Maxim was, was a lad mag, but it was, it was the best lad mag to work on because they paid really fucking well and mm-hmm. most of the staff were fucking brilliant. You know, really nice people. But it was always women you interviewed... And they always wanted to know, you know, certain things that didn't have anything to do with with yeah. their. With their yeah, pro- yeah. I mean, one of the first jobs I did, and I think it was with Maxim, was interviewing Jennifer Ellison, who just started on um, on Brookside, and I had to go to this studio in, I think it was Camden, on a Saturday morning, and she was doing the photo shoot at the same time, which was your standard, you know, bikini shot, hand, you know, hands down the mm-hmm. knickers. Um, fake porn shit and she's sitting there being interviewed in a bikini and she was really nice you know she was just this just this kid from Liverpool who mm. you know seen an advert uh, on the notice board at a college 
um, to, to audition for, for Brookside. And she got it. And she's there going, oh, everyone's so nice. And I can't believe I've done this. And I'm sitting there going, oh, you're really nice. And I've got to ask you uh, what knickers you wear on a date. Or if you ever snogged yeah, anyone yeah. a tax. Or if, you, if you've ever passed out in a club. And it was like, you know, I felt grubbier doing that than any grot thing I did. Well, no matter what came out in that interview, you know that the pop-out quote on the yes, double-page spread exactly, would yeah. be about her underwear or something yeah, like yeah, yeah. that. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And you also knew, you know, whatever you wrote was the was the sprig of parsley on the side of the big plate of a of a photo. Yeah, yeah. So, yeah, that was pretty much me. Uh, Music-wise, the fucking The Holy Trinity of 2000 was Kaleidoscope by Khalees, uh, Mama's Gun by Erica Badu, and of course, Voodoo by D'Angelo, which got played endlessly in my head. Mm-hmm. 2000 mm-hmm. was a fucking great year for music. Yeah, it was. And of course, you know, as this episode was going out on a Friday, because yeah, let's not forget we're supposed to be talking about an episode of Top of the Pops here, because <laughs> it's going out on a Friday, as it has done since June of 1996. There is absolutely no fucking way I'm watching this. I'm 32 years old. I'd either be at around my house with me mates playing Mario Kart or I'd be out on the piss with my new media chums, or most likely I'd be around Jiggy G's house in Hampton, uh, having a big curry and watching back-to-back <laughs> Monday Night Raw and Monday Night Raw on satellite. Wrestling was far Fr- more interesting Friday than, night uh, was than music at the time, to me for the top of the top, as I think we previously discussed. And I, I certainly wasn't watching it by yes. this point. I was out and about. Yes, we had, yeah. Um, and uh, the, the, the kind of... Mm. upsetting thing really is because I actually had not seen this episode before that we're going to talk about and it it started me at how no. good it was and how good it could have been and and how for it to make the best kind of sense yeah it has to be in that shared moment where families are watching telly Friday night is not one of those moments Friday night at seven people are getting ready to go out and, and families are spread out a no. little bit um, a shared moment with yeah. this episode would have actually been great but it, it wasn't going to happen on a Friday night yeah yeah. So before we let Melody Maker go for a minute, let's let's immerse ourselves in August of two thousand a little bit more uh, with oh, the latest issue of Melody Maker that's on the shelves. I tr- did try to get this week's one. I, the, the the only one I could get at mm-hmm. such short notice was the one the week afterwards. But hey, you know, it's <laughs> Melody Maker two thousand. It's all the fucking same, mm-hmm. isn't it? So. The front cover stars are a cutout montage of Brian Molko of Placebo, Fred Durst of Limp Biscuit, Kelly Jones of Stereophonics, Chino Marino of Deftones, and Tom DeLong of Blink 182. Is it 182 or 182? Who gives a fuck? 182. <laughs> 182, I believe, but Thank um, you. but also who gives a fuck? Yeah. The strap line. Here Fucking comes the hell, best really? weekend of your life. Reading and Leeds <laughs> massive calling weekend preview. Other cover lines: V two thousand, Travis, Coldplay, and Liam came too. Oh, here comes Liam. <laughs> the Offspring reveal all about their new album. The Bloodhound Gang storm the UK. Mm. In the news section, the main story. Will this weekend be the end of Oasis? There are no plans for the band after they play Leeds, and it is understood that they will be holding a make or break summit. Fucking hell, conjuring fuck all that. Meanwhile, 
Yes. Yes. <laughs> Meanwhile, Noel Gallagher's guest appearance at the end of Paul Weller's set at V2000 in Chelmsford is cancelled <laughs> when organisers pull the plug the minute he walks on stage and straps on his guitar, claiming that they are already cutting into headliner Richard Ashcroft's stage time. Oh, dear. Eminem has filed for divorce from the wife he's done all them raps about. In the big issue section where the stars speak out, Lauren Laverne is asked about the naming and shaming of paedophiles. Her opinion, thumbs down. Knowing where people who rape kids are, good. Driving them underground, bad. Jesus Christ. Bonnie Langford tries to lamp Chris Morgs at a Radio 1 event and Melody oh, Maker's sales figures have gone up to an average of 32,000 oh, a week. Oh, no. oh, big time. Yeah. We were constantly told that we needed improvement. But when me, Taylor, Everett, Pricey were writing most of the fucking paper, we were selling 60, 70, you know? So. Really? <sighs> sorry. Sorry, I'm sure. <laughs> Inside the paper, it's essentially a huge advert for Reading and Leeds and Carling, the main sponsors. Stereophonics take us through their most important gigs, while Blink whatever the fuck they are tell us that they don't like looking at men's arses. Well, great. <laughs> Fucking hell. But looking at men's arses is one of the great pleasures in life, whoever you are. <laughs> you know, they're, they're just missing out. Clown, out of Slipknot, believes that the Gallagher brothers are offensive to women and wants to wrestle naked with them and eventually eat them. Uh, that's more like it. Dom of Muse talks about having the squits in Paris, and Fred Durst <laughs> talks about being in the Navy. The Deftones whittle on about how wild and crazy they are on the road. Brian Molko approves of Clown of Slipknot eating Nolan Liam, and there's an eight-page poster supplement featuring Jarvis Cocker, King Adora, the Bloodhound Gang having a tug of war, Sophie Ellis Spexter, Idlewild and Rage Against the Machine. Christ. They're getting a lot of memories from this, Al, because most of the names <laughs> Sorry, you've mentioned... Man. No, it's just most of the names you've mentioned I did interview at some point. Yeah. Um, Tones are okay. Um, never really went for the Blink-182 Green Day side of things because I, I once nearly blew out a Green Day cover feature for the maker at the time um, mm. because 10 minutes before they were going to do the interview, um, they'd read a review that I'd written of them um, in the Melody Maker, wherein I'd called them necrophiles, and they <laughs> they were kind of refusing to be interviewed by the maker. A lot of these people that you're talking about um, were getting suddenly very big. Fred Durst, in particular, and he just yeah. reappears all fucking year. I was sent out twice to Los Angeles to interview Fred Durst. The first time was before the album come out, and they were kind of little bit known. They weren't that famous, but I interviewed him. Um, at the Sky Bar, um, Sky Bar in the Mondrian Hotel in Los Angeles on Sunset Strip, and it was he was a lovely right. bloke, lovely bloke. Um, and then two months later, the album just went stellar, and the feature yeah. that I had sent in, which had kind of been spiked, um, they they suddenly said, Neil, you've got to go back out and interview him um, to to mop up this feature. So I went back out, and this time he had been then made because of the success of the album. He'd been made CEO of Interscope Records. He'd, he'd been like given this cosmetic right. role there. So I went up to the twenty six. No, it wasn't the twenty six floor. That's mainly like it. I went up to like a, a stupid penthouse suite at Interscope Records, and there he is, the same nice bloke that I'd met 
But overnight almost, he turned into this, this arrogant blue vein dick, just with his feet up on Ugh. this leather desk, smoking a cigar, pitching demos into a bin unheard. Um, he was just wow. a, he just become a cunt overnight, and and I just saw that happen countless times with a lot of the names that you've mentioned. Yeah, I I had oh. such a I never met him myself, and uh, nor did I get flown out to LA even once. But um, <laughs> you know, I'm not bitter. Um, but yeah, I um, uh, he was just such a he was so emblematic of of the maker in its shiny, mm. fucking shitty eyes owl form, you know. Mm. And he was very there seemed to be this kind of. Um, uh, this kind of synergistic relationship between Limp Biscuit and, and Mark Sutherland, yeah, and, and the Bloodhound Gang as well were, were kind of were in that mix as well. That was the, he, he was sort of like the the sort of meathead figurehead of the mm. whole thing, mm-hmm. um, and I felt like every single it was almost like every other week he, his his mug was on the cover, yeah. and he was and in that fact really the very last stupidly tight baseball cap. <laughs> oh, what what that. a rub! I mean, he just looked like such a pillock if he took that off he, the strappy thing at the front would be just embedded into his skin for the <laughs> <laughs> yeah I, yeah that, that's there's no amount of uh, you know uh, sort of uh, you'd be there in the mirror just going cut it off and rubbing yeah. it but yeah um I, I think they were actually he was on the uh, the cover of the very last issue of the maker yes the christmas issue that we all bust our asses over yeah um and yeah um, so what a way to go out. Mm. Out like a sucker. The gig guide. In London, Sarah could have seen three ants riot, an Ikara cult at the Dublin Castle, Primal Scream at the Forum, Queens of the Stone Age at the Highbury Corner, and direct action against overpopulation at the Notting Hill Arts Club. If I was back round my mum's in knots for the week, I could have availed myself of Dot Allison at the social and top loader at Rock City, while Neil would have had to have made do with Peter and the test tube babies at the hand and heart in Coventry. (laughs) Oh, that's mad. I didn't know I was born. So weird that you mentioned a hand and heart. A hand and heart, that year, I met the drummer and bass player who I would eventually be in a band with until now. It's 20 mm. years ago now, but, um, and I'll never forget the night we met, Eddie Tempole Tudor was playing and right. he suddenly burst in on our meeting. He was having, uh, like, he was, he was in danger of falling into a diabetic coma and he needed sugar urgently. Oh, shit. Um, so we had to sort him out because my mate ran the gigs there. That's so oh, weird. What a small world. Has anyone, anyone got a wonder bar? <laughs> The singles are being reviewed this week by Shed7. And they pick out You Cut Her Hair by Tom McRae as single of the week, while calling music by Madonna as sounding like an old biddy trying to do what the young kids want, and deeming Just Hold On by Top Loader as this week's absolute stinker. In the album section, Sing When You're Winning by Robbie Williams gets three and a half out of five, while Born To Do It by Craig David gets two. From the chart music contributors, well, it's just two people standing. Sarah is all over this issue, nipping over to Paris to talk to Tahiti Ate, watching the Cuban boys be really shit in the Melody Maker Darts League. Describing Underworld at V2000 as sex, shopping, love, God and lager. Describing another (laughs) mellow summer by mellow as a bit like floating in a sea of pims. And having a brief chat with Dum Dums who two in their set at V2000 and their support gig of Bon Jovi on the same day. Neil's sole contribution to this issue is a one-star review of Papa Roach's new LP, Infest, which he states makes him feel like he's being blown by a guy with a beard, 
Jesus. And it's a shit storm of arse. <laughs> Fucking hell. Oh, God. Oh, memories are made of this. <laughs> that darts league thing went on for fucking ages, didn't it? Oh, I loved doing the darts. I mean, I can't play darts myself. I, I don't know one end of a fucking dart from another, but it was great. You get to go to... It was... Because it, obviously, as you said, we it was generally like you couldn't just sit and straight interview somebody. It always had to be a... a mm, there, no. there always had to be some sort of framing device involving some uh, humiliation all around. But darts were really good. You just go there, you do the darts, you chat in between... And it was great. It was just a relaxing way. People would be relaxed about it. And it was great because I did it with the clinic mm. as well around this time. And they were great. And yeah. yeah, the Cuban boys who actually ended up being good pals of mine, uh, they were they were just ace. They were always really good value. And uh, yeah, it was that. Um, I love doing the dots. I love doing the singles as well. Um, as I've said before, yeah. I'm sure the... Uh, did I do the singles with Shed 7 that time? Was that me? Or was that someone else? No. I think they did it more than once. Um, yeah. Yeah. But um, it was always really interesting to hear musicians talk about other other musicians and their work mm. and there was such a spectrum of how they'd approach it and some of them would be very sort of offhand and very you know and others would get really nerdy and so and others were yeah. others were twats of course you'd always get twats um but yeah who was the biggest twat in the singles review then Ben Folds 5 by a country oh, mile. Shame. Yeah, sorry. Well, I think they were really hung over. They just played the Albert Hall mm. the night before and I had to go up to, I think it was Nottingham, actually. I think it All was right. Nottingham. And I had to schlep up there and interview them and they were very hung over and pissed off. And it was just before Christmas. And they were in Nottingham. Though. It was. <laughs> um, and it, there, were only, there were only two of them. Um, so it was Ben Folds and, and one of the others. And they were just very grumpy, very shitty, mm. very monosyllabic. And I'm sure I've gone into this before, so excuse me if I have, but I had to just make a very meta joke out of the entire thing because they didn't give me enough material to, to do it. Yeah. So I just had to take the piss and uh, they ended up just trailing off into silence and I was mortified. It was so hard. Um, but they they just kept going. It was like, well, it's good, but it's not valid. Like they were just writing everything off as like, not. it's not artistically valid. So, and I was just like, I, I please give me something. Um, you know, the number yeah. of times, and I, I, I had to, I actually, you know, turned off the, turned off my trusty dictaphone and went and had a little cry in the toilets. It was that bad. Um, oh no. That was the but absolute the, worst. I think by that point, um, indicative of the lack of trust uh, of the writers, writers weren't allowed to do singles columns anymore, anymore. That every yeah. week it had to be a band doing it. Yeah, yeah. So, which is a shame. I mean, I know something's gained, but it, they could have alternated or something. I used to love doing the singles column and I used mm. to love reading mm. the singles column. Vital part of a pop paper, I think. Mm. Um, but yeah, it had been kind of farmed out at that point to bands. We got to do a little bit. I think we got to do like a little roundup sort of sidebar right, of, right, the, right, of right. the extra bits. I, I seem to right. recall because, uh, yeah, I definitely slagged something off and then got into trouble when I saw them out. They were like, Oi, what have you been saying? It's like, <laughs> I'm really sorry. I forget that these things have consequences, you know. So what else was on telly this day? Well, BBC One starts the day at 6am with Breakfast News, followed by Godzilla, Smart Guy, Exchange, Little Monsters, Teletubbies and The Tweenies. Then it's Heartbreak High, followed by Quotation Marks, the wordy quiz show chaired by Vanessa Feltz. Then the travel show Passport to the Sun with Lisa Tarbuck. After the news, it's Neighbours, Diagnosis Murder and Through the Keyhole. Then it's back to the kids show with the tweenies again, Fly Tales, Anthony Ant, Chuckle Vision, Smart Heart, Steps to the Stars, 
in a talent show hosted by Steps, Newsround and Annie Morphs. After a repeat of Neighbours, it's the news, regional news in your area, and they've just finished an episode of the medical soap opera Doctors. BBC Two kicks off at 7am with a splurge of kids' programmes, including Playdays, Tasmania, Tom and Jerry Kids, Clever Creatures and Bruno the Kid, before Kilroy goads people into having an (laughs) argument. Simon Biagi tries to make a kitchen in Birmingham look a bit less shit in real rooms. And David Dickinson says Bobby Dazzler a lot in Leicestershire in Bargain Hunt. The 1948 Humphrey Bogart film Treasure of the Sierra Madre is aired at 11, then it's Little Bear, Barney and 10 minutes of household tips in home front tricks before the 1944 war movie The Master Race. After the news, John Fashanu (laughs) and Felix Dexter talk about being black and British in Esther, then it's Ready Steady Cook, Ken Holmes Hot Wok and Rick Stein Foragers for Free Ingredients in London in fresh food. After a double bill of The Simpsons, they're currently halfway through a repeat of The Fresh Prince of Bel-Air. ITV begins at half five with the news, then GMTV, Trisha! The Danielle Steele TV film Full Circle, the news, a repeat of Amadale, then the Aussie soap Shortland Street, a repeat of Minder, more news, Barney and Busker greetings from space, Moppertop Shop, Dream Street, Digimon, Foxbusters, On Safari, and You've Been Framed Again, after regional news in your area and the national news. Then it's High Road, and the minute this episode of Top of the Pop starts, Deirdre is about to slake a cruel revenge on Mike Barlow in Coronation Street. Mm. You're very fond of uh, the image of uh, Deirdre snogging Dev, aren't you, Neil? I am. Um, (laughs) You know, for, for, for obvious reasons... Um, yeah. it's just the heat of that image it's undeniably yes. arousing um, <laughs> yeah. I have been mistaken for Dev quite a few times in my life actually <laughs> yeah. um, by, by random straight I mean especially when Dev was a big prominence in Corrie I got it a lot I got, I got, I got really? yeah well I remember returning a coat to Debenhams once and the woman behind the counter was just staring at me intently <laughs> throughout this <laughs> transaction and then she, she said are you and I said Dev from Coronation Street. She goes, "Yes, are you?" And I was like, "No, sorry." No. Down. And and oh. then I was parked at some lights. I remember, and a white van <laughs> pulled up next to me. This white van pulled up next to me, and I, I could tell peripherally. I was looking ahead, but I yeah. could tell peripherally that the guys in the van were banging on their window to get me to wipe my window down. So, like a fool, I did, and um, they immediately just shouted Dev at me. And I had to chuckle about it and and, yeah. and and drive on, but yeah, I got I got that a lot. I do look like Jimmy Harkish in it. If there was ever a film in my of my life, it would have to be him that plays me. It, yeah. It's that, yeah. It's it, it's the glasses. It's the face. I'd love to meet him. Channel Four starts at ten to six with Alfie Atkins, Sesame Street, The Big Breakfast, The Bigger Breakfast, North Hollywood High, Rocco's Modern Life, No Balls Allowed, Wise Up. Stargate SG-1, The Bigger Breakfast Again, Home Improvement, Watercolour Challenge, Suddenly Susan, then the 1943 Tyrone Powers film Crash Dive. Then it's the tech show I Wish I'd Thought of That, followed by 15 to 1, Countdown, The Montel Williams Show and the documentary series Monkey Business. 
At six o'clock, they've run a whole hour of Boyzone by request and have just started Channel 4 News. Monto Williams, I completely forgot yeah. about him. It yeah. was big at the time. He was big at the time. It was a big time for Jerry Springer, Ricky Lake, Monto, um, that fella, yeah. and uh, Mari Povich in that. That's what I mainly watched yeah. on cable, as I recall. Yeah, I was so close to being on Mori Povich uh, a couple of years previous to this. Wow, really? I had mates on the internet on IRC, and uh, I had a mate who was based in Chicago. Mm-hmm. She said, let's pretend that we're having a, 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 a cyber relationship. <laughs> And we'll meet for the first time on Moray. And, you know, the producers spoke to me, but at the end, they just they just couldn't have, I, I don't know, they couldn't afford uh, to pay for me to fly out or something. Mm, I don't know. So shame. fucking close, man. And I could have gone to Jerry Springer as well and had a fallout with her on it. <laughs> could have done the whole fucking circuit of American trash TV. Moray was always great for the, for the phobia shows. Yes, when, when, and, when, yeah. and, and, and you're not the dad dancing. <laughs> all right then, pop-crazed youngsters, let's all meet up in the year 2000. But before we do so, do not forget we may coat down your favourite band or artist, but we never forget they've been on top of the pops more than we have. Robbie in Tiger Pan Shocker. It's still number one. It's Top of the Pops. <laughs> It's Friday, August the 11th, 2000, and we are immediately introduced to a woman in a pink vest at the front of a crowd of the kids who spoilers this week's number one and reintroduces a catchphrase that was used right through the 60s and into the early 70s. It's still number one. It's Top of the Pops. As the camera zooms out onto a rammed Elstree studio. Why? It's Jane Middlemiss. Born in Bedlington, Northumberland in 1971, Jane Middlemiss began her career on the YTS, sweeping up in a salon and then working in an electrical shop. After moving to London in 1991, she spent a year as a model, which included lobbing them out in the Daily Star, but she packed it in after a year to work as an intern with Chris Evans at JLR Radio, working part-time as a nanny and a shop assistant, and then as a trainee researcher at GMTV. In January 1995, she got a big break when she became a presenter on the BBC One kiddie pop show The Ozone, along with Jamie Theakston, which led to her co-presenting the BBC's live coverage of Glastonbury and the Smash Hits Awards, as well as filling in for Joe Wiley on Radio 1 from time to time. In a couple of months after this episode, she'll be the host of Radio 1's spin-off of Top of the Pops, an hour of backstage goss from that week's TV show, which ran before the breakdown of the brand new Top 40 on Sunday afternoons. So, yes, it's still number one. It's Top of the Pops. It used to be, it's number one. It's Top of the Pops. You get a sense that there's a concerted effort to try and drag Top of the Pops back to what it once was whilst getting in even more fucking about on the side. Recover some past glories to a certain extent, yeah. Mm. There's always a poignancy in in the word still. You know, Mm. it's like, yeah, you still got it, 
and it's mm. there's a tension in that because it's like yeah but for for how long you know or it's like yeah. that's that's obvious that you know your your glory days are behind you but you're still here you're still you know it, it's just it's yeah. a bit of a and oddly enough that the kind of the, the tension that actually used to make top of the pops interesting in that you had radio djs presenting on telly uh, people that you yeah. might not ordinarily see and people who weren't that competent at telly and that, that mm. was half the fun. Um, yes. That's now gone. These are now, I mean, the, the series of people that you, you've just read out, Al, Jamie Feakston, and you could also include, obviously, Zoe Ball and Gail Porter and, uh, and, yes. and Kate Thornton and all these people. They were competent on telly. They were yeah, confident yeah. on telly, you yeah. know, and, and, and so's Jane Middlemiss. It, it, to the point where it's very difficult to find anything to say about her other than well yeah she has that thing um which i think is the thing that we'll recurrently see in this episode which is a slight sense of i wouldn't say snootiness about pop but snarkiness it, it, it's mm. important to kind of take the piss a little bit um, we're yes. in an era where, we can't take it too seriously no and, and you know we've got pop world on C- on channel four and we've got never mind the buzzcocks doing well on bbc two and there, there's that kind yeah. of snarkiness about pop which, as we'll see, goes on to actually hurt some of the artists who are featured this week. But she's got that. In every single one of her links, there's a mm. slight snarkiness to it, I guess. But, I mean, this is from a time when, you know, people with actual working-class backgrounds are, are still allowed on telly. You know, she's the daughter mm. of, a, of a coal miner and a factory worker. And the way she looks, she doesn't stand out from the crowd that much. You know, she, it looks like she's just been pulled out of the crowd and go, you'll do, here's a microphone. <laughs> yeah, yeah. and well, But also, it is startling how much of the crowd you see, isn't it? You see yes, an you awful see lot, a of lot of the crowd. And, and I, think if, I think that's a great thing. Um, I mm. repeatedly find with this episode, God, this show could have been really good. I should have been watching it, you know. It was on a Thursday mm. night, maybe it would have been. I think it could have developed really quite interestingly because some of the, what I really particularly like about the crowd in this episode is that it's not obviously populated with zoo wankers and they mm. haven't pushed the attractive people, if you like, to the front. Yeah. They haven't pushed the good dancers to the front. They've just pushed people no. who are into the music to the front. Yeah. Yeah. And so you really do see some genuine moves. And you see that lovely thing that I will always love whenever I see it in any episode of the Top of, uh, top of the Pops from the 70s onwards all the way through. That lovely thing where you see someone dancing to a record and they're singing it. They know every <laughs> yes. word because they're fans yes. of that record. That's so yes. important. And you do see that quite a lot in this episode. Yeah, Jane Middlemiss, it, yeah, that was the thing. She was one of that pack of sort of uh, of pros, you know, um, yes. of, of just uh, professional presenters as opposed to people who'd, who'd uh, you know, it's like she'd done other stuff, but that was that was her thing. Um, but I mean, yeah. after you've after you've seen, you know, she's 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 all right. She's good. She's I like her. She's got a nice voice. She's got a nice presence. But, you know, once you've, um, you know, once you've seen Julian Cope present Top of the Pops, you, got, you yeah, know, yes. everything else kind of pales in comparison for me. Yeah. I mean, she was seen as oh, I hate fucking hate this word even now she was she was a ladette of sorts mm. that was she? that was the style at the time yes it was it was a weird yeah. kind of blip in in sort of uh, women trying to get a, a handle on themselves and on femininity in in the culture and a lot mm. and it, it kind of went it was it was quite a sort of at the time provocative thing because it's like we can do the thing yeah. that blokes do and we can belch and drink and throw up yeah. and get you know and show our ass in public and i never mm, found that you say i yeah. always found that embarrassing it's like why is it and it, that's the thing that persists now i think in in a certain mm. form is like uh it, it's just a very sort of literal minded way of going about it it's like 
Mm. We can do the thing that blokes yeah. do. And a lot of uh, what, yeah. what, what what bugs me is that a lot of the time I have a real I have a real thing about this is that in uh, films that have a big uh, female cast and it's about you know stories about women like bridesmaids. Why is it mm. that there's always a scene in those films where a woman shits herself in public? Why is <laughs> what? It, yeah, honestly, it is a it is a pattern. I have noted this, and it's not like I've, seen, I've never seen films. But it's in the it'll be in the trailer and everything, and it's like you know no, no, why why is, is this? What's this is just humiliating. This would be humiliating if anybody did it. Why is that? You know. So I there feel had like that's... to be there had to be though for for those strong media presences there had to be that little grain of humiliation that that Paula Radcliffe factor perhaps. But um, mm. it was like these people that we're talking about: Gail Porter, Jane Middlemiss, Zoe Ball. Um, they they were media professionals working, and yet they were still expected also as part of their brand to, yeah. like Al mentioned before, show their Shove ass in Maxim and and, yeah. and do the do the lad yeah, mag yeah, thing yeah, yeah, yeah. and appear in their pants. Mm. Um, that was a prerequisite of all of that ladetness as well. Mm. Mm. Yeah. So, but it was mostly it was it was mostly centered on on lager, wasn't it? It was a, a kind of a yeah a, a lager thing. Um, yeah. So I I don't know. It's all kind of baby steps in kind of the right direction I suppose but I couldn't um, it, you know mm. I, I couldn't really connect to it I was I was just a very awkward sort of still kind of overgrown teenager at that point and I didn't um, I didn't really think that was the way that was the way to go it didn't really inspire me you know we get treated to the penultimate top of the pops theme which was introduced in May of 1998 a drum and bass remix of whole lot of love which was put together by Ben Chapman it's teamed with an opening credit consisting of blocks and lines and circles sort of moving about a bit to form a vaguely 60s-inspired Top of the Pops logo. Mm-hmm. This is a bit of an advance on uh, on previous logos and theme tunes, I think. Is it? <laughs> well, it is. Yeah, it's better than uh, it's better than red hot pop. And now get out of that, don't you think? Well, it's you know the the thing that bugged me about this is you you get a, a, a bit of a whiff of that desperation that that we were talking about well, with, exactly, with melody making, yes. where it's like you yeah. know so so you get the um you know the the guitar riff and then a sort of very uh, flattened kind of effect. You know, somebody's going top of the pops, and it's yes. like just in case, just in case you weren't sure what you were looking at, you know. Yeah, uh, and and what you're, you know, it's like people know what this is. You don't have to do this. Yeah, you know, it's yeah. Well, there is a, there is the Pavlovian uh, effect from for someone of my generation, anyway. Yeah, I'm okay. With um, that. But but it does. Yeah, you're right. It does smack of. Oh, do you remember when we used to be fucking brilliant and the most important thing in your life? Mm. But they're fo- they're, uh, as with everything else, they're focus grouping it and and they're, they're fucking it up in the process. Is this okay? Uh, is this okay? You sure this is okay? Is this all right? Just, yeah. just do the thing. I am not a maker of programs. You know, do the thing, and then I'll and then I'll yeah. see, and then I can relax. You know, stop yeah, asking yeah, me but, what I want all the time. I don't know. What What's kind mm. of galling is that in the actual important thing of making top of the pots, i.e., choosing the best records to be on this show. They actually get it partly right during the duration of this episode. And if they'd have stuck with their nerve and perhaps made those decisions week by week and fucking got it back from the Friday to the Thursday night, yeah. it could have been saved. But yeah. Do you think that, that turning, uh, uh, putting Top of the Pops on a Friday was basically the Top of the Pops equivalent of uh, the put, making Melody Maker... Uh, a magazine <laughs> well well it was the top of the pops equivalent of what we were doing at melody maker in as much as we were making ourselves foolhardly into a kids magazine mm. um we were trying to look like a kid's For the magazine. non-existent kids 
for the non-existent kids because the kids know everything and we must follow them mm. um top of the pot similarly has become on a friday night slot at seven it's a kid's show and it's no longer a kind of it, it's no longer for music fans to a certain extent it's no longer for everybody I, I don't think any parents were sat around watching this getting outraged or getting excited or anything. This was no. now, it was put in Friday, that slot, hey, kids, watch it. Nobody else need bother, uh, was the kind of message of putting it on a Friday night at that time, I think. You know what? Craig David, got something to say. Well, uh, on my way to see my friends who lift a couple blocks away from me. As I walk through the subway, we go straight into the first tune of the evening seven days by craig david born in southampton in 1981 craig david got his start as a teenager when he guested on the mic at gigs by the reggae band ebony rockers who his dad played bass for in 1997, he made his vinyl debut as a guest artist on the B-side of the R&B band Damage's cover of Eric Clapton's Wonderful Tonight. And a year later, he started a collaboration with Southampton Garage duo Artful Dodger, which led to the 1990 single Re-Rewind, The Crowd Say Bo Selector, which went all the way to number two for three weeks in December of 1999, held off the top spot by Cliff Richards' Millennium Prayer, and then again for one week in January of 2000, denied by I Have a Dream by Westlife. After being signed to Wildstar, he launched his solo career with Fill Me In, which went straight in at number one in April of this year. This is the follow-up, if you don't count his guest appearance on Artful Dodger's Woman Trouble, which got to number six in July of this year, and it went straight in at number one last week, toppling We Will Rock You by Five and Queen. But this week, it's dropped one place to number two. So why is it on fucking top of the pops? <laughs> I could not fucking believe it when I saw this. This breaks the cardinal fucking rule of top of the pops. Uh, all is lost. It's like having fucking rugby on match of the day or something. It's, it's broken <laughs> a cardinal rule of a long running program. Why have they done this seriously? Uh, it's change, Al. Accept it. Sorry, that's my Mark Sillenberg's coming on. Why? I think possibly because it was only at number one for one week. Um, but, but like and... a lot of things at the time, though. Yeah, yeah. But I, I think what they're aiming for is... It, 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 it is an odd new era for Top of the Pops in which they're trying to kind of make the show a kind of look at what what is prevailing, if you like, at what's going on. So chart positions yeah. have become less relevant, I think, to, to their editorial decisions as to who makes the cut or not. You'd be That's, so pissed, yeah. though, wouldn't you, if you would if if you were in that position where you'd got to number one and then you'd, you'd slip to number two or whatever, and then it's like, no, um, you cannot be on Top of the Pops. There'll be so many people just spitting feathers at this. Mm, mm. It's like having last week's tea warmed up again. I've got a proper cob on. <laughs> That right from the off on this episode. Well, I, I kind of, I I do think it might be, um, you know, pointing towards something, as Neil says, it, it's it's uh, starting to shift the parameters of what what is, uh, you know, what it means to be relevant, I suppose. You know, if you look at the charts now, and it, it's kind of, it, it now incorporates 
you know, it incorporates downloads and streaming. So it's kind mm. of the first nod towards that sort of thing. Like, well, maybe yeah. the charts are not quite such a, maybe they're more of a movable feast um, in terms of their, you know, where they fit in the culture. But um, yeah. but also, also, I totally understand why you would... Um, get extremely upset about this and why it would ruin your day. So, you know. Mm. <laughs> it is a slight lack of nerve. I mean, they're, they're aware that this record at this point, Seven Days, is everywhere. Mm. So they're quite, they're, you know, it's not just on the radio. It's coming out of shops. It's coming out of passing cars. It's everywhere. Yes, it is. And, 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 was, and yeah. they, they, they want to be part of that, you know. So okay. it is a slight lack of nerve from TOTP's original remit, I must admit. Yeah, is it? Is it? Is it a, their attempt to... Stop people from turning over to the sultriness of Deirdre. <laughs> it might be. It might be. I mean, they were probably gutted he wasn't number one anymore. Um, and uh, this is a unique performance to this show. This isn't, I don't think, the number one performance that he might have done the week before. Mm. Oh, yeah, he's in the studio and everything. He is, yeah. They've got him in again. I, I just think, yeah, there's that kind of blur. I mean... As evidence later, as we'll discuss, that you know the chart is is treated as yes, it's kind of the hook of the show in a sense. It's still called Top of the Pops, but the chart itself is absolutely denigrated mm. to an, as, to a certain as, extent. As in this we'll episode. see later on, as we'll see later on. Fucking yes. hell. Okay, okay. Let's. I mean, I mean, the LP Born to Do It is due to be released on Monday, so you know he's mm-hmm. he's going to be glad of being on top of the pops again. And this is not a one-off. Just a few weeks later, we'll see Spiller and Robbie Williams appear when they're not number one anymore. Right, right. So mm-hmm. it, this is you know this is this is the way things are now, and yeah, offensive. <laughs> and talking of offensive, it's fair to say that Craig David, you know, is is one of the, the the hot new artists of 2000, but he's he's fucking a lot of people off, and he, he became a, a whipping boy of sorts. He um, did. A letter in the latest issue of Melody Maker oh, entitled no. "It's Not Just You." <laughs> is it just me, or is Craig David a complete and utter cunt? <laughs> He asks us to fill him in, but I'd like to take him out with a bullet to the back of the head. Jesus. I don't wish to offend his fans, but the guy is just a piece of shit who's obsessed with his own libido. I'm not interested in his seduction of a beautiful honey with a beautiful body and his sexual exploits from Wednesday through to Saturday in his latest hit. What he does with his cock is absolutely none of my business. What does interest me is how we have allowed pop music to be taken over by such small-minded, vain people with nothing to say. At least artists like Daphne and Celeste and Eminem try to say something in their music. We should encourage these pioneers because otherwise a nation of little kids will grow up with Craig David as their role model. And what a sick thought that is. Why the hate? Why him? Oh, fucking heaven for Fen that we get a vain person making pop music. No. Fucking hell. Oh, where do I start with this? Um, oh. Why him? He left himself a little bit open to it, to be honest with you. Mm. Tracks like... And, and I've mentioned that there was an increased snarkiness about pop and a kind of... It, it quite, pop became something that comedy could take pot shots at quite often. Mm. Um, 
And um, he left himself open to it to a certain extent with, with Bo Selector, because that's such an instantly parodyable track. Yes. And also with Seven Days with this track as well, mm. because... It's silly. The track, you mean, Seven Days? It's, it's quite... I, I find it quite... I find it quite daft, but no, carry on, sorry. It, it is a daft... No, you're absolutely right, Sarah. It is a daft track, and it should be understood as such. Um, I think that the writer of that letter has kind of seen Seven, um, uh, seven Days as this unproblematic Lothario type song yeah but really I mean what the reason Seven Days works I think is because and the reason it appealed to who it appealed to it's got that um that thing you know you know teenagers cannot shut up yeah <laughs> that they, they just start talking and they can't stop yeah they cannot stop that they, they can't shut up yeah it's got that to it he can't stop himself singing <laughs> no so you can either apprehend that lyric as being about a real thing that happened Mm. Or you can apprehend it as I think it should be taken. It's a teenage fantasy. Mm. It, it's a teenage fantasy of some sophisticated week he spent. <laughs> and then he rushes yeah. through the actual shagging in three days with, <laughs> yeah. with, with, you know, with not much mention. And it should be understood as that. It's braggadocio. It's, it, it's, yeah. you, you know what I mean? That's what it is. And that's how it should be understood. He's, he is one of those silky professional singers, I guess. Yeah. I'm, I'm, we're used to artists bragging on about getting their underway. This is extremely low level. I mean, he's not he's not pulled out the jamet and killed the panane, has he? On this, <laughs> yeah, it's very low level. It's very low level. It's it's a it's an amusing little record, and I think he knew mm-hmm. it as well. Um, the lyrical conceit yeah. of it. So for people to be so offended by it, I, I, I'm perhaps uh, this is a phrase that I'm repeatedly using. I think in in chart music podcasts, is perhaps I'm being paranoid, <laughs> but I can't help thinking. You know, something of the treatment of David worries me. Yeah. Um, I'd love it if there were so many black solo British pop stars with long careers, so I couldn't be so paranoid mm. about this. But I think a wide part of the audience don't like seeing successful single black British males succeeding. Mm. And, and I don't know, I, I wouldn't want to tie it in with the kind of Raheem Sterling almost mm. thing of this year. But, but they are targets in a way... That other pop stars aren't to a certain yeah. extent. So I'm, I'm not repping massively for Craig David. I, I loved um, Fill Me In. I thought that was a great tune. That was full of drama. I loved Bo Selector mm. as well. N- not so keen on Seven Days. But, you know, as soon as, his trouble was as soon as UK Garage left his sound and he was revealed to be what he was, which was a fairly boring musician. Yeah. I mean, I remember him doing a version of Seven Days on Top of the Pops, actually, where it's just him and an acoustic, yeah. and it revealed his sort of true colours to a certain yeah. extent, um, and that he was just another boring yeah. singer. But w- with UK Garage under his you know, under his songs, I, I thought he made some great, great mm. singles. So so his, his kind of... Uh, you know, target nature that everyone took the piss out of him. I thought it was massively unfair. Yeah, I mean, of course, there's, um, of course, there's an, there's a, there's a really nasty element to the criticism of of uh, of Craig David and, and people like him. You know, it, yeah, obviously it is. There is because look, we all got, we would all kind of uh, get arsy about, you know, about various records. But I mean, well, I hope. I mean, God, I I, I shudder to think what I'm going to find when I when I actually um, look back through one squinted eye at my old stuff. But you know, I would hope that I wasn't. You know, I did get slapped down once for being 
too vicious about somebody who was new you know and it's like don't don't be like mm. that it's like oh okay fair mm. enough because you do you know you forget that these are you, yeah. it's terrible but you, you know you, you can lose sight of the fact that these are real people and they have careers the and you biggest, can yeah. make you can make or break them but people writing in with letters like that and it is very telling when somebody there is a level of vitriol that is like i there's something more going on there I mean, it's um, yeah. if I can if if I can mm. digress for a second. We were talking about the the reading of this year. Daphne and Celeste were yes. on the main stage. This was this legendary thing, and uh, I was yes. I was there, and it was I've never seen anything like it. It was so there were two. It was basically the 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 main stage as it would usually be at Reading, was wall-to-wall rock blokes, you know, and supposedly yes. punk blokes. Um, I can't remember who was on before them, but they were on before Blink-182 in kind of, you know, like uh, early afternoon. And everybody mm. knew what was happening. And there was just a hail... The sky was dark with detritus. And people, you mm. couldn't hear anything at all because of all, all these, you know, all these people just screaming and shouting at them and throwing stuff. And they kind of thought these were like two, you know, teenage girls doing yes. what they felt mm. was not mm. the right music. And it was just this kind of war zone. And it was quite, it yeah. was quite frightening because there was a tone to it, which is like, you know, you do not, you do not come here. Not you. Yeah. Not you. You stay yeah. out. Well, Sarah, you know, in the in the issue of Melody Maker I've got in front of me, there is a little uh, uh, little side box with Everett True that says, how will Daphne and Celeste survive the calling weekend? To judge from the Maker's postbag, the effervescent pair are in for a hostile reception. So what are they expecting? And they say, bottles, beer, dirt and screams. We're expecting lots of mud too. Um... Can bottles of piss actually hurt us? <laughs> um, if they actually want to piss in a bottle and throw it at us, then more power to them. And you know, the the, the interview is basically saying, "Are you are you ready to be fucking completely abused by angry scowling whiteies?" The thing is, they could have been physically hurt. This was real, yes. and you know, this was oh, yeah. this was terrifying mm. and and mm. kind of sickening in a certain way. But they were heroic, mm. and they they just they they just took it all in their stride, and they just thought it was fantastic. And that is mm. that's fucking punk. Blink One Eighty Two mm. came on afterwards with their sort of and sort of spoon fed the audience their kind of anodyne pap, and they all lapped it up. Oh, this is our music, oh. and it's yeah. like I've never seen anything so mm. stupid mm. in my life. But it's that thing of. Um, you know, and people will will hide behind the notion that it's like, well, I just don't like the music, and it's like, it's it's more than that, though, isn't it, mate? Look, you know, you might have to yeah. look a bit deeper in yourself and and face up to some stuff. And you know, I I've yeah, look, we've all we we've all done that. I'm I'm not saying that I didn't. Um, and we'll get into the 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 cover later about uh, the uh, the yes, we will. UK garage my ass thing. Um, you know, it's not like I I have had to I've had to sort of claw. Upwards, I've had to work on myself in order to really zero in on this stuff and recognise that no, mm. you're not paranoid. Yes, there is, um, there is bigotry there. You know, I, I'm not going to. Yeah. Uh, I, yeah. Yeah. Nor am I going to uh, stick up for Craig David very much as an artist. I mean, he was he was so young. Mm. I I hadn't realised how young he was. Um, he was yeah. very young. He's a he's a teenage boy. Lovely honey voice, you know, but very very forgettable. But you know, yeah. and I didn't, I didn't think much of him as an artist. But you know, that doesn't mean that he didn't have a place and didn't have a right to be yeah. there. And there were people yeah. who were like, they're instinctively just like, nope, it's not, it's this is not for you. This is not your place, and you can't come in. The song's basically him bragging on about getting his end away, 
Mm. And, uh, you know, he's, he's essentially having what we used to call back in 2000 ITV digital and chill, isn't he? <laughs> <laughs> but that's it. I mean, I, I immediately understood that record as, as it, it's gauche and it's a kind of adolescent fantasy. Yeah. It, it, yeah. It, it, you know, I, I work in a college where there's innumerable 16 and 17 year old boys walking the corridors chatting shit. And this yes. is the kind of nonsense that I hear. He's nicely turned out lad isn't he you know he's got he is a bit mad yeah do you remember the kp skips advert in the early 90s where all the <laughs> you'd know this now where all the different flavors they zoom in on a skip and there's all these different flavors having a massive rave on it <laughs> i do vaguely remember that yeah, yeah like there's a there's a rasta one and then there's uh there's there's chinese uh spices and they're all doing a bit of kung fu it's a bit shaolin Mm, mm. craig david's head is like a <laughs> like that skips advert but if they were all kind of like uh, little afro-y things. Yeah, yeah, he's like yeah. He's got hundreds of tiny little afros on his head. Must but, have taken him fucking ages to no, get done. Ow, ow. It is really important that he's nicely made out. He does look yes. really smart and he's dressed well. And that is precisely one of the reasons why he would not necessarily appeal to the kind of readership and... Um, editors that were working at Melody Maker at the time. Yeah. Black pot was allowed to happen so long as it was flamboyant, outrageous, etc. If it was yeah. this thing that was sophisticated, mm. in a, you know what I mean by that word, sophisticated. Mm. I don't mean, mean it was necessarily musically sophisticated, but it was aspirational in a sense. Yes. And it was well-dressed, etc. Yes. That didn't appeal. What, what Melody Maker were interested in, in terms of black music, the only black music that they got in was their kind of grungy, dirty side of things that you cypress hills and things like that they yeah. weren't that interested in kind of modern sophisticated black pot which is what this was yeah. um and that was fatal um yeah he's he does have i, I should point out uh well dressed in in this instance does uh consist of uh, a statement woolly is all i can quote yes um, i'm really always is, i'm always uh ad, i admire slash i'm baffled by anyone who wears uh a, a sweater on on a stage in a TV studio under or or on a stage yes. even at all it it's i it 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 kind of makes me go god aren't you aren't you warm aren't you a bit warm there yeah. don't you mm, want to take yeah. that off but he's got it's a it's yeah cuz it's quite thick isn't it it's a, like a blue roll neck it's with, a roll and it's neck got, and it's got like big yeah, and it's got white strapping down the side doesn't like it it's got like corset that's like corset ties yes. it's like corsetry mm. it really with is. like ribbon i'd wear that i'd well actually no i'd have to yeah. cut the not with that neck because that would that would be really annoying but yeah the the kind of the st- yeah. yeah which is which is uh which is a look you know oh and a big medallion as well he's got a medallion on yeah he's got a, he's got like a golden pendant with uh the, with cd on it Oh, is that what it's? Oh, wow! I didn't, yeah. I didn't pick up on that. Yeah, oh, well, amazing. of course, obviously. I mean, if he did, he should have worn an actual CD, and <laughs> would have got got the reference. That could have been but, a thing. But yeah. it is the kind of jumper. It, it is a pop, total pop star jumper, isn't it? Mm-mm. Because you can only wear that once. Because it's so striking and noticeable yeah, yeah. that you, and you it's like, oh, you see Craig David's wearing that same mm. jumper again. Yeah, and you couldn't wash it. And he's got yeah, it must be really skinned. He's got he's got <laughs> uh, he's got nice nice strides on that kind of baggy, you know, but but mm. sort of sort of nicely cut um, yeah. shoes. Um, yeah, yeah I mean, he looks he he looks he looks lovely and he sounds lovely, you know, because uh, we should we should say yeah. that this is you know everyone's singing live. He does the little shout out yes. to himself. At the end, of course he does. Yes, Tom of the Pops. Yeah. And is it, you know, they've got, they've got a big video screen again in the background. Mm-hmm. Mm. I like that, that. The big video screens come back, um, and yeah, I mean, I hate this song. It's fucking cat shit. 
<laughs> I think it's the the shopping center flamenco guitar that that fucks mm. me off about mm. it. I realized for the first time uh, watching this that he sounds almost exactly like Donnell Jones off of You Know What's Up. He's got the same quality mm. to his voice. It's a really really, you know, it's that very um, quite American sounding yes. smooth mm. yes. smooth voice. You know, it's it's you can see that that's where he's coming from. Um yeah. I I would I would postulate at least. Um but yeah, it's in terms of, um, yeah, I was trying to sort of break down, break down the song. And like you said, Neil, this has kind of undermined what I was going to say, but I'm going to say it anyway. Yeah, it's, it's, <laughs> it's, um, he's just kind of bollocking on about some shit that never, in modern parlance, did not happen. Um, but it's, it's, I, there's a little call and response bit that he does with himself, yes. with his own backing vocals. And I, I love a caller as well. Yes. I think that's a lovely, it's always a, a fun thing to encounter in a pop song. So I kind of got into the lyrics, which are, you know, amazingly ripe for analysis. Um, So he does the little call and response bit. Did she decline? No. Didn't she mind? I don't think so. (laughs) It's like, that's that's quite a sort of low key thing. It's a bit sort of like, so okay, she didn't say no. Um, Was she all right with it? Seemed to be. You know, it's not it's not very romantic, but the the whole no. setup of this is kind of suspect. Okay, because um, you know he's he's walking. He's in the middle of the afternoon. He's going to see his mates, and then yeah. as he walks through the subway, he sees a girl mm. standing there. Hmm. Yeah. Okay. All right. How does yeah. how does this how does this play out? What what is what? She's probably drawn a massive cock on the wall. <laughs> what is the deal? Now I have been. We've all been in in uh, in in subways. They're not places that you want to hang around in. Even in weirdly, no. they're scarier for for a woman on her own. They are scary. I find them scary in the day for some reason because it's still dark. Yeah. you can see light at either yeah. end, and there's there's the kind of horrible fluorescent strip yeah. lights in there, and the kind of grimy tiles, yeah. and there's the, every every yeah. your footstep echoes. And you feel like something bad's going to happen. They're yeah. not nice places. Yeah. So what's yeah. he doing? And it's, and, it's st- and it's still before the the, the monkey smelling sandwich um, franchise as well. Yes, yeah, yeah. We did we did consider this. It's like, is he not in a in, in a kind of sandwich joint? But it's like, no, it's he's in the subway. But she's, Craig David won't go to subway. No, he gets someone else to. Surely he'd have an assistant to do it for him. You know, like yeah, yeah. He, he, he go to the twenty four hour garage. Um, so, right, okay. Um, I I have suspicions about how about this. Um, I think he's he's a naive kid, and she is mm. a professional. And right. so I think right. what happens, and and she's uh, you know um, she seems like she can handle herself. She's standing there, you see, and then uh, so mm. he takes for a drink, and then they they make love all the rest of the week, um, which is great. And nice. then and then. He discovers, unfortunately, what what the uh, what the truth of the situation is. And when he's telling his mate, he's kind of cagey about it. And um, yeah. also, there's uh, you know, why does he say she's twenty four as well? It's like, oh, she's a pretty girl, age twenty four. Right? Okay, you you that seems like you're making a thing of that. You know? Oh yeah, she's older yeah. than him. Yeah, of course. Um, yeah. She's got, probably got a car and everything. But he's going to be, I think he's he's going to be slightly embarrassed by this situation. So he's telling his mate, who is actually his own alter ego. Um, David Craig, um, nice. What, how it all how it all happened? But it's like okay, so um, so by so they chilled on Sunday. He got the bill on Monday. Uh, had to go <laughs> had to go to the loan shark. Went to the loan shark on Tuesday. Beaten to a pulp on Wednesday, and on Thursday and Friday and yeah. Saturday, he was in the fucking hospital. Yeah. <laughs> anyway, that's my so there you go. That is my close reading of Seven Days by Craig David. 
Um, that's my, my academic perspective. <laughs> Never thought of that before. Never thought of that before. Because his mix of vagary and yet specifics, like you say, because he does specifically mention her age. But when it comes to actually describing the girl, mm. he's very, very vague. Mm, I think yeah. well, it's just a beautiful lady, isn't she? And that's it. Yeah. Um, which which lends more credence to the kind of he's making this up um, interpretation of this song, I would say. Mm. <laughs> so the following week, seven days dropped one place to number three. The follow-up. Walking Away got to number three in December of this year, but by this time, Melody Maker had published an issue with a Craig David lookalike, recreating the cover of Born to Do It on a toilet and the headline, UK Garage, My Arse, The Alternative Nation Fights Back. Fucking hell. Shall we? uh, Shall we? Are we going to? I've got it here. I've got it here. Let me begin. I'll open the account with the editor's letter from Mark Sutherland. (sighs) For the first eight months of this year, the alternative nation was depressed. UK garage and pop shite was ruling the charts. Sutherland, you cunt! Our music was being pushed off airways and common room stereos across the land. (laughs) This is what happens, man. A creeping garager. But since the Carling Weekend, Reading and Leeds festivals, there's been a new wave of optimism. Fucking hell, man. We've nominated 50 ways in which we think the indie nation is fighting back. Were you aware of this before it happened? Um, I don't remember. I just, I remember this general atmosphere of queasiness and uneasiness. With this, and people mm. just, we're all of us kind of looking at each other with this kind of, uh, you know, we were we were very embarrassed about it, and we were, you know, I'd, most of the most of the writers just kind of had no truck with it at all. Um, but yeah, I don't really remember. I remember it coming out, and I remember just having to talk to PRs and stuff about it, and just going, uh, yeah. I mean, yeah, I but, didn't. But, I, this but, sounds. This is, sorry, can I just sorry? Um, I, yeah, yes, you sir. know, I. I feel like I should have known better at the time, but like I said, it is a life's work and I, I had led a relatively sheltered life, I suppose. And I didn't quite, like I said, there was a queasiness about it. And, you know, you learn to pick up on these markers of like, yeah, that's a problem. That's somebody being, that's someone being a dick. That is a bad message. This is a dark thing. And, you know, um, you you need to address it and you need to uh this is not something that should be happening and i kind of knew that but i i hadn't quite it, it sounds like it should be really obvious what it was but at the time it was just like is this is this okay i'm not sure that it is okay you know so there was there yeah. was that kind um, of i think are, a lot of us were, were in that place are we do, are we doing a race in other words yeah yeah yeah. well the thing is that, that it's the um uh, the um the, the if you look at the the actual cover of of, of craig david's album that that this was a piss take of um yeah. It was he does look quite pious and and again he's you know he he looks quite dafty he looks he's taking himself very seriously and he's sort of got this mm. beatific look on his face and he's kind of holding very gingerly onto his cans and it you know it's quite an arresting mm. image but it's not it's it's um it is kind of in some ways it is ripe for for the piss take um but just to do it in that way and like I said there's a there's this kind of the the sort of uh, the lavatorial thing is 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 so kind of there's there's just such a grossness about it it's really tawdry and um mm-hmm. Yeah, I I think probably part of me, 
I'm sure part of me, um, what what it was supposed to be, how it was presented was as quite a, a punk thing and like, you know, yeah, we're, mm. we're doing something outrageous and shocking. But there was no room to do that at the Maker at this time in, in any way and least of all in, in this way. It was just... It was just bollocks, you know. It didn't. It couldn't. You couldn't justify it on that basis. Well, I'm just interested to hear that Sarah said she didn't know about it. This is a common thing of this period. We didn't know until Wednesday what the fuck was going to be on the cover. No, these decisions mm. were quite often made by other people, and this particular issue you're talking about now, it is the, without a shadow of a doubt, the most shameful copy of Melody Maker to to ever come out. We might as well call it the way it is. It's fucking racist. I've been mm. told three, four years before, oh no, black faces on the cover don't sell. Well, whoop de doo we've got a black face and it's having the piss taken out of it. It's stuck on a toilet mm. seat, etc. Mm. So to me, th- th- you know, this was one of those things that on a Wednesday morning I saw it and I was just like, what the fuck is this? Mm. The history, mm. you know, the history of UK pop is mainly populated with white musicians listening to the most cutting edge black music. It's a given. And here we are rejecting that. We are rejecting the multiracial for the monocultural. We're rejecting the musically futuristic in favour of the musically retrograde. It's absolutely fucking shameful. And I can only conjecture that in some way it wasn't just down to a desire to match our readerships, you know, more slower members. It was a reflection of the musical and social prejudices of the people making those editorial decisions. They weren't our fucking people. Those boneheads in our readership, what we should have done with Craig David, instead of taking the piss and basically saying, we hate black music, you've got to listen to white rock. Those Mm. boneheads in our readership, we should have stuck Craig David on the cover. We should have got a good writer to go out and meet him write mm. about it and him and the scene that he came from and give it an interesting strapline, an interesting story. And you put him on the cover and you fuck those people. Fuck those fucking people. Um, I know it sounds reckless, but this to me was, it was one of the most shameful things that ever appeared in the Melody. I, I, I remember a singles column in 1996, I think, quite early, by um, somebody that I used to work for, um, who I don't know whether I can mention them. Yeah, I can mention the name. Michael Bonner. And um, he wrote a singles column. He'd just fallen in love. And every singles review contained a declaration of love to his girlfriend. It was the most painfully oh, no. embarrassing thing I have ever read in the maker you know and i'm serious it wasn't beautifully written it was it was like every single review would end up with i love you i love you it was horrible it was mortifying and i thought that nothing could top that in terms of shame but this issue and and the list that's in there and the cover and everything about it um it's, it's a disgrace looking through that issue it reminds me of working on a sega mega drive mag in the early 90s where so much of the mag was devoted to hating on Nintendo and hating on Mario <laughs> and going on about how brilliant Sonic was and, and essentially creating arguments in the playground and giving our readership, who were mainly, you know, young teenage lads, yeah. uh, ammunition to say, yeah, Sonic pisses on Mario. That's it. Um, it's always a bad sign when, I mean, basically it's a marker of uh, that was the maker putting itself right into the bin. It's like, you know, because it's like, well, we yeah. don't accept, you know, if you're saying uh, we're, we're setting out our stall uh, on the basis that we do not accept this and we don't accept you, then, uh, you know, mm. it's just like, well, okay, fine, we'll, we'll go somewhere else. That you're, What you're doing is you're putting yeah. yourself into, uh, you're sidelining yourself, you're putting yourself into into a, a position of irrelevance. 
um, mm-hmm. where whereby you know the the zeitgeist, you know that what is happening now is is not your thing and you're opting out of it and that's what but it's always a yeah. bad sign when people it's always a, you know it's a it's a negative thing to define yourself by what you're not and what you're against as opposed to it's well, like, yeah. like what are you for you know that's the, that yeah, is but, the way to go if you define yourself by what you hate you know you don't ask you don't you don't open a conversation with somebody if you're talking about music you go what sort of music do you hate like literally <laughs> no one's ever done that you know why would you do that i mean like i have to i'd say yeah. i did not have i didn't really get uk garage and really it, it didn't you know it wasn't for me i didn't really like it i found it kind mm. of for the most part i found it not all of it as we'll get onto but i will i found it generally kind of quite tinny and hectic and it just wasn't i, I that that is not a thing that i can get with yeah. but that's fine not everything has to be for me and that doesn't mean you know i do not expect to be pandered mm, to yeah. and indulged in, in in everything that i want and i understand that there is room for everything and also that if something yeah. is is dominating is dominating now it will for what will happen is it will there will come a day when that has not happened and that's when things get interesting when you see the development of of something uh, you know, a genre that is, yeah. you know, on top now will eventually splinter into different things. It will have an influence here, here and here. Um, and it will, you know, there will be something that will come after it. So you just, you know, you just hang on. If something is not relevant to you and, and like I said, A, it doesn't have to be and B, see what happens. Well, yeah. we didn't have the confidence in the readership that that argument, you know, I'm certainly not saying the Melody Maker should have been totally positive about UK Garage at all. It, but it should have battled for its space just like anything else with writers that advocated for it. Instead, it, the party line was handed down, yeah, yeah, you know, yeah, yeah. much as the party yeah. line was handed down that we've got to be positive about Oasis. So invariably, where we end up is the Melody Maker closing, the NME doing things like 10 years later saying, you know, when Alex Turner makes some bullshit speech at the Brits, rock and roll is oh, coming yes. back. It's <laughs> a fucking perennial. And we also end up with... Cunts like Noel Gallagher saying Jay-Z shouldn't be playing Glastonbury. This Mm. pervading fiction that, no, this is our music, you stay over there. And it's just hateful in every regard. Yeah. And I don't recall seeing covers of Mix Mag or DJ with uh, a Liam Gallagher lookalike wanking into a sock. (laughs) You know. Yeah. Yeah. Because they're more important things to fucking do. And so did we. We should have been covering... UK garage without a doubt in that year not talking about it in this way in this totally more importantly totally pig ignorant way about what was actually going on in the music but also you wouldn't see any of the magazines I was working with at the time like Razzle or Escort you know having a a, a picture of a fucking bloke on the cover (laughs) and the the cover line a bloke's knob we like fannies The fight back for fannies begin here. It's just desperate. All all informed by market research. The editorial meetings were a blag. They didn't count. What counted was the meetings that we never got to go to. The meetings yeah. with the marketeers, the meeting with the publishers. How can we kill Melody Maker? They did Fucking it all right. hell. Those fuckers. We're all writers, but before we were writers, we were readers. You know, we used to Mm. consume the music press. And one thing about the music press is that I was always totally happy to sit down and read an article about a band I hated, you know, that I was was not interested in because they're always interesting stories, you know, and you get so much more out of a good article about a band than just their music, you know, mm. it, about the climate they've they've grown up in, yeah, yeah. you know, w- all that kind of stuff. And to just to say, right, okay, this big chunk of music, we're not going to 
talk about it and we hate it and you should hate it as well. Mm. That's fucking ridiculous. Yeah. Mm. Uh, yeah. What kind of comeback did Melody Maker get from that? <laughs> Fuck all. Fuck all. <laughs> Because the tone, this wasn't writing anymore, you know? What was going on in Melody... We were we were writing words, don't get me wrong, and we were sending them through. But what you'd actually see in the mag, it was forensically kind of tested for its, mm. for its playability with our supposed readership. Yeah. And inevitably, actually, most of our real readership were leaving in droves at this point, disgusted with what, what the magazine had become. I, I do wonder if, if they were like, is it okay for us to do this? Like, whenever something outrageous like this happens, and, and you just go... Imagine the number of people who signed off on this, and it's like, did they? They all did. Any of them think about it first? Did was there a meeting where everyone went? Yeah. Look, is this okay? Can we get away with it? But I think there was probably a tacit understanding that, like, well, but we hate pop. We're a uh, you know, which obviously is a bullshit position to in, in and of itself. But I think it was it was that because it was very sort of accessible light stuff, and because there's this whole thing about authenticity, which is you know, always tedious whenever it comes up, and it, it pisses me off because authenticity is a is an actual thing it is a genuine thing it's not just but it's been co-opted by false twats who you know mostly with guitars who use it to cover up the fact (laughs) that they don't actually have any substance to them and they don't really they're self-conscious and they don't they are not Mm. uh they're not artists in the sense that they really have artistry that's something that has to come out they're doing it because uh they they feel that that's what they are, but they're fucking not. And they will cover themselves over mm. with the kind of the glorious robes of, of authenticity. And people fall for it. You know, I mean, Mark Sutherland definitely fell yeah. for it. It's like, this is what authentic is. Authentic is not a genre. It's not a genre. It's not no. a guitar. It's not a sound. It is a way of being. It's a spiritual fucking calling, you know. And I, mm. I guess there was just a um, a sense that that's our thing that's our religion even though they got it complete it's it's like a lot of religion getting completely the wrong end of the stick it's like it's the right idea the wrong end of it completely and just going this is not that these guys are just dicking about who the fuck they think they are you know they're just dilettantes you know they they are yeah so there was there was a lot i think they probably justified that cover on the basis of a lot of that stuff which they which is not good enough you know well this is why i bear grudges because a lot of people will have signed off on that um but what we had ultimately at that point, we didn't have an editor. We had a bully. We had a bully in charge. And, and this is what happened. Uh, he just, he did not belong in that job. And he was a very, he was a very intimidating presence. And like I said, I felt like I was not in, uh, I was not being given a spot really. I didn't know why that was. I mean, there weren't, yeah, there weren't very many women uh, writing for it at the time. Um, it was me and uh, Emma Johnston who who um, joined it about the same time. She was much more of a, a, a proper journalist than I was. I was just kind of really, really blagging it and winging it. But yeah, there was no. He did sort of loom. He, he would sort of loom around the office, and he had a, he's a, got a very deep voice, and and would sort of, um, you know, editorial meetings. He would sort of introduce. He, he would announce by stomping around the office and go, "Right, people, meeting." And yeah. it was like it was like yeah. doom. And it's just like yeah. you do not. You are not a good. But he was not. And he he also. I should I should say that there were things. And I know that he. I'm sure that he was under pressure in terms of budget. But you know, when we were on one of those late nights where we'd have to go home at you know four or five in the morning or whatever, um, and you used to get a used to get a cab laid on apparently. But um, I had to get you know I had to get my own. And I was like I said, living off absolutely fuck all. And if I wanted to get home mm. safely, I would have to get my own cab and stuff like that. That were just, like I said, not all of it, I have to, you know, not all of it was his fault, but he was, maybe he was a nice guy outside of that, but as 
as my first as a as a first boss and as an introduction to uh publishing and and the music industry and everything it was really fucking unpleasant are we going to dip a hand into the the 50 ways the alternative nation is fighting back oh fucking out out shall this we is, sarah yeah. this is this is hard work i got to tell yeah fuck Please it go yeah ahead. go on let's get it all out come on the thing is with this though out yeah it was probably dreamed up in an afternoon by a few of the cunts uh, <laughs> lazily sat around a table but i actually th- when i think about this piece i actually think of mark sutherland wearing a massive dark cloak and and pulling this out of some vat of horror, uh, a document that just seals the fucking horror of the age. Every single line of it is so badly written Mm -hmm. and so needy. It's just mortifying that this appeared under the Melody Maker name. I think starting off, you know, number four. Coldplay at number one, proving that nice guys can finish first. I mean, fuck me. (laughs) Primal Screams, Civil Disobedience, Revolution, Revolution, Bobby G, Making Politics Sexy. Bobby Gillespie's never made anything sexy. (laughs) (laughs) It just gets fucking worse. Oh, my God. Sorry, I'm scrolling through it now. Cool. Let's go straight to 23. (laughs) Top loader on the road. (laughs) Joe and the lads taking rock and roll chaos (laughs) to the streets. Has there ever been like a top loader covers band called Bottom Feeder? (laughs) That would be good. And all they play, but they just play Dancing in the Moonlight ten times. Yes. (laughs) And by the end, everyone's crying. Um, Yeah, top loader were, there is nothing good you can say about top loader whatsoever. Apart from, the only good thing you can say about top loader is that they eventually went away. Number 31, President Fred Durst. The undisputed king of new metal sneering charm, conquering the world. Oh, God almighty, man. Do you remember a time when President Fred Durst sounded like the most appalling thing ever? Not, not my president. <laughs> fucking hell, man. No, no, he'd, he'd be a fucking shoo-in next year. Not quite. Oh, Jesus Christ. Now you've said, oh my God, Al, now you've said that. That's actually going to happen, isn't it? It's either going to be him or it's going to yes. be the fire Festival guy. Or maybe both of them. Maybe they'll take it in turns. Yeah. yeah. Or... or <laughs> Or the fucking reanimated corpse of Jimmy Savile. <sighs> but the Number way thirty-two is interesting, isn't it? So Napster music for free. Nuff said. Oh yes, oh, yes. I bet, I, I bet that went down a treat, didn't it? With the fucking PRs <laughs> and the labels. Uh, no. Well, well played, Mark. I mean, fuck it. And, and and you'll notice as well the repeated use of the word "nuff." Nuff said. Yes. And and a repeated swearing as well. Um, I know I'm in no position to criticise exactly, but that no 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 no. But you know how to swear. The thing is, swearing is yeah, swearing it... is a swearing is a fucking art form. I can do it. You can do it. We all of us are fucking really good at it. That man yeah. should not have it. It's like wash your mouth out. <laughs> you know, you, you you take that fucks out of your mouth. Number forty, new metal fashion. <laughs> Subverting the gatecrasher styles for our own perverse means. About time to... You, you mean a fucking wallet on a chain? What does that mean, about time to, exclamation mark? I don't get that. No. I think that's a little dig. That is another... That's a little dig at dance culture, which also was bad and wrong. Mm, I mean, gatecrasher, obviously, you know, hard house, again, hard house is not anything that that I was into. That was, um, you know, I, I, I did not... You know, I didn't want my brain to be pummeled in that specific way. But... Again, it's like these are people. This is a this is a scene 
um, that that we're going to shit on because we don't get it and we don't understand it. And you know, look at number thirty-four: moshing, crowd surfing, live chaos. You don't get that at your local UK garage club. No, fucking no. hell, man! But what you do, what you know, you, what you do get at a rock club is forty-eight. Blink-182, ripping the piss out of boy bands in their videos. And he's right up after that. There you go. Hilarious vids, cool guys, brilliant music. He sounds fucking 50-odd. I mean, it, and yet he's, yeah. he's trying absolutely to speak in a kid's language. Mm-mm. I don't yeah. think this was done by committee. I think this was him of an afternoon summoning the spirit of Satan and just getting this out, <laughs> getting this out. It's a horrible document. Oh, it's not. No, you leave Satan out of this. You know, we know that Satan has the best tunes. That has always been true. Uh, Satan, Satan would hold his horns in his hands at this. Forty-two XFM. It's getting better and better, but we're still keeping an eye on oh, you. And oh, that, this worried, is it. This is it. Right. It's not like you're being forced to listen to music you don't like by 2000. Yeah, yeah, There's yeah. loads of satellite stations, loads of radio stations, loads of record shops. It's like no one is forcing you to listen to Craig David. Mm. Ridiculous. You have to dig to a certain extent. When I actually did speak to Mark Sutherland, which was very briefly and not very often, you did kind of get a flavour for where he was coming from, in a sense. He came, mm. he made fanzines, you know, when he was a kid, Mark Sutherland. He was, mm. he was a fanzine writer. And he was very, very much fixated on the indie kind of C86 scene. And that's where right. he's coming from. So where the rest of us in 87 were listening to Public Enemy. He was listening to Tallulah Gosh or whatever. And he stayed there. Yeah. And that indie faith stays with him to this point. But mm. uh, 100 Reasons... Brit Rock kicks back, Pearl Jam start watching their backs, Ace. I mean, fucking hell, man. Mm. This is 50 reasons to stop reading Melody Maker. Yeah. I, I will say, though, I, I've, um, I, the, one, the one bit that, that, is, that, that, is, that is not terrible in this is uh, the description of um, Slipknot as evil panto. And having seen Slipknot, I, I was like, I, that's mm. not entirely what Slipknot were, but that was a fair description mm. of, you know, and they were like a mm. kid's... Uh, like a kid's party yeah. gone mad in some ways. And I saw them at yeah. Reading, I think probably this year again. And they did this thing where they got everybody in the crowd to like crouch down. And then when they said, you know, like, jump the fuck up! And it was it was hilarious as everybody did it. There's a whole field of people just sort of crouching down, mm. waiting to be told. And it was like, it was, it was like a kind of, it's because, you know, and they mostly were like grubby teenage boys who were out on their own for the first time. And it's like they kind of perfectly bridge mm. that gap between childhood and adulthood, which is what teenagers, you know, are, are struggling yeah, to do. Yeah. And they want to be kids a lot of the time. Mm. And there was something really yeah. delightfully kind of horrendously, um, grossly childish about Slipknot. Slipknot or Fab Live, and I was I was one of the first people to see them unmasked. I interviewed them once, and and nobody had seen them without their masks on. Um, but I'll never forget an interview I did with Clown. Actually, um, it was a phoner, and he'd phoned me, and he was actually driving at the time. <laughs> and uh, partway through the phone, he had a car accident. Um, <gasps> his car fell apart. <laughs> 
eight people got out. Oh man, that would have been too perfect. Boot. But no, yeah, he did have a car accident. He did have a car accident, and he was like, I- "I've got to talk Shit. to the other person in the crash. Are you all right?" And I said, "Yeah, I've got enough, mate." And that was that. But, uh, no, they, they were they were they were fun. There was some fun, you know. But what Melody Maker? I'm not. I'm simultaneously not saying Melody Maker shouldn't have reflected all of this new metal stuff that was coming out. Yeah. But it should have just been part of everything else, you know, yeah, yeah. and left to battle with everything else with the confidence in your readers that they can make their own minds up judge you by the writing that wasn't allowed this was 50 you know you have to follow these diktats and it was just just ghastly oh and craig david will go on to score 10 more top 10 hits including collaborations with bastille and sting even though he'd been mortally wounded by Melody Maker. Miss at the back of the Elstree studio tells us that it's time for some unadulterated rock and assumes that we've got amps in our living rooms and our families are all up for a mosh as she introduces Set the Record Straight by Reef. Formed in London in 1993, Reef relocated to Glastonbury and signed to Sony's S2 label in late 1994. After supporting Paul Weller and Soundgarden, they first came to public attention in 1995 when their debut single Good Feeling was used in an advert for the Sony Minidisc. It was the advert where a record company executive lobs their demo out of the window like Fred Durst did, where it's picked up (laughs) by one of the kids who slides it into his Minidisc player and deems it to be wicked and sorted. Good Feeling eventually got to number 24 in April of 1995, sparking a run of five top 20 singles on the bounce, peaking when Place Your Hands got to number 6 in November of 1996. This is the first cut from the forthcoming fourth LP, Get Away, and is the follow-up to New Bird, which only got to number 73 in September of 1999, and it's a new entry this week at number 19. Well, if I'd have turned this on... Back in 2000, I would have said to myself, oh, fucking hell, TFI Friday, fuck off, what's on BBC <laughs> One? Oh, it is, isn't it? It's the sort of band that Chris Evans would book, without a doubt. Well, they were, they were yeah. practically on every week reading the letters or something, didn't they? I don't know, I didn't watch it. They did a version of, um, I think they just recorded it the one time. It was a version of um, Put Your Hands. Uh, place your hands, which went mm. um, instead of uh, put your hands on, it went. It's your letters, and he uh, and which it's oh, so d- it's that's right, comic oh genius. It's God. your letters, and I I have to admit I always I found it. You know there are like stupid things that you always find funny. That was one of those for me. Mm. It was so it was so dumb that I I just chortled mm. merrily at it every time I saw it. But um, well, this is this is the alternative nation fighting back, isn't it? <laughs> right here, <laughs> with oh, their proper God. instruments and proper songs. Proper instruments. Mm. <sighs> it's pretty. They all they they look they look pretty tired, don't they? I mean, they you know they look yeah. awful. Mm-hmm. They look oh, almost a definitive non-sandwich band for me. Um, <laughs> they, they look grubby. 
Um, I can never figure out a band thinking, you know, early on in that evening. Right, we're going to be on top of the pots tonight. What should we wear? Yeah. And, you know, it's turning out like that. Fucking hell. Well, he's had, yeah. Gary's got his hair cut at this point because he always had long sort of surfer hair. And ah, he's right, now yeah. got, yeah, he's, he's now, he's now got a sort of tousled, tousled short do. But, um, mm. yeah, just kind of, and he, he, he had. He's one of those one of those singers who kind of. I, I know I said this about someone else recently who 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 I forget. But when you've got a sort of texture to your voice and you've kind of been told that you've got this unusual powerful voice and everything, you sort of some people sort of rest on their laurels with that and mm. they think that will carry them all the way through. He actually sounds really muted. It's quite. It's a very sort of low key. It doesn't have a lot of energy in it. I know it's supposed to be like that, but it just feels really tired. The interesting mm. thing about this for me is that. Um, the, kind of the one interesting element of this song, which otherwise is, you know, I've forgotten it already, yeah, is that it starts with the backing vocal. There is um, a female uh, backing singer mm. who has mm. the first line. Of, of course, like, as well. Good lord. Uh, uh, yes. Yeah, and you know, so this is great. But she's and she's got like a sweet voice, but she doesn't have like the belting voice. Like this needs to be. If you're going to do this, then you need to belt it. But also, why would you yeah. bother? Because it's it's not really much of a song. But like I said, credit for. Um, for that unusual thing, I cannot think of another record that that starts with a backing vocal like that. And it's like, ah, and then mm. uh, you know, and then after that moment, you go, ah, you know. <laughs> yeah, 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 absolutely. Yeah. It yeah, could be. It, it could, becomes it place could. your hands over your ears, doesn't it? Unfortunately, <laughs> it, it could be. It could be anyone. It could be. It, uh, what mm. this reminds me of is in two thousand. I think I properly started DJing in a nightclub. And um, I DJed like six hours every Saturday night for like 50 quid or something in a crate of beer. Um, but it, it, it was the kind of side room where bands will come on. And what this reminds me of is just that crucial 10 seconds when a band would come on and you'd make that decision. Yup, they're doing that thing. I'm going to go to the smoking area and go and have a fag and yeah. ignore their entire set. Yeah. Because within five seconds of this song starting, you know, oh, right. You know. Oh, right. They're doing that thing. Yes. That thing yeah. that everyone else is fucking doing and everyone else has done. And they're still doing now. Yeah. So yeah, in- instantly forgettable for me. Yeah. Mm. Uh, did, did you ever have any dealings with Reef? Um, I, d- I did the singles with them once and then also I uh, had a phoner with, with Gary at some point subsequent to that, which right. I just remember him being, I remember them being slightly arsy doing the singles and um, not really engaging with it in a very sort of, in, in mm. any sort of deep way. But he was, um, he was, uh, he was dead nice when you, you know, uh, on his own. I did find this often with bands actually is that they would be, they'd be quite arsy and kind of almost macho together. And then you get mm. one of them on their own and they're fine. You know, yeah. it was a I, that was a marked a, a very marked thing that I that I noticed. Yeah. Were they West Country surfers, or am I remembering that wrong? Um, I'm sure they're from Cornwall or something like that. Well, one of them wasn't. I could be totally wrong about it. Well, they 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 lived in Glastonbury, didn't they? But I don't know if they where they were um, from originally. I see. The, the one thing I remember about that is that um, I was slightly late calling him, and I said, um, you know, something about uh, sorry to be a pain, and he said, it's no pain. And it was like that's so nice of you because, like I said, I was quite, I was quite sort of fragile at the time. I was, I found it, I found a lot of the work really hard. I've got to say, a lot of it. Oh, it was all, you know, there was loads of, loads of amazing times, loads of great fun, and loads of everything. But actually, interviewing people, I found incredibly hard. Yeah, yeah um, me too. And particularly phoners, because you just think, oh, why? Oh, they won't want to talk uh, to me. And it's like, yes, yeah. they fucking do. You're giving them publicity. <laughs> that's what they want. Yeah. So it was always nice whenever anybody 
like was was kind in that way i it really fucking helped so you know yeah. uh yeah i knew one of reef before they were reef uh kenwin house he went to my university and my housemate was knocking him off at the time and uh-huh. uh he came round one night we were having a smoke and everything and he uh detected my accent and uh, he said, you from Nottingham? And I said, yeah. He says, oh, so am I. I said, what part? Oh, Carlton. Oh, right. You wouldn't happen to know Mad Phil, would you? And he went, no, you don't know <laughs> Mad Phil, do you? I said, yeah, yeah, yeah. I went to college with him. He, he was my mate and he was, he was fucking mental. Um, his, his main characteristics were he used to come to college dressed up like Oscar Wilde. Uh, he was obsessed with... Rush, <laughs> The Smiths, and Barry Manilow. It's an interesting mix. And if you were in town, he'd turn around and say, if you don't buy me a marathon right now, I'm going to start screaming in the middle of the street. <laughs> and you'd just go, oh, fuck off. And he'd just stand there and scream and scream and scream. And he's like, right, okay, here's your fucking marathon. And the one thing we really bonded on was his, uh, uh, was his penchant for uh, just sitting with a load of people and just suddenly going... <laughs> so, yeah, we had a right old chit-chat about Mad Phil. And his girlfriend got really pissed off uh, with me because, you know, he, was, he should be attending to mm-hmm, her needs mm-hmm. instead of reminiscing. So, yeah, nice bloke he was. And, you know, when things started to happen for Ruth, he was like, oh, fucking hell, good on you. Didn't mean I had to like no. him, but it was like, oh, well done. I'd rather hear a band fronted by Mad Phil by the sounds of it. Um, yes, Mad Phil. Mad Phil nailed on entrant for next week's top ten. <laughs> I can imagine Mad Phil and the Gummy Woman doing a Christmas duet. Actually, that would be great. Because you know, some voices just rub you up the wrong way. The lead singer of Reef's voice. Yeah. It's just, I just find it gross. Mm. I, I just want him to clear his fucking throat. Cough, man. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, but that's gritty authenticity, isn't it? It's phlegm is what it is. <laughs> He's got a really tiny little jacket on and his shirt's hanging out the bottom. Mm. And it's like, no, you're skinny. You don't have to do yeah. that anymore. Yeah. <laughs> that long bit of shirt hanging out under a coat or a jumper, that's that's a fat lad's thing. <laughs> you don't need it, mate. But that was the, the trouble is with, I mean, with lad's couture... At that time, everyone yes. wearing expensive duds, like Oasis yeah. did. The trouble was, yeah. they didn't make them... Like, Craig David's jumper may well have been, yeah. I don't know, 20 quid from CNA. It probably wasn't, obviously. But no. it looked it looked slick. Whereas, Reef could have worn anything and still made it look scruffy as fuck. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. 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 I think they might have been told to, uh, you know, that, that what they look like at this point might be the result of somebody saying... Can you change it up a bit? Yeah. Can you not? Because they used to be more than that. They used to be proper kind of, uh, you know, ravey sort of baggy, mm-hmm. you know, surfy clobber. Mm. So this is like there. Somebody has had a go and they've gone, Gary. Why don't you cut your yeah. hair? Yeah, yeah, yeah. I don't know. Maybe he. Who knows? Look, his 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 master of his own barnet. Maybe he did it. Maybe he just mm. wanted a change. But you never know, do you? With with these things, rock bands have this thing of kind of like yeah, the artifice, the cosmetic stuff. That's what that's what pop musicians do. But I, I know innumerable tales of bands who've just been cleaned up and have been given a shitload of money by their record company to get new clothes and change their look. Too fit, and I think that's exactly what's happening with Reef here. Mm. And they look a little bit uncomfortable. Yeah. He looks a little bit uncomfortable. There's a, sl- a slight lack of confidence there. I kind of felt for him actually because it's like I, I he used to sort of you know gallivant about in this uh, you know this kind of 
slightly uh you know guerrillary kind of way um and and just that is that energy is not there mm. yeah know? so it's kind of a it's a little bit of a it's a little bit of a, yeah, there's a, there's a lot really. of going through the motions here, isn't there? I mean, there's a bit where there's there's some standing up on the bass drum, like Freddie Mercury <laughs> did in the video for Play the Game. But but, but Freddie Mercury, this is not. No. no, 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 no. And they, I believe they no. named themselves, obviously the reef connection of the surfing, but I think yeah. they named themselves as well because it was an anagram of Free, one of their favourite yes. bands. And uh, the, the, you can just see what's gone wrong with Ladrock here because Free were a silky, gorgeous, funky band. They were amazing. And, and to yes. see it turn into this lumpenness. Um, yeah. Mm. And, and like you, Al, I couldn't believe they were still going. 2000. I thought they were all over mm. by about 97 or something like that. Yeah. I think they're still going now, though. Nothing, nothing in some dies form. anymore. Yeah. Nothing splits up. No. Nothing goes away. <laughs> It just waits for its next chance for a bank raid and it's back. So the following week, set the record straight, dropped 23 places to number 42. The follow-up, Superhero, only got to number 55 in December of this year and they would never trouble the top 40 again, splitting up for the first time after three more flop singles in 2003. (laughs) (laughs) Jason Chu. Wookie began his career as a producer for the singer Wayne Marshall until they fell out over the publishing for the single ORG Spot, which got to number 29 in October of 1994. After linking up with the Soul to Soul Collective in the mid-90s, he remixed tracks by Destiny's Child, Public Enemy and Nas, and by 1999 he'd become one of the prime movers in the UK garage scene, scoring a club hit with a single Scrapper and remixing Sunshine for Gabrielle, which got to number nine in October of that year. This collaboration with the vocalist Lane Gray is the follow-up to What's Going On, which got to number 45 in June of this year, and it's a new entry this week at number 10. Wow. You just listen to this, and you just think, what the fuck has anybody got against Garage? This is fucking skill. Well, quite. And the crowd's response to it shows yes. you it's skill. They're, they're loving it, and they're dancing, and they're singing along to it. And and their performance is great. Like most of the Garage people on this episode, they can do Top of the Pops all right. They can do it brilliantly. Yes, they can, yeah. What you can hear in this is the strange mutations that Garage is going through, informed mm. by, you know, look look higher up the charts, we'll see later in the rundown. You've got Aaliyah, you've got Destiny's Child. Mm. You've, we've had five years of Timberland by now, you know, changing the way that people hear beats and bass. And yeah. you can hear it percolating into this music. So the reason Melody Maker has a problem with this sort of thing, I mean, apart from the obvious racial problem it has with it, is that it's a kind it's a hybrid music which is always mm. going to be a bit of a problem the press don't yeah. tend to like it because what you can hear here you know not to, to use a, a music crit phrase it's the hardcore continuum as they say it, mm. it, what you can hear here is where jungle and bashment and techno and all of these 
what the sound of the pirates basically for most of the yes. noughties uh, for yes. most of the 90s has ended up here and overnight it's kind of gone into the charts it's gone from the streets to the charts without the press having a say really and they don't like that no. either no um yeah, yeah. you know so it, i i found it an endless battle in 98 i was yeah. writing about people like mj cole and people like wookie in the singles column i was allowed to by mm. 2000 i wasn't allowed to i was writing about people like zed bias and and and, and, and just brilliant brilliant music um mm. By 2001, the year after this, UK Garage is already, already mutating onwards, perhaps into grime. It's mm. bitterly disappointing to me that we never got a chance to cover UK Garage because an awful lot of the writers, uh, I know for a fact that several of us writers love this music and would have loved mm. to have written about it and were yeah. dancing to it regularly. And uh, we just we just never got the chance. Instead, we cop this anti-garage stance, which really is an anti-technological Luddite stance about music. It's a great tune, and it, and it's one of the highlights of this episode. I think it's the highlight of the episode. Mm. Sarah, was this kind of music doing anything for you at the time? Uh, n- less at the time. I I couldn't I couldn't really find I couldn't really find a way into it at the time. Uh, but mm. as MJ Cole is coming up later, I really really like that track. Um, mm. A lot of the rest of it, I kind of couldn't connect to. I do remember this. I do remember finding this verse really. I mean, some things would not hit me in the right way. It's like you know, sometimes mm. you, you get something that's really original and sort of startling, and you go, "I, I don't know about that." Um, and so I, mm. I was slightly. It's like I said, there's a there's a sort of hectic energy about it that kind of doesn't didn't quite sit right with me. But you know, I listen to it now and go, "Yeah, this is really good. It's really inventive, and it's got a really good energy yeah. to it." Yeah. And you know, it was like the ver- I know the verse through me because it's very sort of sort of staccato like mm. this, and and I kind of yeah. went, where does that you know what's what's that? Yeah. What you know? Yeah. There's there's just there's slight. It's like if you play music to a dog and the dog will go, uh. So the, the like my dog brain was going, uh, what? <laughs> and then it's like, no, there's no. This is actually. This is actually good shit. There's, you know, um, and I yeah. feel bad that I kind of didn't appreciate it at the time and that I didn't explore it more. Um, like yeah. I said, because it's, I was saying like, well, not everything has to be for me, but sometimes you don't, I've, I, I definitely would not pursue stuff because mm. I, I suppose I didn't have, it's a, com- it, it sounds weird, but there's a kind of a confidence thing. And mm. I would sort of go, okay, that isn't for me. And it probably, um, I should sort of leave it alone because I'm going to, if I have to kind of struggle to get into it, then mm. um, there's probably... And I, I've missed out on so much stuff through having that kind of timidity about it and not going, yeah. why not I just barrel on ahead and see, you know, yeah. and I've sort of uh, sort of bounced off things. Um, but yeah, there's, um, there's like you were saying, like, it gets the crowd going. There's a girl in like a, in a satin handkerchief crop top. Yes. Giving it loads. And I was like, yes. yeah, that girl. And like right yeah. in front of the of the DJ. And, and, and singing along as well. Mm. Yeah, 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 yeah. Which is which yeah. is quite odd for a song that's only just come out. Yeah, because the, because somehow they've got fans in there. But that's what's thrilling mm. about this. That what what's thrilling about a lot of the UK garage stuff that year, I find, is that you see it on top of the pops, and what you see again is always this thing that's thrilling on top of the pops: weird noises exciting people. So yeah. it's the strange, <laughs> it's the strange effects in garage records, and we'll see that definitely the MJ Cole thing later. Um, that are so thrilling about this. And, and, and this is, this is analogous to something as distant as perhaps, you know, like the middle bit of this town ain't big enough for the both of us by Sparks, where it's all gunfire yeah. and guitar solos. It's a strange sonic moment. And to yeah. see a crowd of kids. 
getting down to it. It's a fantastic thing. And I'm feeling the same thing with, with this track and also the MJ Cole track later. Um, mm. So, you know, this is precisely the kind of thing that Melody Makers should have at least been writing about and not denigrating in the way that they did. This would have washed over me at the time. I, I, I just wasn't in a position to hear mm-hmm. it. I wasn't listening to radio at the time. And if I had have heard it, it would have been, oh, uh, that's that's oh, that's a thing, is it? But now I listen to it and I just go, fucking hell, this is mint. And I wish yeah. I'd have investigated. But the whole ethos of Garage put me off. I mean, dance music by the late 90s and, uh, you know, uh, turn of the century, it had started getting really exclusive. Yeah. You know, the, the yeah. garage clubs were, you know, no trainer, tracksuit or visor. Yeah, um, yeah, yeah. And, yeah, yeah. and th- there was all this super club bollocks that I was just not interested in at all. So, mm. yeah, it was, it, in, a, in a way, it was getting a bit like Studio 54, wasn't it? Yeah, it's a clean scene. It, it's not, yeah. there's no dirt in this music. Do you know what I mean? No, there's nothing no. fuzzy about it. It's very mm. clean and pristine. And I understand how that initially could put a lot of people off. But the key thing is, I think, is, is obviously we're hearing it on top of the pops. When you hear this stuff on big speakers, it do, I, don't, I don't want to say you had to be there, but when no. you hear it on big speakers in a club, it suddenly makes a sense yeah. that it perhaps doesn't make, you know, when you're just listening at home, perhaps. Yeah. There was definitely that thing as, as with uh, Jungle before it, I think, which was kind of a, not necessarily a backlash against um, uh, Acid House and Rave, but a pushback where it mm. was like... Uh, right, instead of just wearing our pajamas to go out, um, we're gonna actually dress up. You know, we're gonna we're gonna put on some heels. We're gonna get made up. We're gonna get our hair did. You know, yeah. so it's it's that, isn't it? It's like it's a club thing. It's a bar thing as well. I mean, my bloke was yeah. pointing out this is probably um, this was this was stuff that was played a lot in. It's it's not just clubs. It's it's bars. It's, yeah, you yeah. Know, it's like where you go, and it's when bars become bars start to become more like club environments. Yes. And this is the kind of, you know, this is the kind of stuff. It's like that's pre-club. Mm. Yeah, yeah. And he was also saying that, like, um, there's, it's kind of, it's, there's an interesting thing about UK Garage, which is it's like two genres kind of cut and shut together. At one end, there's kind of the, co- the sort of coffee table sophisticated end of it. And sophisticated mm. in, in possibly another sense, you know, that, uh, what do I mean? You know what I mean? That the smooth sound, basically. Yeah, and then there's yeah. kind of the hard urban edge at the at, at the other end, and, and you know all sorts mm. in between, which is quite, which is which is very interesting. And, and a lot of people kind of didn't know how to make sense of it, you know, including including yeah. me. So totally, you know, yeah. it it was definitely a thing that I mean, there was no way I was a scruff bag. There was no way that I I couldn't connect to the sort of that getting properly done up thing. I was never mm. that sort of, you know, that that's not, I would not have been let into any of these clubs. You know, I didn't really know no. how, to, how yeah, to do yeah, that, yeah. you know. No, no. I mean, I mean, Wookiee and Lane, I mean, they, they, they like, like a lot of male garage artists, they look and dress like Premier League footballers. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. You look at yeah. them, if you didn't know who they were and they didn't have microphones in your hand, says, oh, are they, are they, are they playing for Arsenal at the minute? Are they French <laughs> or something like that? And you know this is a this is an era when saying that someone dressed like a footballer wasn't an insult anymore. <laughs> you know it means you could afford decent shit. Mm. Yeah, I mean the 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 split really. I mean I keep making it racial. The split really well, it is, is racial, isn't it? It is. It does have that racial thing to it. But the the deeper split, I think, that Melody Maker were trying to to address one side of is is that old ancient split between I guess what you call townies mm. and what you'd call mm. everyone else. 
And, and yeah. this would be this would be seen by so many people as towny music, essentially. Mm. Do you know what I mean? For those yeah. clubs that we don't go to. Yeah. Um, and and yeah, I think and, that that was part of the problem in the perception yeah. of the UK garage at the time. Yeah, and as and as time went on, you know, throughout the decade, it would be music would be chavs and indie boys, and mm. there'd be no mm. no diversion from that. No. You see, that is a that is a real shame when you start to get. I mean, it couldn't. You know, um, obviously, Acid House could not last. It wasn't. Look, it, it wasn't. Mm. Uh, you know, the Big Bang, and also it couldn't last forever. But how? But there is a sadness in that there is something that is lost that was once mm. very briefly regained, where everybody went to the thing together. Yeah. And there was no, mm. there weren't these, you know, there weren't these divisions. And that was, you know, mm. uh, I don't care what anyone says, that was a beautiful thing. So when you start to to get this re-stratification and it's like, yeah, you don't belong in this bit and you don't, you know, it's not, yeah, yeah. it's fine if that's, if that is your, pre- yeah, everybody has preferences. But mm. when there's this kind of, uh, there's this kind of different sorts of gatekeeping, um, it's, you know, it's always, it's always a bit of a bummer, isn't it? Well, it yeah. could have been, it could have been thrilling in that, in that, you know, Melody Maker could have put, I, I know I'll keep going on about this, but we could have put So Solid on the cover, say, in 2001. Because yeah. So Solid were a crew. They, they, they could have done all the things that we like our front cover stars to do. Outrageous yeah. quotes, amazing pictures, all the yeah. things that we were supposedly getting from Oasis. We could have genuinely got from, mm. from So Solid. Um, yeah. but we never got the chance to have that confrontation. Rather, what we opted for was this separatism, this kind of going mm. into our own congregation and our own church, and it, and it proved fatal. So the following week, Battle dropped nine places to number 19. Fucking Britain. You deserve Brexit, you cunts. <laughs> <laughs> then it nudged up one place to number 18 and then fell out the chart. The follow-up, Get Enough, only got to number eight there, and the duo would have one more chart hit when Back Up To Me got to number 38 in May of 2001. to the sides of the stage by some pillars tells us not to be fooled by the title of the next song I Can Only Disappoint You by Manson Formed in Chester in 1995 by two photo retouchers who were working for rival companies on the same industrial estate Grey Lantern were discovered by two A&R men who had come to see cast in their rehearsal studio and overheard them in the next room After signing a publishing deal, they changed their name to Manson, with the same spelling as the Mad American bloke, and put out their debut single, Take It Easy Chicken, on their own label, Sci-Fi Hi-Fi. It was played by John Peel, and without playing one single gig, they found themselves the subject of a bidding war, eventually signing to Parlophone. 
After binning off a drummer who threw a pineapple at guitarist Dominic Chad's face while they were supporting Shed 7, their new drummer refusing to join unless they promised not to play Britpop shite and Chad getting the group banned from every happy eater in the country, they were forced to change the spelling of their name by the estate of Charles Manson. <laughs> their first visit to Chartland happened in December of 1995 when Skin Up Pin Up got to 91, sparking a run of 11 top 40 hits, three of which made the top 10. And this single, the first cut from their third LP, Little Kicks, which is out next week, is the follow-up to Six, which got to number 16 in February of 1999. And it's a new entry this week at number eight. Well, I must admit, before I watched this episode, I wouldn't have known Manson if they'd have shagged me mum, to be honest. (laughs) Oh, did you say 11 top 40 hits? Yeah. 11? I don't... Oh, man, really? All I remember by Manson... Um, is Wide Open Space. I think that was probably yeah. one of their biggest hits, which was okay-ish. Um, um, but at least, I mean, at that point, when the record labels were looking for the next big um, white rock guitar band to a certain extent, Manson were at least, uh, they yeah. seemed ambitious yeah. in their music. Their, their songwriting was yeah. a bit different. They didn't do that Larry Lad thing, and, and they wore makeup and they kind of mixed glam and yeah. post punk up a little bit in a way that probably prefigured a lot of Naughty's bands. Um, I'd never heard this single before, um, but I actually really, right. really liked it. I, 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 I liked the fact that the band don't really seem mm. to quite fit together. Um, the guitarist really just seemed like he's been airlifted yeah. in from another band because uh, he's fully yeah. 60s psych. He's got, kind of got yes, that Brian yes. Jones thing going on. Uh, whereas the rest of them haven't. And the lead singer, Paul, certainly he, he's like Morton mm. Harkett or something. He's very poised and very 80s. Um, and that, that that's mirrored in the sound of it. You've got the, you've got the guitar kind of uh, doing quite psychedelic stuff, but his singing and the actual song itself, it's, it's classic European mm. pop in a sense. In the ABBA aha mode so I need to check the album that this is out from even though it's recommended in Melody Maker's 50 <laughs> yes. Reasons for the Rock Renaissance um, because clearly it might be a bit of a corker I, I kind of had more, I wouldn't say I've got more, I had more important things on my mind at the time but I certainly wasn't looking mm. for another big indie band so um, I, but I was slightly persuaded by the fact that people that I really trust like Pricey mainly yes, loved yes. this band, so clearly I cl- clearly I need to uh, investigate them them further. Out of all the guitar music on this show, this is head yeah, and shoulders. Yeah, you can add me to else. that. Um, I I liked them very very much. I would put them in the kind of they're that sort of sidelong alley of uh, against Britpop, you know, sort of clinging mm. to the side of it, but mm. but trying to do something different, a bit more inventive, a bit more unusual, and a bit you know they do have that sort of whiff of of, of queerness about them. You know, there's yeah. a slightly mm. you know they're not like a, a a kind of standard macho laddie sort of sort of outfit and yeah, yeah they did some they did some really interesting stuff and um and i i like them a lot you know because they kind of did some willful um uh, fucking about with their own sound which is always interesting when when people do that you know with mixed results but you always it's like that's a good thing to do in and of itself is to just you know um i mean i'd, I'd kind of i sort of put them in the lineage you know it, it they're kind of there's a bit of suede in there and I sort of put them sort of next to long pigs although I mean long pigs were um who who I loved you know to distraction mobile home still one of my favorite albums and occasionally I'll meet someone who goes that 
Mobile Home, it is like the great lost album. It's like, yes, yes, it is. And we'll get excited about it. And that was like, that was like mm. my fucking comfort teddy bear at this time as well, because it came out in 99. And I, I just kind of, um, you know, that was like my, <laughs> my safe place to run into was that album. Um, but this album also, yeah, was, was really great. Um, and this is a, you know, this is a great song. It goes to show how the kind of doctrinaire stance of the Melody Maker was unfair to everybody. Because much as in the 90s, bands like Super Furries getting pulled into Britpop was disgraceful and kind of didn't really reflect what the Super Furries were, were all about. Now we've got yeah. bands like Manson pulled into this kind of rock renaissance thing where clearly they don't quite yeah. fit in that and they're doing something completely different. There was there was a resistance mm. to the ladification of rock in bands like Manson. I'd also include things like Gene and Geneva and uh, King Adora and all. Uh, I was going to say, yeah, these yeah, are the people yeah, who yeah, did yeah. glam it up, who did me- you know get the makeup on and aimed for something different musically and visually. Um, but because of uh, the, the the stance of the maker at the time, they're just pulled into all this rock silage when when they were you know a little bit above that the only thing i can add to this was uh if i'd have known that this band existed at the time and i, and I certainly didn't i would have immediately been pissed off them by using the letter u uh, instead of y-o-u yeah. because it's like well no 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 you're not prince you're not allowed <laughs> and it was at this time where i think i just got a mobile phone and I was already getting fucked off by my friends texting me and sounding like Prince <laughs> after a brain hemorrhage. And, and also that spelling, that spelling of Manson is, I mean, looked at like that, Manson. Yeah. I mean, that is a terrible name for a band. I, I always had big problems with bands yeah. named after serial killers anyway. They could have called themselves the Yorkshire Ripper. <laughs> but uh, yeah, I mean... Dunnis Nilton. Ultimately, Rock has to make a decision. It is Fred Wurst. <laughs> are these ki- are these killers worth celebrating? Fred, Fred, Fred Wurst. It, it's something I confronted Marilyn Munson about. You know, because all of his band they were like called Twiggy yeah. Ramirez, and they're a combination of models and killers. Yeah. And I just said, "Is this worth celebrating?" Yeah. He couldn't really come up with a decent reason why it is. I don't ah. think it is excusable. Granted, mm. serial killers have often been a motif. In rock and roll, just being a killer has been a motif, motif in rock and yeah. roll all the way back to Jerry Lee Lewis. But by this yeah. time, is Charles Manson a racist, boring, um, failed musician? You, well, yeah, leader of a cult that killed innocent people. Is that worth sort of celebrating or emulating? I don't think so. But I'm nitpicking, really. It's a good song. And he's a he's a fucking boring hippie mm, yeah, as well. Terrible musician and. <laughs> Fucking. And a racist yes. cunt as well. So, yeah, um, I, exactly, not exactly, yeah. I don't know. I, I wouldn't toy with that shit in my band name. And I think they could have come up with a better band name, but by then it was probably too late. Even Manson is better than what they were called before. But um, I'm nitpicking. This is, a, this is a good song. This is a suggestion that there is a way of doing guitar music without fucking being reef. Um, so yeah, mm. to be applauded, I think, in the context of this episode. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Uh, yeah. Kasabian, I'll just get them fucking Lester. Like, yes. <laughs> <laughs> but you know, that's the world we live in, Neil. You know, you know, there are the, 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 there are people right now listening to podcasts about uh, uh, serial killers. They're getting far more listeners than us. <laughs> you know, if only a few more fucking serial killers had made pop records. We'd we'd have a bigger audience. It's not it's not fair. Don't, don't get me wrong. When I was thirteen, fourteen, I obsessively read about serial killers. I even had my favourites. You know, mm. I could have. In fact, yeah. maybe that'll be my not next top ten, top ten serial killers. Ed Kemper's yes. got to be top. But yeah, by the time you're forming a band, I think you can think better. Who? Ed, Ed, Edmund Kemper, um, American serial killer. Go on. Um, 
the reason he was my favourite was just really, for, I mean, the details of his crimes were pretty appalling, but there was one little detail that always tickled me, and that was that he used mm. to decapitate his victims and bury their heads in his back garden with their eyes open, looking up at his window so he could successfully have a wank every night. And, and little details oh, like that man. just sealed him to oh. my teenage memory quite a lot. Um, obviously, it's appalling oh, being it's appalling being quote unquote into these horrific things. But I think by the time you're 16, 17, you should have bloody grown out of it. Mm. To be honest with you, so um, yeah, Matt's enough no excuse. Well, I, I I get that. I get that. There's a fascination. I mean, I I have quite a fascination for for ghoulish stuff like that, mm. and I've got a really strong stomach. And there is just a, a kind of a pure fascination about it and it's it which is bigger than than the horror Mm. you know so i don't get repelled by that i just go wow what makes a person like that what makes a person do that and i understand also that there is an artistic justification for toying with that taking that sort of thing putting it in a different context but it can be you've just Mm. got to be so careful you've got to you've got to have had a good breakfast to be able to get away yeah. with that. Do you yeah, know? Yeah. You've got to be like tough and sort of ment- kind of intellectually rigorous about it. Well, this is it. I mean, um, which yeah. of course most people aren't. Most people are just like, Oh, this is rocking. So it is an odd thing. Like Manson are so oddly named because they're quite a sort of serious and sensitive and off kilter band. And so it's quite, yeah. and they, they, you know, who also have a real knack for a good uh, pop hook, you know, you know they're they're a pop band yeah. basically, and so it is. It is a, there is a bit of dissonance there. Like why I can't really connect this name to this band. I'm not really sure what they're doing. Mm. But ultimately, it just becomes it just becomes a, a, a you know it just becomes a name, doesn't it? It's yeah. not really attached well, to anything. Essentially, it's superficial no. and and kind of which is fine. And Primal Scream played with the same kind of thing, uh, name dropping Charles Manson and, and just trying to sum up sum up that. Manson ultimate moment where the 60s turned into the 70s and it, and it went all wrong. But of course, if you dig mm. any deeper into Manson, you realise that he had extensive racial theories that, you know, the blacks were going to rise up and take yeah. over America and we had to fight a race war. That kind of stuff seemingly doesn't get mentioned whenever rock and roll wants to repedal Charles Manson. It's, it's neatly forgotten about. Yeah. Mm. Yeah. And of course, um, a year before this episode went out, I think it was a year before, uh, he appeared in court under the name M-A-N-S-U-N. So, yeah, they could have sued him. (laughs) Yeah. And before we move on, Neil, I I, I need to know, you know when this bloke was wanking Hmm. at the window, you know, while looking at these heads Hmm. in his garden, did he have the window open? (laughs) No, I need to know. I'm not sure. I don't know about that. And there was... That's going to bother me now. I think, well, considering where he lived, I think it was Wisconsin. It would have been quite cold. Um, he probably, yeah. I mean, True. not that I've thought about it that much, but I presume he kept the kept the window shut, wiped his cock on the curtains, all done. Yeah. Did he? Yeah. Did he have to actually be able to see it, or is it's it an imagination thing? Yes, it's just were... the knowledge that they yeah, were out yeah. there with their eyes open, staring up at his bedroom window. Thing is, also you'd have to time that really well. Like you know, I, eyes don't last. They're very. They're mostly water. They mm. don't last very long. They would. Oh God! You see? Do you see? I've, yeah. I've like. It, yeah. it doesn't take much to get sucked into this stuff. And is it? What do you have? What do you have? A sprinkler system or something to keep the birds away? <laughs> I think he had a lot on yeah. at the time. Yeah. <laughs> so the following week, I can only disappoint you dropped 17 places to number 25. The follow-up 
Electric Man, only got to number 23 in November of this year. Diminishing Returns set in, and they split up in 2003. But uh, uh, appears your man Paul Draper, the lead singer, he kind of made a bit of a reappearance of, of late. Didn't they? Yeah, that's uh, yeah. We we kind mm. of have to. <laughs> we we should, in the interest of balance, really say this. Um, yeah, it's um, he's he's been uh, how you say showing his ass on uh, on Twitter. Mm. Um, three yes. three a.m. tweeting is 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 uh, it, it only, never good. It only goes one way. Um, so yeah, I mean, mm. basically, long story short, uh, two female journalists discussing uh, uh, basically misogyny in music, terrible men in music being awful. And uh, the man's yeah, in the wake of Ryan Adams. In the wake of Ryan Adams, it's with specific reference to Ryan Adams, but in in general, just mm. men being terrible. Um, and uh, the Manson Twitter account bade them fuck off. Um, mm. So you know, and people have kind of read into this as you know, it, it's not. There's no good way to spin it, really, is there? That's no. You know what? What's what's he doing? Um, also, you know, there there are quite a lot of stories of him. You know being terrible in one way or another mm. um and you know mm. i i have um you know i have some first-hand accounts of this um so yeah i mean i'm mm. it's difficult isn't it because you know i'm not uh i'm not in uh i don't want to sort of mindlessly endorse um you know so i might row back slightly yeah. on my recommendation but also i'm not going to ceremonially burn my copy of my promo copy of little kicks so you know yeah because it was it was essentially Caitlin Moran. Uh, I haven't got the tweet in front of me. Mm. Basically saying that she, she's seen a lot of this sort of thing with Ryan Adams in uh, other indie bands, y- yeah. and uh, and the tweet was just fuck off. Mm. And you know, a lot of people piled onto him. I mean, but, but personally, as someone who knows absolutely fuck all about Manson or the music scene of the time, mm. you know, I could take that as him saying, "Don't tar me with the same brush." You know? It is a bit. You are kind of. It is a bit of a self call out, though. If it's like, uh, you know, I know oh, you yeah. see this all the time on on Twitter and on Facebook. To be honest, it's like people kind of. Uh, it's very sort of not all men, you know. Excuse me, yeah. we're not. You know, we're, we're not all like that. And it's like, well, if if we're not talking, if we're going, oh God, the terribleness of men, and then uh, you mm. know, you you sort of chime in and go, well, we're not all like that. Then what you're basically doing, you're, you're basically saying that you have you're a bit stung by what has been said about the, the terribleness of men. Yeah. But also it, it tends to look like you're defending yourself against a personal accusation yeah. and that reflects badly on you. It's like, is that, you know, have you immediately jumped to your own defence because you feel a bit guilty about something? And a lot mm. of the time this is subconscious and, oh God, and we're all, look, everyone is extremely tired by this. Yeah. Um, the, tweet, the tweet has now been deleted, by the way, but obviously it doesn't yeah. matter. There's a million screenshots. Yes. Um, it's, it's a weird thing to be discussing, isn't it? Just kind of like a guy said fuck off at 3am. And ha- yeah. who who among us has not said fuck off to someone well, at 3am? Yes. I know I have. But <laughs> the thing is that when you get this kind of tidal wave of, of a kind of raising of, of consciousness and awareness about these things, mm. it is quite, it, there is a sort of scariness about it when you kind of go, oh my God, who who's going to be held up for what? And it is, there is a, a general desire to hold people to account for the bad shit they've done. Mm. Um, obviously, there are different levels of that. You can't, you know, you're not going to compare everybody to Jimmy Savile, um, mm. who was an entire one-man army of horrible stuff that you must not do to people. But um, that doesn't mean that people should not be pulled up 
on mm. their shittiness that they have got away with for a long time. And a lot of the time it just gets absorbed because people, mostly women, to be honest, absorb it because that's mm. what we've been taught to do. And, you know, for this sort of nebulous idea of the greater good or because you know that you won't be taken seriously, all that kind of thing. And we are getting to this the, these kind of very nuanced things now where it's like, well, does this constitute... Um, you know, have you done a bad? Is it just that you're kind of a dick? Mm. You know, th- these are the we are getting to this kind of level of like, well, this would always be this could be excused away for decades as just like, wow, that guy's kind of a dick. And it's like, is it is it more is is it okay to brush that aside? Should we actually you know look at it a bit more closely? So, so I don't know. Like I said, I'm not going to. I I don't want to be a fence sitting neutral prick because you know um but also you do have to kind of wait for things to to shake out in a certain way Mm. um there is some sort of a re-release um happening soon so he can't listen the guy cannot be in a very he's there's got to be something wrong there if this is the kind of this is what's happening in the run-up to a re-release of your music yeah so um i don't know he seems he seems like he seems like he's got some issues. I mm. hope he gets some help. Right. Oh, God, it's all so complicated and so yeah, tiring. Yeah, it's fucking so complicated, man. It's so tiring. Fuck this century. Yeah, abs- absolutely. Fuck it in, in, in all the ways. Um, we, we spent the past God knows how many minutes talking about someone saying fuck off on Twitter. Yes. You know, at, at the end of the day, that's what it is. Mm-hmm. Yeah, but it's not. It, that's not a thing in isolation. It has a context. Yes, it does. Yeah. You know, and but... therefore, and also we can't just, it is a bit of a shirking of responsibility to just talk about um, people's um, people's music and go, well, what they do in their personal life is nothing to do with me. That's kind of, you know, mm. um, I, I feel like we're, we, you know, you, you do have to get into people's extracurricular um, <laughs> activities mm. a little bit. You know, I feel like it's, a, yeah, and I'm sure we'll be doing that. In the future, and I'm really not looking forward to that, but um, it's got to be done sometimes. Painfully embarrassed at the shitty Edmundsian punnage she's about to unleash upon us as she introduces a tune which is storming up the charts and burning up the dance floor. It's time to burn by Storm. Formed in Frankfurt in 1991, Storm were a house due comprising of Rolf Elmer and Marcus Loffel, otherwise known as Trancy Spacer and Spacey Trancer. <laughs> I'm originally and probably best known as Jam and Spoon. 
After skirting the top 40 twice in 1992, they had their first UK hit in 1994 when Right in the Night got to number 31 for two weeks in February of that year and then got to number 10 in June of 1996. They spent 1995 recording under the name of Tokyo Ghetto Pussy, having a number 26 hit with everybody on the floor, Pump It, (laughs) and changed their name to Storm in 1998, when their single Storm got to number 32 in August of that year. This is the follow-up, and after it got to number 77 last month, it was re-released on a different label, and it's crashed into the charts at number three, the second highest new entry of the week. Now, because two German lads on some decks and a keyboard isn't really cutting it visually in the year 2000, they've recruited Lucifer, a former research chemist from Dundee, who is currently a grotesque burlesque performer, and she's combining both careers in this performance. Where do we start here, chaps? The music or the, the thing? I think we can deal with the music pretty quickly. Yes. There was, there was loads of this about. There were piles of it. There were yes. skips of this music. <laughs> Yes, you're sitting around. We've, we we all had yeah. piles of it out back, you know. There was just loads of this kind of yes. nosebleedy type techno, and and yeah. and it it was there. And and like most of the things that we see emerging in 2000, they've never gone away. They're still around. We've still got piles of it. Yeah. And um, yeah, f- uh, as a track, fairly indistinguishable from other tracks like that, and really only making sense off your tits in a club. Yeah, I I enjoyed it. It's a nice mindless banger, is this? Oh. It's just I know that I said I wasn't really you know I I wouldn't I said I wouldn't want to go to a night full of this stuff. Um, <laughs> the, the drugs have not yet yeah. been invented that would enable me to have a good time doing that. However, it's a it, you know it's a nice fun bit of throwaway um, yeah. trance really. Um, and yeah, and as for um, yeah, as for the, the I I love that they've got Lucifer on there doing fire eating and mm. and mouthing. It's time to burn. Um, yes. It's because it's some fucking <laughs> spectacle, and you don't get you know. There's a lot of uh, a lot of top of the pops has got away with a lot of performers have got away with not really putting on a show, and yeah. you know it's um and and obviously sometimes they've done some really desperate and weird stuff that hasn't quite worked and this is just so simple mm. and so basic and exciting yeah. like if you were in you know you'd think you'd lucked out that night cuz there's a sexy girl in a sort of mm. pvc cord with flames on yes. it and you know juggling yes. fire and spitting it out everywhere and yeah it's just what's not yeah. to like about I that? mean this kind of music should have been yesterday's thing by the year 2000 but clearly there's enough people who, who still want this sort mm. of thing in their life yeah. and the weird thing is even though it's often drug associated i don't associate this mu- this kind of music i don't actually associate with being on drugs and dancing to it what i associate it with is being on drugs and suddenly realizing how fucked you are and how high you are and <laughs> and, and hearing this kind of thing and what sort of almost waking up and think, where the fuck am I? And, and, <laughs> no, do you know what I mean? Those moments yeah. in a club where you lose yourself, sort and of then you sort of, yeah, and you suddenly spring awake-ish, and you realise, oh my god, this is going to now last for about seven hours. Where <laughs> am I? <laughs> and it's yeah. that kind of sound, and it's got an element of lager house to it as well, hasn't mm. it? It's a bit. Mm. It's it, there is a, a, a sort of a puddle. It is kind of standing in a puddle of lager house. Yes. Mm. Yeah. Yeah. But but I found the performance by the Fire Eater. I mean, it was compelling. Don't get me wrong. Yes. But I was I was on the edge of my seat. I mean, because I've seen Fire Eaters on like yes. Paul Daniels and stuff. And yeah, it's yeah. very impressive. 
but the repeated long insertion of flames into a god, yeah, and then yeah. running them up her arms and stuff. I was yeah. just, I was just, oh my god, that that's got to fucking hurt. But Do you then, think yeah. she's? I thought she might have been pushing herself because it was top of the pops, you know, and maybe yeah. taking risks because like it, it top looked of the pops as well. <laughs> yeah, it looked like I was, I was fretful for her throughout mm. the performance. Kept me on edge, definitely. But they know what they they know what they're doing though. I mean they they yes. kind of they have special stuff that they cope themselves with and so mm. um, someone that yeah. I um uh Yeah might... but she, she she's got she's got a tongue stud as well man. It's like fucking hell that must be red hot. That is hardcore, isn't it? Really? Yeah. But she looks so calm. I mean that's the thing. She's yes. she's a pro. She just looks completely mm, yes. um serene. It's amazing. but there is that great shamanistic I love it when you get an element of that because I know we've we've all kind of seen it so anyone who's been to a festival has seen that kind of thing but there's something yes. you're never going to get over it because it's you know holy shit this is a thing that humans are not really supposed to be able to do so you know mm. it's going to blow your mind every time well round about this time she was get, getting very well known on the freak show circuit the, mm. the, the burgeoning freak show mm. circuit of the late 90s and the turn of the century and uh, round about this time uh, her routine contained blood play and uh, cover your ears pop craigs youngsters Scissor masturbation. Ooh, not the lesbian variety, but uh, having a bit of a jill off with a with a pair of scissors. Sadly, she, we didn't see that on top of the pops. Um, she did. Uh, that sus- would have been she, quite the performance. She did uh, suspension as well, didn't she? Yes, she did. Yes, yes. For the uninitiated, that is where you let somebody stick a, a certain number of hooks in your skin. Um, and there are various different poses that you can do, um, but you, the most basic one is they just bung it all, bung, bung a few of them in your back. It's like, and then uh, suspend you from from a, uh, from bungee cords. Um, mm, yeah, it's it's. I have seen this in real life. What I've um, I've I saw like a band of uh, sort of there were several women who had this kind of they were sort of sitting down and they had this coming out of their backs. They weren't actually suspended, although you can. You know, you 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 have to mm. you have to do some very complicated maths to figure out how how much it's going to take for you for it not to be painful but again it's a kind of it's a very shamanistic thing and you could just see people kind of going into this altered state but they were sort of somebody else was like plucking the the, like like they were instruments like and you could see that they were kind of glassy eyed so they'd gone into this different place and it was really really amazing um i think i saw her as well i think i saw lucy fire or or um or um it might not have been her but the cradle of filth did um yes that's her yeah did this uh, you know they did a kind of outrageous satanic circus type show at the astoria and mm. that was great i love yeah. that sort of thing it was you know mm. i yeah. can't get enough of it she also did the metal hammer christmas do one year neil Ooh. you might have been there no, I don't think I was ever at the Christmas do's, but I Did you might not see have been her hanging around. <laughs> <laughs> but I mean, uh, yeah, at the tail end of the nineties. This is this is like nine years after. You might remember the Jim Rose Circus she used to perform yes. at yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, Lollapalooza, and there was that mm. reconnection of that trying to get that sixties vibe in a sense. I think, mm. but luckily it was more extreme because if I go to a gig and I'm seeing fucking some juggler, I'm off. But um, <laughs> but Jim Rose, yeah, I remember, I remember him having a powerful influence on this kind of thing. But big respect to uh, the floor managers and the uh, and the camera people because they 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 know when to cut away when she's mm. doing the boring stuff of uh, rinsing her mouth out, yeah, and, yeah, <laughs> and, and doing all that kind of stuff. So yeah, it's uh, it, it's it's basically taking your your mind off a, a, a bog standard techno record. Yeah. Yeah, especially to the big finish with where you know, where she does that water vapor thing, where she gets a yes. massive plume of flame coming yeah. out. Yes. That yeah. was scary. That could have. That, yes. Yeah. 
yeah. And uh, also, you know, takes us uh, takes our mind off the audience who are doing those fucking granny clubs. <laughs> Another one of my niche references is that the DJ has got one of them fat lad shirts with all flames on it. And that, yes. That, you know, that goes with her hot pants and everything, but teamed with his uh, bald head and his big fatness, it makes him look exactly like Bam Bam Bigelow, the WWF wrestler. <laughs> the only thing that was missing that was uh, tattoos of flames on his head. He would look just like. There we go. That's my wrestling reference for this episode. <laughs> Out good. of the way. Anything else to say about this? Um, I was going to say that I'd be worried about the amount of synthetic fabrics in there that could go up, but you could say that about mm. any episode since the 70s, you know. So uh, Yes, exactly, yeah. yes. Exactly. So, the following week, Time to Burn dropped three places to number six, but clung on to the top ten for two more weeks. The follow-up, Storm Animal, got to number 21 in December of this year, and a re-release of Storm got to number 32 again in 2001. Meanwhile, Lucifer went on to work in hook suspension, crotch grinding, and filling a big glass water tank with her own blood into her act, whilst having a side job presenting a GCSE chemistry programme for schools TV. Wow. And she is actually the reason why we've got this episode. Uh, a good friend, Paul's uh, girlfriend at the time, uh, Lucifer, oh. was a mate of her, and they recorded it for her so there we go so lucify wherever you are god bless you we salute you we salute you Sitting in a hole tells us that this is one of the finest cuts of UK Garage Around and the artist has already been nominated for a Mercury Prize. It's Sincere by MJ Cole. Born in London in 1973, Matthew Coleman was a classically trained pianist at the Royal College of Music who started his career as a tape operator and sound engineer at the drum and bass label Sour in the mid-90s. This single, with Elizabeth Troy on vocals, was his debut release in 1998, getting to number 38 in May of that year, but it's been picked up by his new label, Talking Loud, and put out as the follow-up to Crazy Love, which got to number 10 in May of this year. And it's a new entry this week at number 13. I mean, a lot of people say that this is the actual best garage track ever, but I think at this moment in time, I'm I'm all garaged out, and it, it's just washed over me. This one, I know what you mean. It is kind of the, it is sort of the standard, isn't it? It, it is sort of like when people think about it uh, now. I guess mm. that is one of the standout sort of. It's like you know whether it's the best or not. I mean, I I would say, uh, with my limited knowledge of it, I'd say it's you know probably one of the. It is one of the best ones. It certainly is my favourite one, mm. definitely. Um, mm. And you know, it it's got a sort of. Um, 
there's a kind of hypnotic elegance to it where you know and a, a sort mm. of this this very pleasant sort of sparseness and this performance is is really really good it is and, and i i love this first time it came out 98 i think it first came out and um yeah. reviewed it on the singles page when it came back i was just really glad to see it get in the charts it's it's all down to this little weird backwards thing that happens just before she starts singing the chorus yeah it's um, yeah. just it's just fucking addictive that and you keep waiting for it to come back because it's such a lovely lovely moment um and and uh, the lyrics are great as well because it, in in a, in a world drowning in sincerity and authenticity this is a song about please don't be sincere and um uh, the, the the you know in in an honest way in in the, in that some relationships are conducted um i think i think it's really good and and we're seeing a lot more on this performance just like all the garage tunes of the kids than we do with any other performance cuz MJ Cole isn't fascinating to look at. Let's face it. Um, yeah. As a composer, and a, I, I'm not saying his his t- his his learning did him well, but there's a compositional sense to this which lifts it a bit above um, quite a lot of garage tunes. There's the beautiful mm. laced in piano licks and, and and all of it. It's a beautiful little arrangement. Um, the singer's fantastic, although I am unsure yeah. about the singer in terms of who it is. I know you named the name there, Al. Um, yeah. Because there's varying accounts of who 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 yes. sung on this, I think. Mm. Um, so the person not well, well, well. Jane Middlemiss says it's Elizabeth Troy at the end, but she just says it in a really thick Geordie accent <laughs> that you have to play about eight times to make absolutely. Yeah, sure. yeah. I think it's somebody else called Nova Casper who's now a backing singer in a Tina Turner covers band. Well, she's a front woman of a Tina Turner covers band. But, right. but the vocal... It might be a ride on time thing, though. It might be. It might be. But um, mm. I, I really like this tune. Out of all the garage ones that are on this week, I do like this. You, you might be right in that you are all garaged out by this point, and it's almost becoming mm. an episode which is totally dominated by that music. It's all night garage. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> but, but, but I kind of like that weird that weird tilting of this episode towards that. I'm guessing the next week's yes. episode didn't have that, but as a one-off, you know, like people mm. fondly remember episodes where our bands were on, where there were a load yeah. of indie bands or there were a load of this type of band. This for us, for a garage fan looking back, this would have yeah. been some kind of Zenith for garage music. The fact yes. that it wasn't just in the clubs and out in the underground, it would, it had made it, it had made it on top of the pops and it was dominating top of the pops. It was most of the music that you hear yeah. this week. It's quite funny. Um, in terms of the, um, in terms of this performance, uh, they've, uh, you know, the, the singer is, um, who who we believe is Elizabeth, Elizabeth Troy um, is is uh, given like the whole stage and there's sort of three blokes to varying yes. de- in varying degrees of, of uh, they've kind of hidden them at the back because like it took yeah. me yeah, yeah, it took yeah. me half the song to realise like oh look what well, there's some movement behind it that that's a drummer I mean, sort of with behind a sheet of gauze. And uh, and yes. then oh, and a guitarist! Look, his his guitar is very yeah. shy guitarist, sort of woodland creature, just kind of lurking yeah. somewhere in the deep background. Mister Cole is at the side on the keyboards, and the sort of you know, so you can see him, so he's visible. But they've they've quite wisely, you know. Yeah, and here's a big compare contrast, isn't it? Because you know we've had when uh, the rock bands have been on, there's been a big fetishization of the instruments. Mm. It's like all oh, close-ups of. Of uh, your Brian Jones bloke, yeah, yeah, uh, in Manson wrestling with his guitar, mm. and uh, you know jumping up and down on a on a bass drum for reef and everything. It's you know it's like oh look at us, we we can play these instruments. Yeah. Uh, whereas here it's 
you know, the instruments are, are hidden away. Yeah, I mean, presentationally, Top of the Pops is caught between two worlds when it when it when it presents dance acts because it has it mm. has an option. I mean, either it can put them on a stage and just have everyone in their normal places, in which case what you get is what you described with the with the previous track: people clapping. People just doing the granny clap thing, but I think what what starts happening with this, with the garage tracks on this episode is you do get that thing of them being in the middle and people being behind the man in front of them, and you get more of a I guess a yeah. club related vibe, which that is undeveloped. They're still mucking around with it, but could have become something. It could have become mm. something. Maybe top of the pops rather than continually seeking for this seven o'clock market could have been a different kind of pop show that maybe appeared later and maybe not in the word slot, but. You know what I mean? The, 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 you didn't go out to a club at 7.30 or 7. You were more likely to be going out, heading out about 10-ish. So, I don't know. That could have happened, but it, but we, ne- yeah. we never knew. This is a thing that I'm uh, I'm noticing now. Ray uh, kind of crediting the singer. Um, this sounds like it was a complicated situation, but it does always... Um, I always pick up on it now, like, yeah, you really need to credit the vocalist, especially when it's when they basically yeah. make the track and when they are, you know. Yes. So I think you should always endeavour to, you know, I know that sometimes legalities and stuff are going to make it make it tricky, but it's like, you know, being a, a writer of, of picture books um, that mm. I, I kind of, because you, know, you do breeze, <laughs> you can breeze through your life in, in, in this very oblivious way and then you will get pulled up on something and it's like, yeah, credit the illustrator. And it's like, yes, make sure that fucking happens. Because, you know, so I, which mm. is what I did with my last book, I said, you know, let's, and the illustrator himself, it's his, it was his first book. He wasn't actually going to, he would have been, he wouldn't have said anything, but it's like, no, you're, yeah. we we did this together. My name and your name go on the cover. That's how it works. And, you know, you'd be amazed yeah. the number of times where you only hear about the author of a picture book and, and not the, uh, not the illustrator. Um, yeah. So that is, you know, that is a thing. And she really, ge- she really gives it loads. She's really, really good. And mm. I would, I would, um, I would like to have heard, you know, more from her. Um, she's got amazing hair. She's got amazing plaits, terrible hat, yep. but you know, yeah. it was, uh, it was yeah, it's very Buffalo stance. That hat mm, is, it isn't is, it? it is. Giant. Or, or something, something the queen would wear nowadays. <laughs> it's, it's a giant kind of uh, swanky, asymmetric purple hat, um, a sort of mm. um, cartoon fedora, I guess. Um, but yeah, she yeah. really gets the crowd going. She gets a kind of, she gets them to sing with her at the end, which is, that's a heck of a thing to kind of go in. I mean, it must yes. be very challenging to, to kind of just do one performance like that. Nobody is there for you. You're just, mm. you know, um, and to get a crowd going to that extent where they're, sing, where they're singing along with you or whether she does like a call and response, you know, um, and they all and they're all game, and it's like that's credit yes. to her, I think. Because she's mm. so good, most of the focus of the presentation should have been on her. Later on, yeah. when we get to the number one, we'll see somebody being focused on who transparently doesn't deserve it. Um, mm. This 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 performer, she she does deserve it. MJ Cole's piss boring to look at, so I would have mm. just liked the camera to have just followed her around and focused in. I want to see those flared nostrils. <laughs> So the following week, Sincere dropped 13 places to number 26, and the follow-up, Hold On To Me, got to number 35 in December of this year. And the LP lost out in the Mercury Prize to the hour of Bewilder Beast by Badly Drawn Boy. Be sincere, yeah. 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 Yeah.
DJ Cool. After two solo Linda Lanza's debut solo album took the charts this week with an exclusive track from that album. This is Mr. Ronan Keaton. Like I could live forever, feel like I could fly. <laughs> Born in Dublin in 1977, Ronan Keating became the youngest member of Boyzone in 1993 when he joined at the age of 16. In 1999, after 15 top 10 hits and six number ones, he was approached by the makers of the film Notting Hill to cover the 1988 Keith Whitley song When You Say Nothing At All, and it was released as his debut single. It went straight in at number one and stayed there for two weeks. This song is going to be the follow-up to Life is a Roller Coaster, which got to number one for a week three weeks ago and is currently at number four. And it's on the debut LP Ronan, which has gone straight in at number one this week. And as Top of the Pops has recently reintroduced an album section, we're treated to another performance <laughs> from the Alan Shearer of Pop. <laughs> what the fuck is this all about, man? We, we, we've had, well, we've well, had Craig David when he's on the way down, and now we, we've got this twat. Well, firstly, I'm astonished that Life is a, Love is a Roller Coaster only stayed at number one for one week. We've got a lot of number ones dropping off pretty quickly, haven't yes. we? Revealing probably lower sales. What the fuck is this doing here? Yeah. Well, this mm. dead, dead spot. I mean, this is the kind of stuff that probably stopped me writing for Uncut magazine, because this is very close to Americana, mm. I guess. Um, it's, it's, it's utter fucking shit. It's, just, no, it's, it's Americanta. It's America. Yeah, it's America. Yeah, I'm not going to say that. But um, it, it's terrible. It's so dreary, this big empty thing where, where his voice, um, presumably the selling point that got him a solo career and the rest of Boyzone kind of got forgotten about mm. to a certain extent. His voice is, is revealed in this big epic windswept thing mm. as the tiny crap thing that it is. He hasn't got a great voice at no. all. Um, this is a track, and I must admit, I know I try and do my duty by chart music, by watching every episode Bless start to finish, it. but I, uh, I've got to admit, this track... <laughs> I walked out. No. Uh, why would I spend any time? No, I'm sorry. <laughs> you walked out of your own of your own house. <laughs> no, no. I, I walked out of the room. I must. I went and did something else, much more important. Like I don't know, stare at my cat or something. This. Why would I waste my fucking time letting this sap my will to live? Um, uh, absolutely appalling. And Al, you've got a really good point. What the fuck is this doing on top of the yeah. pops? Well, you know, the album section uh, was around in Top of the Pops in the early seventies, but that was be- that was because you know it was a it was the only way they could get in a bit of music for the heads. Mm, mm. And uh, nowadays, in two thousand, it's it's for the dickheads. Well, just a chance for us all to check exactly how shit the Ronan Keaton album is. That we we knew that already. You know what I mean? Just yes. Not wasting our time. Well, before Sarah comes in, I'm sure Sarah's got quite a bit to say about our Ronan. Mm. Um, I, I've got a recent article from the Daily Mirror uh, from from round about this time, uh, and, and it reads like this: He's the kind of guy most teenage girls will be proud to take home to meet their parents. The frontman of a squeaky clean boy band renowned for their chart-topping ballads, or rather, he was. Boyzone star Ronan Keating has admitted that he isn't content with his status as British pop's leading teen heartthrob. Now fans should prepare for a new Ronan. 
with added attitude. <laughs> Just as Robbie Williams has done since leaving Take That, the young Irishman aims to repackage and relaunch himself as a serious solo singer. And he is given the first hints of a new, outspoken image by taking a swipe at modern chart acts and the marketing men behind them. Ronan says... It's easier for bands to be successful than it is when we started. Record companies know how to market a band, how to do it so a different band is number one every week, and they spend a lot of money making that happen. Nobody stays at the top for more than a week, and it's difficult for anyone to make a lasting impression. There's a lot of cheesy pop around, and it's affecting bands who should be up there for longer. Everyone knows who I mean when I say cheesy pop. And they know who they are too. But but <laughs> that will change. It has to change. It can't go on like this. <laughs> so yes, this is, a, this is a new Ronan, Sarah. Sit down, Ronan. Nobody wants to hear your, <laughs> your whining. Um, on any, either in print or, or on, on the top of the pop stage. Um, I don't know what to say about this. Um, I I was looking at his trousers as you you have to check out the strides. Um, and I was like, are they boot? They're boot cut, aren't they? This was the era of the boot cut jean, and I'm sure I I I had a couple of pairs of these at some point. But it's like fucking hell, that was a real. Yeah. Anyway, they're not boot cut jeans after all. They're boot cut leather trousers. Oh yeah. As far yes. as I can tell. Um, Are you sure the leather and not PVC? Oh, um, no, gives a shit. Um, I mean, he's, he shouldn't be wearing. He shouldn't be wearing any of <laughs> any of these things. Really, he's not no. rock or roll enough to be wearing these. I don't know. Like, um. What I want to know is, um, like, what, well, no, actually, there's a very. This is just a marketing decision. Um, there are um, there are several people who've gone on from uh, boy bands and girl bands to do interesting, groundbreaking stuff, or just slightly, you know, yeah. slightly weirder, yeah. slightly more interesting stuff. And uh, Ronan Keating is, is is not one of those people. He played it a thousand percent safe. He knew his audience. It's a pro. Right, you're just seeing a. It, it is a product that is not made for us. It's for, it's for mums. It's for school kids. It's for eventual school mm. reunions. It's like he knows he he knows that this is a thing that is going to you know sell into the. It will it will end up in supermarkets in the future, and mm. it will. It's for humming. At the, you know, it's for humming when you're doing your shopping. It's for doing your housework. It's very, very mundane mm. music, and it has a purpose. Yeah, it has right. a, a uh, it is a particular peg for a particular hole, and you know, whatever. I guess there is a place for it, but what's it? What it? What it's doing on top of the pops? I don't really know. Also, what it's doing? It's called the way you make me feel. Why this exists when 18 years later Janelle Monae would do a track of this name that is so killer they have now officially retired this song title in perpetuity and retroactively. So actually, this this shouldn't even be a thing. Well, this is a sandwich between uh, that and the way you make me feel by Michael Jackson. Well, yeah. Mm. And the, the way this makes me feel is like I, I, I want to <laughs> fucking ram a knitting needle through my ears. Because well, he, is, he is trying to be deco out the commitments here, isn't he? Yeah, he is. He is. But I mean, the, the whole boy's own Westlife axis, mm. is there a more worthless um, yeah. uh, pair, of, pair of boy bands? I mean, it's kind of nothing is salvageable from any of their recording careers, no. apart from that initial first appearance 
on Gay Burns' mm. Late Late Show, mm. where they yes. have you seen that? Oh, of course, yeah, <laughs> of course, of yeah. course. Where they, yeah, I mean that that's got to go on the CMP playlist. Oh, it will this this month because it it's always a joy watching that. Um, just the sheer lack of talent and, and shamelessness is just fantastic. My favourite bit is uh, the Ken who um, got dropped soon after that uh, mm. in the dungarees, who right at the end kind of like does that framing thing that you see movie directors do, but over his genitals. <laughs> in front of Mrs Doyle and her mates out of Father Ted, essentially. The audience are just old people who yeah. just don't want to see that sort of thing. No, but they're not shocked to such. They're just no, they're amused. Just bored shitless, aren't they? <laughs> this is just a dollop of runoff from the pebble mill, isn't it? This, even though Pebble Mill at one's gone, its spirit lives oh, on. Oh, without a doubt, yeah. Through Ronan, <laughs> I'm trying to think of a of a television program version, Westlife and and Boyzone. I, 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 I'm only coming up with fresh fields and French fields. <laughs> you know, the same shit, but with a different with a name. slightly different spin. Yeah, I mean, just utterly yeah. irredeemable. I mean, even even most of the worst boy bands of the eighties and nineties, you can pick at least I don't know one song that vaguely got you. Or, or got, yeah. but with them, no, sorry, no, there's nothing. There's nothing. There's there's nothing of worth at all. Hard border. That's what we need. <laughs> See, if we'd have had a hard border in the nineties, we wouldn't have had this shit. <laughs> Ow! And then, while the song is still going on, this happens. This week's official Top of the Pops Top 20. Number 20, Savage Garden, Affirmation. New at 19, it's Reef and Set the Record Straight. At 18, Aaliyah and Try Again. At 17, Samantha Mumba, Gotta Tell You. 16 this week, Darude and Sandstorm. At 15, The Cause and Breathless. Limp Biscuit at 14, Take a Look Around. And at 13, a new entry. J. Cole and Sincere. At 12, it's Santana and Maria Maria. At number 11, Destiny's Child, Jumpin' Jumpin'. 10's a new entry, Wookie and Battle. At 9, Louise and Two-Faced. Number 8, straight in for Manson, I Can Only Disappoint You. At number 7, it's Eminem and The Real Slim Shady. 6, it's 5 and Queen and We Will Rock You. At 5, Ronan Keating, Life is a Roller Coaster. Number 4, Bumfunk MCs and Freestyler. And the second highest new entry debuts at 3 for Storm, Time to Burn. At number two, last week's number one, Craig David and Seven Days. And don't miss the first play of the brand new chart every Sunday at four, only on Radio One. The the fucking chart rundown. Mm. The Mm. Phantom Goodyear. (laughs) What the fuck? Because I spent the whole episode going, well, where the fuck are the charts? Mm. You've not mentioned Mm. the charts. Where's the chart rundown? Where's the chart rundown? To their credit, they've slapped it over Ronan, but they could have come in at least two minutes earlier. But he's still like, fuck, that's that's odd. Mm. And that's disrespectful mm. to the charts. And why only the top 20? Yeah, I mean, consequently, it's over in the blink of an eye. And it really seems not there to tell you what is in the charts necessarily. It's really there to prove that they've had all of these people on top of the pops already. Because instead of the still shots of people, you've got just footage from previous performances on top of the pops of the biggest yeah. names. And there's some great records in there, but it's it's kind of an afterthought. They, they were uneasily between worlds in that they had to mention the chart, but they really didn't want to and didn't know what to do with it. So it's relegated yeah. to this strange part of the show before you actually get to the number one. Um, 
it's an odd decision. It reveals the kind of transitional state that Top Pops is in at the time and a state of confusion about what the fuck to do with these chart figures because they seem unsure what they mean anymore anyway. Well, it's like it's like uh, the footset in relation to the news at ten. You know, they, yeah, uh, loads of people aren't fucking interested in it. They don't wouldn't care. But it, it, you, oh, you've got to have the footsie mm, in the Dow Jones. Yeah, or the yeah, or the fucking Hang Seng. <laughs> uh, that's what the charts are now. Can I just point out that um, there's a, a Limp Biscuit are in there, mm. and obviously because yes. they're fucking everywhere at this point. Um, Fred, mm. I he he really is the 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 um, the poster boy for kind of unwarranted success white male mediocrity all of that shit and uh, the mm. thing is for somebody who always until sound- kid rock comes along until kid rock comes along it's astonishing that that he was so successful for someone who sounded who and, and he had this very tough guy kind of trucker fucking um image when he actually sounded like he was about to burst into mm. tears all the time i know why you want to hate me because i it's all the weather seems to seem like it's just yeah the, the whiniest so a lot of them like i reckon when i met them you know they, they come out with this music about rolling rolling and, and they're sort of down the street and they're all hardcore they are they were a bunch of spoiled little there's bitches. There's no other word really to, to, to call it. <laughs> You'd meet them. And like, there'd always be, in every band, right, there'd be one nice person and the rest would be dicks. So in Limp Biscuit, Wes Borland, the guitarist, was a lovely chap. Yeah. And the rest Who of was also twats. a good guitarist. He was kind of wasted in there, wasn't he? Yeah, he was. And, and with Korn, for instance, Fieldy, the bassist, was one of the biggest pricks I ever met. Um, because <laughs> pretty much as soon as they get signed, they start getting spoiled. People start doing everything yeah, yeah, for yeah. them. So, you know, mm. their the, the, the tiniest whim gets catered for. So, yeah, a lot of them, a lot of them had that kind of, they were supposedly hardcore, but yeah, just spoiled, rotten little, little cunts. So, The Way You Make Me Feel was eventually released in late November with his cover of Fairy Tale of New York with Moya Brennan on the B-side. You scumbag, you maggot, you're cheap and you're haggard. <laughs> and it entered the chart at number six before slithering down like those octopuses you throw at the wall. The follow-up, Loving Each Day, got to number two in April of 2001. <laughs> oh, no. And he'd have one more number one in 2002 when If Tomorrow Never Comes got there in May of that month. Oh, I just remembered, I'd forgot I'd wiped that from my memory entirely until you said What's that. that? Um, and then it just came, but Loving Each Day. And then my brain just went, We're loving each day as our friends last day for the sound of one of us <laughs> it was quite it's unpleasant. not fair is it it's not fair the way these people can leave these stains in our memory like that um, yeah bastards that was the chart that was this week's Top of the Pops and no surprises as to who's at number one today Mr Entertainment himself he's doing a roaring trade for Tiger Underpants Mr Robbie Williams say yeah <laughs> Middle Miss, back amongst the herd, drops some more shitty pants-related puns and introduces Mr. <laughs> Entertainment himself, Robbie Williams, with this week's number one, Rock DJ. 
Born in Stoke-on-Trent in 1974, Robert Williams joined Take That straight from school and sang lead vocals on Could It Be Magic, I Found Heaven and Everything Changes. By 1995, after Take That had scored six number ones, Williams was becoming a right pain in the arse due to him wanting the band to calm down on the ballads and be a bit more hip-hop whilst chucking his weight about and being a right custard gannet. He was asked not to participate in their summer tour, which made loads of girls dead upset when it was announced he had left the group, and he was sued for 200 grand by his now ex-manager. While his old band carried on racking up number ones, Williams was at a very loose end, as his Take That contract stated that no one could release solo material while the band still existed. So, he spent the next year playing football with Oasis, doing endless interviews and establishing himself as a regular tabloid fixture. And four months after Take That split up in February of 1996, he finally signed with Chrysalis. His debut single... A cover of George Michael's Freedom went straight in at number two in August of 1998, but no further. And it took six more goes before he finally landed a number one with Millennium in September of 1998. This is the follow-up to She's the One, which became his second number one in November of 1999. And it's the lead-off track from the LP Sing When You're Winning, which is due for release in a fortnight or so. A heavily edited cut of the video, which features Williams showing off to some models at a futuristic roller disco by getting his kecks off and then ripping off his own flesh and lobbing it at them, was aired on Top of the Pops two weeks ago. And it's gone straight in at number one, usurping Craig David. It's a very interesting compare and contrast, isn't it? Because here we've got the two youngest members of of two of the biggest boy bands of the 90s. And they've, they've both gone solo. And yeah, quite a difference. And I think the latter is very much benefited from the performance of the former. Mm, does make him look good. Because if, if Ronan Keaton is Alan Shearer, then <laughs> Robbie Williams is David Beckham, isn't it? It's, it's that kind of comparison. There's also a comparison to be made between the treatment of Robbie and um, mm. the treatment of Craig David, in a sense. As I've, as I've mentioned before, Craig mm. David couldn't handle the snarkiness about his music. What Robbie mm. did always was um, the snark, that snarkiness, it was baked into Robbie's records. You couldn't really take the piss, in a sense, because he deliberately no. made his songs really about about nothing but his own ambition and his own cheek, his charming cheek, which I'm sure we were all meant yes. to fall for. I've got to say, I, I kind of want somebody else to say something positive about him because I loathed Robbie Williams and always have and always will Um, for me that key thing that you mentioned Al is that year he spent playing football with Oasis what that taught him was that even if you're apologetic inside because your music's horribly derivative and has nothing new to it if you've got a self-aggrandizing front if you simply say over and over and over again that you're a rock star and do all the things that a rock star does then you become one and um, I loathed him for that reason. I was sent to review him live. Um, I was sent to review him live because other people were reviewing him live. It was a weird little thing that we did. It was a page feature, actually, of him live at Wembley, which is always a terrible place to see anybody. But they sent yeah. one person who really liked Robbie. They sent one person who hadn't kind of made their mind up. And they sent me. Uh, Taylor. <laughs> I don't know who it was. But um, they sent me, who absolutely hated him. And nothing that I saw um, at that show... 
um, really changed my view of him as a figure that was totally unappealing to me. He was this applause-hungry jester slash redcoat slash Freddy mm. star. And his, con- his constant <laughs> yes. need to let his audience know that he was getting away with it and that they were bolstering yeah. that fiction, I just found it nauseating. The trouble is, of course, this is catchy as fuck. Guy Chambers can yes. craft... <laughs> A catchy pop song, but it's one of those ones mm. that I actually, I won't give myself the pleasure of singing it or, or, or whistling it or singing, sing along to it because I loathe the frontman so very much. And, and I'm going to step back now because yeah. I feel that I've loathed too much this episode. And I'm, I'm sure <laughs> people have no, nice no, no. things to do. No <laughs> but I, I, no I'm sure things, uh, people have nice things to say about him. You're right in that he was a rap fan. And he tried to do the rock thing to a certain extent. Here he's swinging back, actually, to a more mm. rappy thing. But as a rapper, he's as bad as most rockers tend to be at rapping. He's on a level of... He's what? kind of like on a level with Jay from Five, I, I, I would say. I, I would say I would say opening credits to Are You Being Served, actually. <laughs> <laughs> well, he slips those English phrases in, which is always going to play well and always has since the days of Captain Sensible. The stuff about have a proper giggle, yes. I'm going to stick it in the gold and all that. But um, mm. yeah, I, I, I just find it unbearable. To this day, I, I really, really don't get along with his persona. And with that whole thing of, yeah, you've got an affront, you've got to admire the front, you know, you've got to admire the ambition mm. and the drive and all of that. I guess so, yeah. but I'm not going to fucking applaud that. I, 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 I just think, yeah, I always resist that kind of thing. Well... I'm I'm quite I have a certain I have a certain fondness for for Robbie mm. I must admit. Um the thing is he's right. one of those pop stars for um who who I think absolutely belongs there. He is a proper pop star. He's got, you know, amazing charisma and a lot of talent. Um I enjoy him more as a pop star than as a maker of music, if you see what I mean. Like yeah. more mm. he's like he's like um it's like uh, Pink and Shakira as well who I think are brilliant and amazing i don't necessarily want to listen to their music i just think they're great do you know what i mean mm, mm. I, it's like the music isn't quite for me but they're brilliant pop stars and i kind of celebrate them on that level i've seen him once i think uh pricey actually uh, took me as his plus one to see him at the o2 which was pretty fucking wild a few years ago um mm. and that you wouldn't believe like the the you know the um well you probably would believe how expensive the tickets would have been if we'd had to pay for them it's quite yeah. shocking um and it was just it was full of like you know, it was the O2, O2 was absolutely packed full of like proper scrubbers out on a night, all dressed in their best, <laughs> cackling, running about, necking Prosecco. You know, it was that kind of crowd. Mm. And it was, you know, it was lovely. And it's like they bought this is their one big, this is their, their biggest night out of the year. And that was who yeah. it was for. So I, the second hen night, isn't it? Yeah, yeah, yeah. It was that kind of thing. And, you know, he was, I didn't massively enjoy it because I felt like he was really phoning it in and this is quite a few years ago and he just again it's that that kind of tiredness thing and like you said there is the front there's this kind of shiny chrome exterior and not an awful Mm. lot going on behind it but there's also there's kind of he's a he's a frustrated kind of crooner you know because he he did a lot that's how you did swing when you're winning and all Mm. this kind of thing Mm. and um you know um he, he was kind of not it's not Vegas exactly but it's kind of Vegas adjacent you know, it's definitely not end of the pier. It's not Blackpool, but it's not quite Vegas either. He's kind of stuck between Blackpool and Vegas. Um, mm. I mean, he's still only about a third of the pop star that George Michael was, but 
that's still a pretty yeah. good well, he, is, yeah. he is shaking Michael here, isn't he, in this performance? <laughs> yeah, I mean, obviously, he would with, without George Michael, he he really would have been nothing. I have got a play. I have got a playlist actually of his stuff that I've made because I most of his stuff I actively dislike. I lo- I really like a lot of Take That. Uh, most of Robbie's solo mm. stuff I just find really grating, but there are a few songs of his that I still that I will listen to any time. So you know, I've yeah. got stuff like Let Love Be Your Energy. I think it's an amazing song. Um, uh, she's Madonna as well stuff like that that he did with the, with the Pet Shop Boys you know his, mm. his stuff that he did with the Pet Shop Boys is brilliant um, as to this performance um, you know well. it's and this song it's about this is this is this is his what, this is probably his worst song I I you know I did not enjoy listening to it and I didn't especially mm. enjoy watching him perform it although um, you know so he does he, he kind of in this slightly joyless way kind of um, takes his kex down flashes his pants which have a tiger on the crotch and sort of jiggles about a whoa, bit. Whoa, 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 kecks, kecks are pants on there. Let's get this straight, Sarah. <sighs> kecks can be trousers. be trousers as well, I think. Really? Oh, yes. I've heard that used in those contexts. Not where I come from. Oh, okay. I... Sorry, I just just need to make that clear. <laughs> okay, yeah, no, th- this is a point of confusion. Clearly, um, no, I've, I, uh, where I was from, it was um, kecks could be outerwear. Right. Okay. <laughs> so under undercrackers. And mm. you know, so anyway, we get a flash of the of the uh, of the pants, which is quite small. Um, yeah. Excellent. And, and this has been this has been trailed right from the beginning, isn't it? This which is, is a, a, this is the reason why we're tuning in with a, a, mm. a grown man showing his pants off. I know it's it's like that's not it's not a big enough moment to it, trail it so extensively. It's it's no. not even you know, but it, it's kind of char- it's kind of charming and amusing and, and schoolboyish, which he's still getting away with at this point. And to you know, you have to credit him; he has cracking legs. Those mm. are those are some thighs on which I should like Ooh, to gnaw good. lightly for Ooh, an hour good. or two. Um, <laughs> you sound like Fraser out of Dad's Army, there, Sarah. <laughs> good strong thighs. No, he's he's got well, a good body. There's no you know, denying that. Oh well, well he's yes, got a good body. Yeah, he's uh, dude is fucking hot. You know, give him. To, I know that's not much to give somebody credit to. I mean, basically, um, uh, you know, he is a. Uh, Pop stars of this caliber are professional athletes, just without the drug testing. You know, mm, just as well, eh? Yeah. Well, yes, that's that's kind of the point. Um, he's he's yeah. good looking and he's confident, and that's always a winning combination. But but when he starts yeah. stripping down and getting down to his Grundies, there's it's so <laughs> there's something predictable about it, and a bit a bit sad mm. and lamentable about it. He is that lad who would drop his trousers for attention. This is this is what he's doing. He'll do anything for attention. Yes, and when he wiggles his ass, it's like fucking Dougal <laughs> uh, doing his Elvis impersonation on that episode of Father Ted. It's oh, look at my ass. It is. It's funny, isn't it? My ass is great. This is what a lot of his songs seem to be about. It's like let me entertain you, and the video for Rock DJ as well. No, it thanks. is all about stripping himself bare because he'll do anything mm. for his audience. Um, he'll do anything for the show. And it pl- yeah, well, didn't get his cock no, out, did it? But it does play into that spirit of national voyeurism that we described earlier when we were talking about Big Bro. Um, mm. uh, so it, that, it kind of fits in. That's there. his thing, it, though. That is his his entire thing. It's quite it's, it's sort of meta thing about performance and and doing anything for attention. I, I I've the thing is with him is that yes, he would sort of do anything for attention, but it's like he really really wants your attention, but he is willing to give something in return. Which not everyone who who goes out to get attention mm. in such a blatant way is willing to do. A lot of it is all take and no give. And I think he was, a, you know, I think there's a generosity mm. about him to an extent. Like I said, I think that pretty much 
burned off by the time I saw him. Um, but I think it was, I think it was there. Mm. And the thing about this, yeah, the video, which was um, quite, you know, which which was quite a disturbing watch because he ends up, he strips off and then he strips off and that doesn't get attention. So he starts peeling off his skin, doesn't he? Mm-hmm. Yeah. So you know, there's an artic That's that's kind of he's trying to at a very sort of low level make a com. He's he's trying to he's you know he's commenting on the state of being a pop star, which is uh, you know. Well, no, no, no. His his advisors. Uh, oh are come on! It doesn't mean look. I don't think he's that bright, but it's like people do occasionally like have ideas, you know, in that way. I don't know whose idea that was, but you know. Mm. I mean, the thing about Robbie Williams is uh, the, the the worst thing that could have happened to his career would have been if he was allowed to release records the minute he left. Take mm. that. I contend, if he'd have done that, he'd have been like bloody Ronan, mm, mm. you know, a couple of big hits and then then gone. But because he had a year where he couldn't record, he had to keep his profile up. And, you know, luckily for him, we're arriving at the age where, you know, Lady Diana's gone and the, the papers are absolutely casting round for people to cover endlessly. Mm. And he fit the bill perfectly. He did. And, and lyrically, I mean... Uh, the thing is with this song, there's a callousness to it, and that's what I don't like. There's a line in it, and I know it's just a little line, shouldn't be overanalyzing pop, pop lyrics, but it's been my yeah. job for quite a while. Um, but, you know, if you're, se- if, if you're selling that, it, it's all right. And, and that, that, to me, sums up something about Robbie that, that I've always kind of faintly disliked. That mm. said, you know, Oasis mm. used to take the piss out of him, didn't they? And they were, they, he became mm. a, a sort of laughing stock to those indie heroes that he wanted to be friends with but really when you think mm. about it you know these bands have often tried to do something dancey something disco and failed miserably mm. primal scream mm. would kill yeah. for a song mm. like rock dj because it's catchy yes. as fuck and it and it and it's got yes. a good you know it's got it's a good groove to it so he, he he got much better when he reverted to to this kind of stuff i would think more enjoyable but there, there, there's mm. that distance that stops me loving it and that's the callousness yeah. of his presentation and just the kind of yeah the 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 celebration of sheer naked ambition I, I i shouldn't perhaps have a problem with it but that's all i got from robbie that's the trouble that's all i got from him and consequently i never yeah. ever warmed to him the, the song uh, apparently was his and guy chambers attempt to do a rewrite of reasons to be cheerful part 3 really <laughs> Yes. What? Mm. Yes, him and Ian Jury were knocking about at the time. Uh, uh, were they? Yeah, uh, Jury was uh, was uh, was an ambassador at UNICEF, right. and um, he was mentoring Robbie Williams. He he, wow. he kind of like signed up for that kind of thing. So they they kind of knew each other, and uh, of course no the song idea. heavily samples its ecstasy when you lay down next to me. And uh, apparently uh, Guy Chambers heard it in a club and uh, nicked it. And when the song got to number one, he slipped a check to the DJ, which was nice. <laughs> it was a horrible trait of mine at the time, but my opinion was, oh, you know, if, if, if I met anyone who thought Robbie Williams was brilliant, always a female, the instant reaction was, oh, you're only saying that because you want to shag him. <laughs> a female. Yeah, oh, sorry, was sorry, it? a lady. <laughs> Don't, let's not go there, Sarah. No, let's actually. <laughs> <laughs> 
a female. But it was like I, 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 I my mates and the the guys said, "Oh, I went to see Robbie Williams. It was great. It was brilliant." Oh, what, what was he like then? Why? Why did you like him? Oh, oh, he's an entertainer, and that's always what was his performance like then? Oh, it was it was entertaining, <laughs> and it was like it was hammered. <laughs> this entertain, entertain, entertain. It was like mm. as you know, as Joseph Goebbels said, if you say Robbie Williams is an entertainer long enough, people believe it. <laughs> Were you entertained when you saw him, Neil? I wasn't. And, and, I mean, I've, I've always been entertained by my own simmering loathing, so I was kind of <laughs> yeah. stewing in that nicely. But, but yeah, yeah, it was. The, it, I wouldn't say it was desperate. It was more the kind of. It was like watching a, a, a child entertainer or variety performer, mm. uh, because there was a mix of yes, these songs, but in between, he. I'm not saying he told gags, but he was. He was always about putting on quite an impressive pop performance, but yeah. then making sure that in between songs, you would never go away with the impression that he was up his own arse or anything. He was down yeah. to earth yeah. and he was one of you, you know, and he was, mm. you know, he was just having a laugh like you and kind of getting away with it, you yeah. know, and, and I've never particularly liked that. Um, but I mean, that said, I would say that if, if I, if somebody was asking me about those times, late nineties, yeah. um, uh, to summate those times with some records, I think Robbie would make an appearance because, yeah. because that move from, I don't know, from the, cause when you think about it, really, Music fans weren't reading the music press at this point. They were no. on B3TA and they were reading Pop Bitch, maybe. Yeah. You know, they were on forums talking about pop, perhaps. Yeah. And they weren't really reading the music press. So if, if I wanted to sum up this era, I would go for Robbie Williams songs. I mean, it, yeah. and, and, and an awful lot of people would. I, I don't look back at 2000 and think, oh, yeah, who can forget? Mm. But for those that do, I think Robbie will make an appearance. And this is why Angels yeah. and things like that is so oh, oft God, played at funerals angels. and things like this, you know. Ugh. But he, he never floated my boat. By this time, of course, you know, EMI, Chrysalis, have, have banked everything on Robbie Williams. And it's got to the point now where the labels have now worked out what sells in in large quantities mm. in, in a way that they never did before or after. And um, they go, all right, then, well, we don't need to sign loads of bands and artists and hope that, you know, one or two percolate through. It's like, yeah, him, him, he's going to make it. Let's just give him loads of money. Mm. Yeah, yeah. Uh, because, you know, t- two years from now, there's that massive deal he gets. 80 million quid, wasn't it? Yeah. yeah. And, um, you know, Mariah Carey, Virgin, sign up Mariah Carey for stupid amounts of money and drop loads of bands at the same time. Yeah. And, you know, of course you can see why so many people would be into Robbie Williams, but no, he's just B.A. Robertson with tats for me. <laughs> Sorry. <laughs> Oh, and and did I see Pepsi and Shirley as backing singers? That's what I thought. Yeah, because I I was, yeah. I was just making the George Michael connection, and then I saw Pepsi, Pepsi and Shirley. Um, I I don't yeah. I don't think it was actually Pepsi and Shirley. Was really? It? Was it the 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 blonde the blonde woman looks dead like she did yeah dead to, like Shirley because round about this time they're doing backing they're doing backing vocals for uh, Jerry Hallowell round about this time as well so they're they're okay. about you're talking about George Michael and when I think about George and I think about Robbie George just casts such a, a, a shadow on Robbie mm. yeah. and that George was so giving generous mm. uh, uh, with his with his art uh, and yeah. Robbie is so to me the the complete diametric opposite of that um, mm. not je- well I mean yeah, just this, this blaring arrogance that, that I never responded well to. I, I respond well to it 
that kind of blur. I, in fact, actually, I've never responded well to the to you know the thing that was in that that list, that fifty list. That yeah. you know, it, 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 uh, Fred Durst sneering arrogance ruling. Arrogance mm. is never a good thing. Mm. I would argue that. You know, arrogance is an unjustified confidence. A justified confidence is fine, but arrogance mm. is something else entirely. And I've never responded well to that. But Oasis yeah. introduced this idea that, yeah, if you, if you're mouthy enough, mm. that's enough. No, yeah. I'm sorry. It isn't. I want to be transported by your art before I decide whether I'm in love with your ego. And yeah. Robbie and Oasis never gave me that. So the following week, Rock DJ dropped one place to number two, knocked off its perch by I Turn to You by Melanie C, and dropped down one further place for the next two weeks. But it would reappear on Top of the Pops in mid-December because Top of the Pops had lost its soul. By which time the LP Sing When You Winning was released, with its label forcing staff at record stores to sign documents promising that they would not let anybody else see the cover until the day of release, and it went double platinum in its first week. The follow-up, Kids, a duet with Kylie Minogue, went straight in at number two in October of this year, held off the top spot by Beautiful Day by U2, but he'd have four more number ones. Have you ever fancied working in a fairground? Oh, fuck off, Jeremy Spake. (laughs) What's on telly afterwards? BBC One follows up with Ground Force with Alan Titchmarsh, Charlie Dimmock and Tommy Walsh trying to recreate the Yorkshire Dales in an Oxfordshire back garden, followed by a repeat of the episode of Only Fools and Horses where Grandad is replaced by Uncle Albert. After the news, it's the police drama Badger, where a girl is discovered lying unconscious at the scene of a cockfight. Then Michael Barrymore auditions for the stage show of Saturday Night Fever in Barrymore on Broadway and rounds off the night with a Tom Cruise and Nicole Kidman film Far and Away and the 1993 terrorist film Jericho Fever. BBC Two has just finished David Attenborough's The Private Life of Plants, then a load of unexploded bombs are found on the golf course in Woburn Abbey in the documentary series Country House. After Gardener's World, Terry Venables is the guest on Room 101, where he tries to get uninformed journalists and working-class snobs in. Then it's the Irish comedy series The Fits, then Kate Thornton and Roy Wood are the guests in Nevermind the Buzzcocks, followed by Newsnight, then Jackpot, a documentary about a Glasgow bingo hall, Buffy the Vampire Slayer, a repeat of the drama series Tinseltown about the Glasgow club scene, and they finish off with the 1948 Lauren Bacall and Humphrey Bogart film Key Largo. ITV is Carol Vorderman helping people find a bit of money and find a fortune. Then a cheapo collection of air disaster footage is stitched together in Flights from Hell. Then it's a repeat of Dennis Norden's Laughter File, Tarrant on TV, The News, Regional News in Your Area, and a repeat of Fitz, where Robbie Coltrane investigates the death of a stripper. Channel 4 has just started Brookside, then it's the next eviction in the first series of Big Brother, Friends, South Park, Frasier, You're a Trash, Big Brother Again, the comedy show Edinburgh Robust, Richard Blackwood's Caribbean Breakdown, uh, probably not a documentary series, 
<laughs> a double bill of the film series Eurotica with a repeat of I Am a Nymphomaniac and the 1972 French film I Am Frigid. Why? <laughs> so, me dears, what are we talking about on the IRC channel tonight or tomorrow? How much I hate Robbie, maybe <laughs> the Fire Eater, or the mm. Garage. Yeah. Um, uh, I don't know. Uh, yeah, the f- the the fiery shenanigans. I would think that was kind of a standout moment. And what were you uh, downloading on Napster tomorrow? <laughs> <laughs> Manson, probably. Yeah, Manson. Um, MJ Cole and Wookie, probably for me. And what does this episode tell us about August of two thousand? That we are already at now. Yes, really. Yes. Um, yeah. Yeah, I, that's it. I, 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 we're already at now. We're already now. Um, it's 18 years ago, but yeah, we're now. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> you it's, can't see Top of the Pops lasting for much longer, can you? No, it it, it kind of doesn't. Um, it, it it doesn't really know what it wants. It doesn't know. Um, it, it's quite a slick operation, but it's just there's there's a certain energy that's gone out of it at this point. There's a certain kind of, mm. um, I mean, you know, like yeah. Jane Jane Middlemiss uh, does does a good job, but there's a certain she's she she's a little bit um, yeah. she's a bit there's a bit of a deadness in behind the eyes, isn't there? But with the with mm. the whole with the whole thing could have been the clothes show for all yeah all, all matters to her. Yeah, there's music everywhere else. So it's lost its specialness. Pop World yeah. on, on E4 is probably, on Channel 4, is probably a bit sharper. And Buzzcocks, a show I actually despise massively, yeah. um, is, is also getting a lot of pop people on and kind of taking the focus away from Top of the Pop. So not helped by the move to Friday, but yeah, it's on its way out. And of course, the other thing that was on its way out in 2000 at the, uh, at the end of the year was poor old Melody Maker. Yep. Take her around the back and shot in the head. <laughs> yeah. Sarah, you were you there on the last day? I was actually there at that moment. Yeah, it was oh, uh it man. was it was a bit of a thing. Well, basically uh, for the weeks before this happened. So this this basically was um December 2000 and we had worked mm. all all of us very hard on the uh the Christmas edi- the double Christmas edition with Fred yeah. fucking Durst on the cover in a Santa hat. Um, oh, and, great. You know, was it a really tight Santa hat? Uh, <laughs> he'd actually want, yeah, he'd like wore it over. It had to be an extra large one to fit over his his uh, his backwards uh, uh, snapback mm. and his massive fucking meat head. Anyway, um, mm. so uh, in the run, in the kind of weeks before that, we'd have uh, PRs and various people coming up to us going, is it true, is it true, is it true, Mel- Melody Maker's shutting down, is it true? He's like, no, no, no. And Mark Sutherland, about a week before, had uh, had said... Now, if anybody's, I know people, I know there are rumours, uh, obviously they're all full of shit, it's not true, uh, don't believe it. And so we went, okay, and kind of looked at each other. And so, you know, I was uh, I was naive enough to, to believe this. And then, of course, I was, uh, I was at home and I got a call from uh, one of the freelance photographers who just said... Like you know, it's oh. it's gone, it's over. I was like, what? God. Um, and he said, yeah, they've 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 uh, they've closed it. I was like, what? What the fuck? So I just immediately got on the tube and, and went down there. And um, oh man. And you know, um, the, I remember distinctly the first 
the first uh, the first thing I saw when I got in was uh, Ian Watson, who was the feature editor at the time. Um, who was uh, who was um, I've, I have to admit he was a he was a difficult man to work with. He, he always seemed very very stressed and would sort of take it out on other people. But was basically a sweet guy who really loved his job and loved music, and um, loved loved the maker. And he was there on his phone and uh, turned around and saw me and just and smiled and just looked really heartbroken. And went hello Sarah and it was like oh my god. It was, um, and you know, people were just sort of wandering around in a sort of state of shock, really. And quite mm. shortly after that, uh, you know, it, there's a very brutal thing that happens. I know other people have experienced this. When a, a, a magazine uh, folds, often there's, uh, or, or sometimes just when people are, are, are let go as well, um, they they come in, it's very brutal, it's very quick and very kind of brisk. And this is, you know, after 70, 76 years and it's the, the same thing. There's no ceremony mm. about it. It's just like, guys, we're shutting you down. Um, I wasn't there for that bit, but apparently, you know, the suits came in like the, you know, like the, the kind of horsemen of, <laughs> of the apocalypse yeah. and went, yeah, that's your lot. And then fucked off again. And then very quickly after that, they shut down the email and then they shut down the phone. So you can't phone out. And then it's like, what is there to do? You go to the fucking pub. So a bunch of us, the, the people who were there, just sort of traipse next door to the Stanford Arms and proceeded to, to See what you can get pissed. Your bag. Well, no, that, that's precisely what I did. I went back after having had a couple of beers, went, um, you know, stumbling back in and uh, to see what I could what I could fit uh, under my coat and one of the first thing yeah. I got was a was a plant it was a, there was a peace lily which is a big old peace lily and I just had this <laughs> I had this moment of like oh god I just had this vision of it just dying on the on the windowsill oh, or unloved and so I picked up this plant and also I went how much are you going to get for that at the record and tape experience <laughs> come on I got other things as well but it was just like who gives a fuck and I was fucking heartbroken mm. and I just went around picking things up mm. and uh, by the way I hope I didn't actually steal anything that that belonged specifically to anyone else and wasn't just office detritus and if i did sorry it, it's probably gone now but if i've got it you can i've got an everlast mug um i've got an eat at whitey's <laughs> mug which you can have if you want it um and yeah and and then um a mark sutherland hove interview as i was uh try i was eyeing up the office stereo like can i get to but and i was like you know can i have this then he's like what the stereo and you know and he wasn't going to let me take it. And I, I sort of, I, you know, and then he was like, yeah, all right, go on. No. So he let me have. So I went back like the next day. But then we went, I went back into the pub with the plant. And, uh, and he was like, oh, look, it's Sarah and a plant. So that was about, that was about my level of function was just like, what do you do? You, st- you steal a plant, which I then I looked after mm-hmm. uh, diligently for a couple of years and then killed it by uh, cutting too much of it, by pruning it too hard. <laughs> So there you go. That that's oh. that's really the, the the kind of symbol of the entire fucking sorry business for me. That's really upsetting to hear, Sarah. And and you know, I wasn't there on that last day. Like I said, I, I came back to an empty office with all the chairs up on the tables and all the computers gone. Yeah. And yeah. Zane, who was the listings editor, gave me a final issue and it it you know, the thing is, Sarah, and you know, Mark Sutherland will not have shed a fucking tear at any point. Um, during that process. Ian Watson, who you've mentioned, Ian Ian was, you know, a melody maker person yeah. and he'd been there a while. And I, I liked Ian, I got on with him. But uh, as um, Sutherland's reign continued, Ian got steadily more stressed. You, you got this thing under Sutherland that freelancers would become staffers and overnight they'd become dicks because <laughs> they were then operating to 
Sutherland's guidance, and mm. they were just stressed and run ragged yeah, yeah. Um, by his idiocy. He would not have shed a tear. The various other enemy bods who came up to save us, quote-unquote, would not have shed a single tear. But I don't think there was anyone who worked for Melody Maker who didn't genuinely cry that night. Mm. And, and, and the reason is, is because, yeah, it, the obvious reason, you lost something that was the, journalistically the love of your life. And, and even in the worst mm. moments, I remember Ben Myers telling me something, uh, Ben Myers that Sarah, you mentioned, yeah, yeah. that you got in touch with Ben earlier yeah, on. Yeah, he's a goodie. Ben, ben Myers never forgets, for some reason, something mm. I said to him um, towards the tail end. And we were, we were just having a general, normal fag room whinge about everything. And um, I said to him, but, but Ben, it's the best job in the world. And, you know, we still believe that. We still believe that something was salvageable here and that it wasn't all disastrous and, and that Melody Maker still meant something. It was still something we all deeply, deeply cared for yeah. because this was a magazine that changed our lives. And I don't mean just changed our lives because we got jobs there. It changed our lives as readers mm-hmm. and as writers in all kinds mm-hmm. of ways, even before we started working there. So... Yeah, uh, it was a, it was a heartbreaking, heartbreaking time for everyone involved who cared. Mm. Those in charge, unfortunately, didn't. Yeah, I, I still, I, I lament actually that we were, you know, because Mark, Mark came into the pub as well, and I shook his hand because it seemed like the thing to do. And yeah, yeah I kind yeah, of, yeah. and so I don't know, I, I kind of, and then I even at the time I sort of thought. Why? Why did I do that? But I guess it is the it's the noble thing, I guess. But it was just yeah. like, what? What yeah. the fuck do you do in this situation? And I, you know, he 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 also had lost his job. I I didn't really give a fuck about that. But you know, we had all we had all. There was it was a great loss in so many ways, and we couldn't we couldn't get our heads around it really. And immediately, kind of after that, Ben Knowles, who was the um, youngest ever editor of NME, I believe, possibly possibly. Mm. Uh, there's been somebody younger since but um he had he was a, a good a good pal of mine at, at the maker and I had kind of a homeless I had some stuff that I'd written for January and he'd sort of immediately said we'll run it come and you know come come down to the enemy which I did and that was mm. not I felt like that was good there was some kind of continuation but I it was just really it was very it was very weird I didn't feel quite you don't want to be too tribal about it, but it was a, there was a tribal thing, and no, it was a different way of working, yeah, absolutely. different way of being, different way of writing, different way of editing, and, and in a lot of ways probably better. It wasn't as dysfunctional as the maker at, in its in its last days, but I couldn't quite get on with it. And then I got asked to sign some. Um, there was one of those kind of contracts that went round that everyone just went, what you know, and we that mm. where you signed away all of your thing, like every note you'd written on every scrap of paper, kind of deal. And I sort of drifted away from it because I went, oh, God, I don't want to sign that. And I just don't feel right about any of this at all. So and then I ended up doing some Internet stuff, you know, and uh, but that was really it was kind of such a a false start. And it was like I said, it was it's the feeling of of turning up. You're finally at the show. You finally made it to the party and it's Mm. and it's already over. And Mm. what do you do? I'd kind of thought that. I I had some notion that maybe I had seen other people. There was this career trajectory where you would sort of, you'd cut your teeth in the music press, and then you kind of move on, and maybe you know you'd you'd maybe get into the the broadsheets or whatever. Which obviously there are only ever going to be a few people who manage that, and I I didn't for you know various reasons. But it was one of the losses that I experienced was this loss of momentum of just like absolutely oh, yeah. what what now what now where do I go well. I mean, yeah. the thing is, it was traumatizing like any bereavement, really. And, and, and 
The odd thing is, a lot of us were knocked back by it to the point where we didn't immediately pick ourselves up and, yeah. and get mm-hmm. going. I was certainly freelancing, don't get me wrong, but I'll never forget sort of four or five years later after the Melody Maker had shut, um, Kerrang wanted me to come over for Metal Hammer and stop writing for Metal Hammer. So I went to meet the editor of Kerrang and he came down the stairs at EMAP uh, where, where they were based and uh, strolls up to me in the foyer and I'm looking at him and I'm thinking I've seen you somewhere before like I, you know my memory's always shot to buggery so I couldn't remember who he was we do the interview he says we'd love to offer you some work Neil and then he goes do you remember me and I was like hmm I, I think I've seen you before but I can't quite recall and he was like I was the um the intern at Melody Maker <gasps> I used to bring you tea and I used to bring you your faxes when you're in the office And he was, you know, he, in that five years since Melody Maker had gone, had become editor of Kerrang! And I I was still (laughs) floundering around writing for Specialist Magazine. So it it knocked a lot of us back. Um, Mm. But, you know, I'm I'm never going to get a tattoo. But if I did, it would be a Melody Maker tattoo. Um, I I fucking love that magazine. Yeah, we all did. Oh, all things must come to an end, right? I don't feel cleansed, Sarah. I, st- I still feel upset. Oh, oh <laughs> no! Mate. You know what? You know oh, what sorry. I mean. You know what I mean. I, just I know. Feel a bit I know. I know. I know. Oh, I know. Well, yeah, it's it's hard. You know, this is always going to be. It's it's something that only if only like a, a there's kind of a privilege in it in a way. It's only a few a few of us who understand what this feels like because it is. It's bigger than you, and it's this kind of shared specific uh kind of kind of trauma really it's just yeah oh it's a bummer but it's really nice to it's good to talk about i mean i hopefully this will you know hopefully other people will kind of enjoy it if that's the word i don't know i still got the stereo i've still got the stereo by the way i don't like i said the plant died a long time ago still got the fucking stereo so fuck off and on that note we say goodbye to this episode of Chart Music. All that remains is the usual promotional flange. Our website is www.chart-music.co.uk. You can reach us on facebook.com slash chartmusic, or you can get with us on Twitter, chartmusictotp, and, of course, money down the G-string, patreon.com slash chartmusic. Thank you very much, Neil Kulkarne. Cheers, Al. God bless you, Sarah B. Thanks, love. My name is Al Needham and I am all over your... (laughs) (laughs) Chart music. Thursdays. Thursdays will never be the same. Thursdays have changed. The melody makers changed. There is life on Thursday.